Welcome to the first installment of the Director Dossiers podcast, where each episode we chronologically break down and discuss each movie in a director's filmography. If you'd like to see more of these retrospectives, you can subscribe. You can also download the Stanley Kubrick Dossier PDF for free, or a dollar, or two, or a thousand. It's pay-as-you-wish. The dossier details some bonus behind-the-scenes trivia and stories, as well as my full written reviews for each movie discussed. You can find a link to the PDF in the description. Thank you for watching. So who made this dossier anyway? Uh, it was uh, some guy, I don't know, just dropped it off. It's a very well-made dossier, I might say. Yeah, very, very well-researched. Very, very nice. And I would definitely pay a dollar for it. I would, too. <laughs> All right. So here it says something about his early life. Yes. It says, Kubrick was born on July 26, 1928, to a Jewish family. Around the age of 12, his father, who was a physician, introduced Stanley to chess and photography. Yes, those were his first two obsessions. He was a very obsessive person, especially later in his career. Every movie you can tell. There was just That was all he was thinking about for years at a time. And for chess, he was very gifted at it. And he played for like the Marshall Chess Academy which is a thing that I'm not familiar with, but mm. apparently it means you're good at chess. He played competitively. He was like, he, in his words, he said he was average among the competitive level that he was in, which is still pretty, not smart, but, you know, a pretty good uh, understanding his, of chess. It speaks to his intelligence that he's good at chess at all. Yeah, like, because, yeah, chess involves, like, spatial relation, which makes sense if you're making a movie and mm -hmm. co compositing shots and stuff like that. And speaking of compositing shots his photography skills he, he obviously he said his dad would introduce him to that he basically was self-taught in that as well he learned how to set up dark rooms how the camera works how like he had a great knowledge of the chemical of the 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 like the chemical changes to, like in coloring the film in, in mm -hmm. terms of like color grading and stuff like that they used to do it with chemicals back then yeah. now we just press a dumb button that says oh make it bluer but back then, you had to like you, you were the Powerpuff Girls' dad, just throwing chemicals in. And there. it was destructive to the film, wasn't it? Yeah, or it's like you had to be good at it. Yeah, you had to get it right. So that required a lot of uh, skill. And you you think since he was obviously smart, he'd be good at school, but he sucked. He had a sixty-seven average, and he couldn't get into college because at the time he needed a seventy-five. Mm -hmm. And the only the only class he was good in was physics. I don't know how much that translated. To, it makes sense. It, it, him being good at phys physics makes sense. Yeah, it, it makes sense because it, you know a lot of the things he probably had to. He, a lot of things he was interested in yeah. were things that would lead him towards movies, and some of the movies that he made probably had to do a lot with researching some stuff in physics. Yeah, and like the technicality and how of mecha and mechanics of how things work. He probably had to, he was he was he had such a curious mind. He would always be asking people questions mm. like, "How does this work? How does this work?" And then you get in an argument with him, and then he would somehow be right about literally everything. Mm. And then, uh, obviously, high school his prospects weren't great academically. But at the end of high school, he started doing freelance photography and was selling picture stories. There was one about Walter Cardia, who was a boxer who comes up later in his life. There was one about his English teacher or a English teacher. Uh, and how that guy did his class. And then the most famous picture he took, maybe m the most famous picture other than his movies, was the picture he took of the news vendor on the day FDR died. There's a picture of a news vendor. He's sitting there like, ah, shit, ah, gee. And there's a headline that just says, FDR dead, get over it, this sucks. And then, <laughs> <laughs> and then Harry... FDR dead, get over <laughs> get it, over this it sucks. sucks. <laughs> and then in the corner is Harry Truman to be sworn in, and everybody's like, hates Truman. They're like, god damn mm -hmm. it. And that was like a very fan. And look bought that, and look gave him like a 
you know, a Peter Parker, like you said, mm-hmm. we were talking about this earlier, uh, like a Peter Parker job. Yeah, yeah. He just was going around capturing more, which yeah. probably gave him a, a good insight on, like, that's a good thing to do prior film because you to have capture to the capture the moment yeah and yeah that and and if there's anything capturing that film that picture of the the guy like oh gee with the fdr dead that captured the moment like, oh yeah definitely that know. captured the moment of a whole country in yeah one photo. yeah mm-hmm. and also you know i got him used to the hustle and bustle of being on a film set and getting yelled at he probably had jay jonah jameson there going like get me pictures of yeah. fdr dead <laughs> <laughs> Get me put more pictures of people sad about FDR. Yeah, I want them really sad. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. I want them really sad next yeah. time. <laughs> so he sold that to Look Magazine, and then Look Magazine subsequently gave him a, a staff position in 1947, and that kind of set his career straight after high school. Day of the Fight, 1951. Still working for Look Magazine, Kubrick was compelled to make this film after a friend of his, Alexander Singer, who was working as an office boy at the March of Time, told him that they were producing their short documentaries for about $40,000 each. Yeah, so that was like a big deal for Cooper because he was watching these things and he was like, all right, so if they're making 40000 or if they're making them for 40000 surely they're getting paid more than that. Mm. So I can make some money here. He, so he cal- what he did is he calculated how much it would cost for him to make a short documentary. So he called up the you know, facilities of like sound, renting a camera, film, uh, you know, getting his own music. And he estimated that he could make it for about $3,500. And so so he did. He rented everything and made uh, a film about Walter Cartier, that boxer. He did the picture story on. Mm-hmm. He basically, him and Alex Singer basically did the whole thing. Like he went out with the camera and the audio. Alex, Alex Singer would carry stuff around for him and stuff. And basically the whole thing is basically... It's oh you know here here comes Walter Cartier he's a big boy he's a good boy he's gonna win this fight you better believe it and yeah, that's like stuff yeah, like yeah. that like World and War Two breakdown documentaries that you see that yeah, they're exa- like exactly. the planes are flying over now yes they're doing very well oh <laughs> yes also this is sponsored by you know Bosco chocolate you know? <laughs> <laughs> I stole that jo- I stole that from Conan I feel bad about that <laughs> anyway okay. so he's not gonna watch <laughs> <laughs> so basically the, Walter Cartier when he knocked out the guy at the end of the thing. Kubrick, he didn't get it on his camera because Kubrick was changing his film. Alex Singer ended up getting the knockout. And so anyway, they ended up putting it together. The budget was, again, 3500 And then he started shopping it around uh, to different studios or whatever. And they were giving him stuff like 1500 bucks. we'll buy it from you, 2000 bucks. And he's like, well, what the hell? If March of Time is making their movies for $40,000, like they're getting at least that. And he goes, are you, what are you, crazy? Well, we're not paying them that much. It turns out that the Marshall Time was making them for forty thousand and getting like four thousand. Yeah, yeah. And then the next year they went out of business. Uh-huh. So he was like, "Oh yeah. shit!" Good learning moment for Stanley Kubrick. Yeah, right. So he ended well, he ended up selling it to RKO Pathé for like thirty four hundred. He said, "Okay, so now if you look up the budget, people say it's he spent four thousand and he got forty one hundred. But he he himself in an interview in nineteen sixty six says that he sold it for a hundred less than what he made it for. Mm-hmm. So me so thirty five hundred, thirty four hundred. Mm-hmm. There's some budget disputes there. And him, him being smart, like I don't think he expected to make like a big payday off of it. Maybe he did. At least afterwards. At least at least, until, at least after he found out that, that you know. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Uh huh. Yeah, I was. You know, I'm thinking like maybe 
in his mind, he was thinking like, this is partially I just want to get out there and make a film. Yeah, exa- yeah which exactly. Is, which he had is an good interest in photography way. and was it's like, oh, I can th- make some money off of this. It's funny to think he's changing the film while the knockout happens. He's like, oh, he's like I hate it. making films. <laughs> 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 he's just like, this sucks. I'll never be good at this. That brings us to Flying Padre 1952. Kubrick is still working at Look Magazine. <laughs> RKO Path gives him 1500 to go film another short documentary. Yeah, he says, you know, they gave him 1500 but he also spent his own money. So he's he said he lost money on that too. But that one was pre- that one was pretty cool. That I so basically this guy like Fred Stod Stodmuller or whatever, he was a priest in around New Mexico and he would fly to all these parishes. He'd be like, "Oh, I'm 50 miles away. Let me get in my plane and just go fly so I can pray for the, pray to this sick boy." And he'd go and drive and do all these like philanthropic things. And that was pretty cool and there's a scene where uh, where he's like, you know, just chilling, eating breakfast, and some girl's like, this girl's bullying me. And then he goes out there, he's like, hey, pal, stop bullying her. And they go, okay, and they're filming it. It's like, obviously, this is orchestrated. And then the kid, as they walk away, the bully puts his arm over or whatever. They take five steps, and he goes, all right. <laughs> he's oh, like, you see it in the... Yeah, they're like, even <laughs> yeah, they yeah, address yeah. that in the documentary. Mm-hmm. So that one was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder how he felt about doing stuff like that. I'm sure at this point now he was being hired. I mean, this was this is a cool story, but the next one mm-hmm. we get to that that's it was just work. It had to be. Next one is The Seafarers, 1953. Kubrick's first movie made in color, thought to be lost in history until a print was found by film scholar Frank Tomasulo, who arranged for it to be deposited into the permanent collection of the Library of Com- Congress Motion Picture Division. Yeah, that's the only reason it's going to be part. Of, it's part of that is because it has Kubrick's name on it. If you watch, it's it's basically, it's basically an advertisement for the Seafarers International Union. It's it, it you know what it is? It's the, the the episode of SpongeBob where they do the employee, uh, tutorial where he's like, yeah. wash those hands, SpongeBob. Okay, it's okay. all like mm-hmm. this guy. He's in the Seafarers, and guess what? He gets a nice warm meal. It's yeah. like stuff like that. He like had he, no like creative control over it. Probably. Yeah, it was it was, it was basically like a, like a thirty job. minute commercial for the Seafarers Union, so it's not that interesting. Fear and Desire, nineteen fifty three. Kubrick quits Look Magazine and becomes interested in making feature films after calculating that he can make one for ten thousand dollars. Yes, whoever wrote this dossier must be very, very well versed in the mm. life of Kubrick. Yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. very impressed. Yeah, yeah. With yeah. the amount of detail. Almost in this a dossier. weird obsession. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah. So he got into making features the same way he got into making shorts because he found out how much they were ma- they're spending on feature movies in Hollywood, like you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars. And he's like, well, wait a minute. Let me see how much I. So he did the same co- like kind of calculations that he did. For the day of the fight, where he said he, oh, I can do this for thirty five hundred, and he calculated that he can make a feature film for ten thousand dollars. So, the first thing that he put together was a script by this guy Howard Sackler, who was, um, I guess, a, I think he was a poet. But so the the guy wrote the script. It was called Fear and Desire, and Kubrick ended up his dad, Kubrick's dad, cashed out his life insurance so that Kubrick can make the movie. Yeah, which is a beautiful thing until you realize that the movie sucked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, so they make it and it comes out and it gets it gets it premieres at the Venice Film Festival, and it's like an hour long, and uh, 
you you watch the movie and the, you know when you know when like a, a film student will make a movie about suicide because that's like the first thing that the amateur brain like comes up with. Mm-hmm. I'm guilty of doing that. I did that in college. Is that a common thing? That's every. It's either every student film is suicide or walking into the woods. Yeah, yeah. Or both. <laughs> I'm not gonna say if I did both. <laughs> so, but that's both. fear and desire is his version of that, where he's like, I wanted this to be a very poetic, serious, allegorical thing. You know. Mm-hmm. Do you think? Do you think? That it, so you like in your opinion, you think it sucked. I mean, he. I mean, he, he. He thinks it sucks too. Yeah. But do you think it's like? Do you think he thinks it sucks, and you think it sucks because of like limitations with the budget, or just limitations with well, technology, well, I mean, it, or just him developing? It's the it's a limitation of the writing and the the understand the under like his later in his career he would break the rules consciously. But in this movie, when he breaks the rules, it's a matter of like ignorance. Mm-hmm. It's it, this basic. So basically, the, the like the main story is these four soldiers get trapped uh, behind enemy 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 lines. They like they crash their plane, and they're like, "Well, shit, we gotta get home." And they run into the enemy, and the enemy is played by like the same actors. But then they find like this hot girl in the woods that one of the native girls. It's like a, this weird. War, nobody knows what the war is. Yeah. There's no country names, so they find the girl and they take her prisoner. And then there's one guy go crazy. This is an example. One guy goes crazy, and he goes crazy for like three minutes, two minutes, three minutes. And he he's talking to the guy, and then he goes and jumps in a river. And then the main guy comes over and goes, hey, what just happened? And then the guy he just told that to describes to us what we just saw, which, which, which feels even longer. He's like, well, I was sitting here, and he started saying crazy things. I'm like, oh, my God, I'm going to sit through this again. Are you kidding me? Yeah, yeah. He just like recaps things that don't need to be recapped. Exactly, like, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's... it's. How old was he when he made this? He was born in 26 or 28. Yeah. So, he this was... He filmed this in 52, 53. Mm-hmm. No, it, it, no, it premiered in 52. So, he filmed it in 52, 51, around there. Yeah. I believe. That mm-hmm. might be wrong. I don't know. I'm not going to do the, the math in front of everybody. <laughs> <laughs> so, he was like... He wasn't even 30 yet. Yeah, yeah. He was 20... Yeah. He was like our age. 20... Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. our age. So, we're so I guess I can't him. talk shit. <laughs> yeah, I'm better than him. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm, just I'm just kidding. Yeah. And it, here it says, in, 19, in 1993, it was screened at the Telluride Film Festival. Oh, yeah. And Kubrick was like, please don't do that. And they were like, we're going to do it. He, he, he really didn't, didn't have want, any control he, over If it why. was up to him, he would he would destroy everything. I know. I, I Yeah, it's... Uh, I've heard that he took it out of circulation. Like he was just like, "This is trash. Yeah, I don't he's want like, it." He called it later. He called it like an amateur film exercise. Yeah. Exercise. There was no bigger critic of the movie than Kubrick. And like, mm-hmm. you can you can recognize like because he was still good at like f- photographically. So there's some good compositions. Like mm-hmm. there's, I remember there's there's a scene near the end where they're in this raft going down the river and stuff. But I, I, I've seen it twice, and every time it's only an hour, and I'm like, "Oh my god!" Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. but it's, it's, clear, nec- it's yeah, clearly learn. just him learning. Yeah, exactly, and that's mm-hmm. all it needs to be. Killer's Kiss, 1955. After Fear and Desire, Kubrick re-teamed with Howard Sackler to write another script to keep the momentum. After two weeks, they wrote Killer's Kiss. Like Fear and Desire, the budget was raised privately through Kubrick's relatives. Now, I don't know how he convinced them to do that. Especially after, like, Fear and Desire didn't make any money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he hated it, and everybody hated it. got a a few couple of good reviews, but, you know, I don't know how. He must have been a master Mm -hmm. bargainer. But yeah, so Killer's Kiss is basically what I think is his first actual movie. Mm-hmm. It's very by the numbers and it's very simple. But it's, you know he's actually successful in making like a mediocre, mediocre, okay movie. 
And w- when they were filming it, uh, they th- obviously the budget was so low they didn't they didn't have permits to film in New York on the streets. So they'd be filming, and then some cops would come up and be like, "What the what the hell?" And then Leave. Kubrick would hit him a nice with a nice crisp twenty. Oh, uh, you know, keep walking, pal. So there's probably no way to like come up with the number of the the budget when you consider stuff like that. Like yeah, I'm just, sure he wasn't keeping seventy five thousand plus five hundred dollars of twenty dollar bills yeah, to yeah, pay yeah, off yeah, the cops. Exactly. Oh, I guess. <laughs> yeah, and another thing is he didn't like the uh, the sound crew. Because he would have these compositions, and then the yeah, yeah, I don't, I, I don't know why he wouldn't like the sound crew guys. <laughs> I'm a sound guy. <laughs> I don't know if you could tell. Is that why I don't like? You? Yeah, I guess so. Um, because he would like set up a shot, and then they'd be like, "All right, we're gonna put our mics right, our mics right there." And he's like, "No, you can't. What are you talking about?" So they would never be able to get like good audio. So he fired them, and then just did most of the audio, or at least all, at least most or all of the audio and post. Like everything is dubbed and stuff like that. So yeah, mm-hmm. and who's this James B. Harris character that the movie attracted? Oh, that was so the movie. So the movie comes out, mm-hmm. it gets okay reviews, doesn't make money, but it, it attracted the uh, the the eye of James B. Harris, who was this guy who was like independently wealthy, uh, okay. fortunately for Kubrick, mm-hmm. and was like, hey, let's make some movies together. And I under and I, I understand why seeing Killer because Killer's Kiss is like the first. Like I said before, it's the first movie where he actually does characters. Yeah. Where they're 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 super thin, and non-existent the characters. But at least there's a like a, so basically the the, the plot and the storyline is like, all right, there's this boxer, all right, and then he looks through his window of uh, of his apartment and he sees this guy beating the shit out of some lady, and he's like, lady, what happened? He falls in love with her, and then the boss guy who was beating her up like this mob boss dude gets pissed that they're in love, and then goes to. Get somebody ki- get that guy killed the the boxer, and then he accidentally kills somebody else that wasn't the boxer, mm-hmm. and then they have to whatever. And th- it's there's a there's a great at the end. There's like two great scenes where they're, they're he's chased the the mob boss is chasing the boxer on the roof. That's really good. And then there's this final fight scene with an axe, like that's almost like the precursor to the axe in The Shining. And they're in this room full of mannequins. He's just swiping at this guy. It's fucking. Mm-hmm. It's awesome. It's a cool. That's a cool like setup for a scene. You know. Yeah. Just, just with a bunch a of mannequins. The mannequins of the are scary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the one I remember when I, the first time I, wa- I watched it like again like two times. The first time I watched there was a there's a nightmare sequence where he's having a nightmare and he Kubrick takes like a helicopter shot of like the streets of New York City, and then re- reverses the images so it's like a negative. Yeah. And that that felt like the seed for like the Stargate sequence in, in, in two thousand one. I'm not saying yeah, that yeah, was, yeah. but it was like a precursor shades of, of that. Shades of things that he would do in the future. Like yeah. Very uh, original with his titles. <laughs> the next one is the Killing. <laughs> yeah. Nineteen fifty six. Killer's Kiss. The Killing. Fortunately, James B. Harris was pretty wealthy, and he and Kubrick became producing partners. Harris Kubrick Productions. Harris reads a novel titled Clean Break <laughs> by Lionel White. Yeah, so th- basically The Killing is the first instance of Kubrick doing characters correctly. Where everybody, like Killer's Kiss, I, I'm calling them the boxer. I'm calling them the girl, the mob boss. You don't know, is but it because you don't know their names or they just didn't have names? Well, they're not good enough characters for me to remember their names. Yeah, yeah, okay. But it, like Johnny Clay. That's Sterling Hayden in The Killing. And Sterling Hayden, Sterling Hayden talks about there's a great, like near the end of his life, he's in the, he's living in the houseboat in Santa Monica, and somebody's just like filming him in this interview, 
and every question he goes, oh, I uh, like he starts every sentence with, oh, well, uh, and he goes, I, I met, you know, there's for the killing, and they said the, the director was his genius, Kubrick. So I went and talked to him, and he's everything he says in the movie. He's just one of those people, like everything he says is just so, you know, mani- like manipulating and mm-hmm. and enamoring to look at. Like he's just perplexing to look at as a person. And so he's Johnny Clay. Then there's, um, but also like the, he sets up the characters with an actual with actual problems in their lives. Like Johnny Clay, basically his girl is just like, hey, I'm not hot, even though she is. Please don't leave me and go to jail. She's like, I'm not beautiful enough to get a husband, which is whatever. And then there's a cop who's like, hey, I, I owe some debts. There's another guy who is like, oh, shit, I got to, my wife is dying, and she's really sick. I got to get up some money to, uh, to, to take care of her. And characters have motivation. And there's another guy, George, who's, he's like a cuck, basically. He's like this, he's like this smarmy little dude. Who's who can't satisfy his wife and she's cheating on him and he wants to impress her by pulling off this big heist. Mm-hmm. This is why they all want to do the heist. So now they have all have motivations. They're not just like these guys in suits being like, "We should do a heist." You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then th- this movie also signifies bigger names wanting to work with him in terms of Lucy and Ballard wanting to w- or being signed on to work on the film. Oh, right? yeah, so yeah, so Lucy, so well, Lucy and Ballard was like he was a pr- pretty prolific cinematographer at the time. I think he was nominated for a- uh, Oscars afterwards, but I don't think before. But there, w- there was a funny story about um, the, the one of the first days of shooting where Kubrick sets up like, okay, so you're going to put the camera here, and then it's going to dolly and follow him here. You put the 25 on there, the 25-millimeter lens. And the guy goes, got it. And then later Kubrick sees him putting on – he moves the, the dolly back and then puts on a 50-millimeter lens, so it's like more zoomed in. And Cooper goes, what's going on here? And the guy goes, no, it's, you don't worry. It's easier for us. So you won't, it won't make a difference. And he goes, why wouldn't it make a difference? He goes, don't worry about it. It's fine. And Kubrick, Kubrick's like, all right, put the dolly back where I said and put the lens on that I said or else get off the set and I don't want to see you again. And then he was like, Lucien Bell was like, oh, fuck. Yeah, he knows what he's talking about. Yeah, like. he, and Kubrick was 20, what, 27? And he's just super calm on a film set talking to like a veteran cinematographer mm-hmm. telling him like, hey, here's how it's going to go. Blah, yeah, blah, like, blah. and and it shows that he knew, because because I think the story too is that like he, the Lucien Ballard kind of changed it, thinking that he wouldn't realize that it yeah changes something very important, and um, he was just like, no, we have to keep it this way. Yeah, like, Kubrick the, basically did the I'm cinematography on that movie, mm-hmm. which is how is how the the, the story goes. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, but this one still didn't make much money. Well, it was it was so the movie it got good reviews, but it was. But it was you know, part of like a double feature, so like it didn't get released solo. It got released like along with another movie, and it didn't make money, but it was very critically acclaimed and people liked it. And th- th- I I think because there's a movie called Rochemont, right? And that inspired this movie where it's one of those things where they do a single event, and then they tell it out of order from different perspectives, and it all puzzle pieces together. And that took influence on this movie, The Killing, which is how they present the heist. It's all like out of, you know, it's out of order. And people look at that and they're like, this is the greatest thing. It's like, I understand like mechanically how it works and it's fun. But for for me, people like, like I've heard Louis C.K. be like, this killing is the greatest Stanley Kubrick movie. And I'm like, and it's a really good movie. I don't know why it's the greatest because thematically it's not really about much. It's about some things thematically we'll get to later. But there are really funny scenes in it like... Um, this guy Maurice, 
who's like this Russian guy, and he's I don't have any idea what he's saying throughout the entire movie. Like he's talking, mm-hmm. I have no idea what he's saying. But there's a scene where he has to cause like a diversion during the heist at the horse race, and uh, he's like, "How about some services over here or whatever?" And then the guy's like, "Shut up!" And then he knocks him on on the head with like a bottle, and then he starts getting in a fight with all these cops. And the cops like start like taking his arms, and then they rip his shirt down the middle. And he's the hairiest man of all time. <laughs> <laughs> like, he's so, and then he starts like be. Also, he's not like strong. He's like yeah. a fat guy today. He's yeah, like, not even, he's yeah, not even yeah. fat today. He's just like a dad. Yeah, he's but just back then bod. he was like the biggest dude of all time. Mm-hmm. And then he fights them for like five minutes. It goes on for way too long. <laughs> but he keeps doing like he keeps hip tossing dudes with like doing yeah. these crazy moves. And it's like the funniest thing I've ever. There's a he. His head slams back on the the bar. Mm-hmm. And it's like one of the. I laugh out loud every time I is see. He, it. Is he hairy by today's standards, or are you just? He, 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 <laughs> he might. Just he was wearing a sweater. <laughs> yeah, he just super hairy. Yeah, uh, it's like appalling. You're like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh shit, they have to fight him, dude. Next one. But uh, well, yeah, yeah, I okay, guess so. Unless you have any more, anything else? Um, well, I do think like thematically, I was talking about it, it's not very thematically like. You know, mm. thick but I, th- I think it's it's sort of like correlates to what Kubrick is doing in terms of making a movie where Johnny Clay has this plan it's a foolproof plan he's thought it down to the second like mm. there's no fat on the plan he knows everything that's going to go down and then slowly and surely like all this stuff like keeps happening that just slowly unravel it like the guy George lets his wife know that he's doing a heist and then she comes over involves her lover and her lover's like hey I'm going to rob these guys after they rob the heist oh. uh, after they rob the, uh, the horse ra- they, they're robbing a horse race mm-hmm. and um and then later, Johnny Clay, they, they do little things. Like, Johnny Clay will just, like, he has the money. And then uh, he goes into one of his hotel rooms that he, uh, like, rented. And the door, somebody's in there. He's like, what? And then he looks, he's not the wrong one. It's like, oh, they didn't have to do that, but they're keeping us on our toes. Yeah, yeah. He goes and buys a suitcase to put all the money in. The One of the latches doesn't work, so now the suitcase may pop any second. And he goes to the airport at the end. And they're like, hey, you can't bring that on the plane. He's like, Ugh. So then he's like, fine, put it through. Yep, all right, yeah, yeah. Like that's how he talks. That's literally how he talks. And then they put on the plane, and then this lady's dog runs out on the on the runway. And the thing is like it's it's like stand the case is standing up on the side of like the baggage cart. It's like you literally wobbling. And the guy like goes out of the way of the dog, and then it, the money just like slams goes all over the place, and the the planes throw it up in a tornado. So yeah, that's uh. So I th- I think it's just all about no matter how you plan stuff, you'll never be able to think of everything, and something's always gonna crop up that's going to mess you up and trip you up. The Paths of Glory, 1957. Not the Paths of Glory. Take two. (laughs) (laughs) After critical success of The Killing, Harris and Kubrick picked the novel Paths of Glory as their next project. It was one of the few books Kubrick read while in high school, but how the project came to fruition is unclear. Yeah, so, yeah, like you said, Kubrick read the book in high school. And I think people, like, speculate, like, oh, Lolita is the first Kubrick movie, in quotes. Oh, The Killing is the first Kubrick movie, in quotes. But I really think Path of Glory is probably the first Kubrick. Because if you look at the compositions, they look like a Kubrick movie just in black and white. He's doing the same wide-angle stuff. And in terms of, like, the, The Killing, like I said, doesn't have a lot of big ideas. But Path of Glory is the first Kubrick movie that has giant big ideas that you know are on the same scale as his later movies like the shining or full metal jacket mm-hmm. let's say um basically so basically the story is uh colonel dax is 
in charge of this platoon, and then this general comes down, who's in the general's about to get a promotion, so he wants to like take the ant hill, this one enemy territory, the French soldiers, and then when and he knows like it's we cannot get this ant hill, like it's we don't have enough men, they just fought whatever, and he goes, nah, screw it, I want the promotion, so they go to the battle, and only one of or two of the uh, the platoons get out of the trenches and charge. One, plat- one platoon doesn't. Mm-hmm. So then the general orders his own artillery on the positions of his own men to get him out of the trenches. And that's like the big thing. And mm-hmm. then the they, they have to pick like three guys for cowardice. They have to kill him. And then it's about it's about Colonel Dax, Kirk Douglas's character, basically representing them in military court. Mm-hmm. And it, uh, this is one of the ones where I heard it's more of, it's a lot about him. Kubrick showing the how human beings really are. I mean, I feel like a lot of his movies has to do with that, but it's it's one of those things where it shows like the duality of humans. I guess you would say, right? J- or just I guess a pessimistic. It's very. An- it's yeah. like it's basically his first anti-war movie. Mm-hmm. Sort of like the only anti-war one he did. Full Metal Jack is not really anti-war so much as it is like mm-hmm. here it is. There's aspects to it that could be probably viewed as anti-war, but it's not as well. That's, that's it's not kind of a, fully yeah, anti-war. That's kind of a dumb like, thing to say. What am I saying? Because there, there's that one scene where he's basically doing Strange Love in Full Metal Jacket, which we'll get to later. Mm-hmm. But maybe that was a dumb thing to say. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But like in Paths of Glory, it's basically his first anti-war movie, and one of the things, the ideas of it, it's basically you're just watching like these regular guys get caught up in, you know, the scheming of these generals to further their career and reputations. Like, they're basically trading dead bodies for, you know, points, mm-hmm. basically. It's like Pokemon it's like Pokemon cards, but with real soldiers yeah, in World yeah. War One. And, like, World War One is the f- perfect movie to show, like, the banality and dumbness of war in that way. Because it's not... A, World War One wasn't about anything. It was a dumb political war. It wasn't like World War Two which is, like, mm-hmm. the only justified war we had in the modern era, or, like, the clear-cut justified war in the modern yeah. era. But even World War One is just... It's just... All, everything is all caught, caught up in the bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, it's just, like, these regular guys who are getting caught in the machine. Like, the three guys who get picked, you know, one of, one of them charged. And then one of them... And then one of them was... Uh, there was one guy who... Actually, his superior officer fled the scene and killed, accidentally killed his own guy by throwing a grenade at the enemy... And then fled the scene as a, as a coward, and then he got back. And then that guy's like, "I'm gonna black. Who's who are they gonna believe? Me or you? I'm an officer, pal." And then when it comes time to pick who's gonna be executed for cowardice, that officer picks the guy that yeah. saw him be a coward. Mm-hmm. So it's stuff like that. And it, 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 in the first thirty minutes, let's say, it works as a very innovative like war movie. There's all these dolly shots that he used, and there, there's a story that they were on the set. And Kubrick is doing like this big dolly shot through the trenches. They made the trenches wider in order to to hold the cameras because you know trenches back in, like in historically were very very tiny, but they had to get the camera down there, so they made them wider. And he's doing he goes I'm doing this dolly shot because Max Ophuls died today. Who was like a director who was always using these like these dolly shots that were inspired Kubrick, but also like Paul Thomas Anderson and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And then the second uh, the second third is like this amazing courtroom drama drama. It's like this amazing, like economically shot. It's like the, it's so captivating, and then the third section is just like this tragedy where you're like, "God damn it, dude!" Mm-hmm. It's really not, not the best. No, not the best upper movie. You don't go to it to feel better. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess that's sort of what an anti-war film is. You're not supposed to leave being like, 
like, let's go to battle. I love doing yeah, one. Yeah, let's yeah, do yeah, another yeah, one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Let's do war do part you, two. I don't know if he ever had any interviews about this, but was it meant to be an anti-war film or was it just a story that he came or that he oh. wanted to tell that ended up being an anti-war? Well, I think it was, I think it's definitely, I don't know if, I haven't read the book, so it's hard to say if that was supposed to be anti-war, but in terms of like the movie itself, yeah, like there's the, the guy, the general, the, the, one of the villain general, the guy who orders the, the, the artillery on his own men after the execution, the, the three soldiers end up dying, like getting executed. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the, also the way Kubrick, the Kubrick f- films that is like he films it very rigidly where like he's filming them head on where like they're not going to get out of this. They're caught up in this, you know, this uh, 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 repressive and oppressive bureaucracy of the military, whatever. And I, I thought that was very interesting. But anyway, so after that, after they get killed, they're having dinner and it's th- it cuts to these generals just having like the best dinner in this nice ballroom and whatever. And the guy goes, yes, the men died wonderfully. Mm-hmm. Which is like you can't yeah. have that line in your movie and then not say it's anti-war. Either. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it, here it says Kubrick and veteran actor Adolf Adolfi Adolfe Adolfi Menju. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah, yeah. I don't okay. Know. Butted heads during filming. Yeah, there was just, obviously Kubrick did. I don't know how far in his career he get, he went until he like did a lot of takes. But in Paths of Glory, he was doing a lot of takes of the scene, and the guy's like, "I'm the best actor of all time. What are you talking about?" Mm-hmm. Um. And so he, they, they were, they did like 19 takes, let's say, which by Kubrick standards isn't even that much. Yeah, it's like, like you did 20 takes, you're like, nice, dude. We yeah, got off yeah. early today, but he got like offended or whatever. He's like, I'm a veteran actor and I'm an actor's actor and I don't believe this or this is whatever, blah blah blah. And then Kubrick just like, just waited, like, all right, come on, let's go. And then after the guy was done with his outburst, Kubrick just went, all right, let's do it again. And then he went, all right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's, <laughs> and, 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 that's like and Kirk Douglas was like he knew exactly how to handle it. He was so young too; he was twenty eight. Mm-hmm. That's a common. I think I feel like this is a cr- common occurrence with him, where he just handles things so well. Yeah, like things like that so well that it's just there's nothing you can say to him. Yeah, like he knows how to keep. Like very rarely would he like outburst on the set. Really, mm-hmm. he he pretty much he was too involved in like thinking about the movie to get involved in like. I'm sure that I'm sure there's you know problems he had with other people in his career that we don't know mm-hmm. about, but there's never any stories about him yelling at people all the time on the set. You know, I mean, there is one, but we'll probably get to that. Are later. you talking about The Shining? Yeah, yeah. We'll yeah. get to that. Well, I think that was you know, yeah, ends justify the means kind of there. Okay, yeah, and then this is what I'm a little confused about. The final scene wasn't in the script and was invented by Kubrick oh, during yeah. filming. So. So the the final scene is like one of the best final scenes of all time. So basically, after the men get killed, Colonel Dax tells that the Adolphe Menjou's character, the general, he's like he he does this really big thing where he's like, "I'm not your boy," and you can go to hell. He does like one of those scenes <laughs> like that they have in old movies where like everybody's calm for the whole movie, and at the mm-hmm. end they just start yelling like, like yeah. really funny. And but then so he leaves and he's like, "I fucking hate people. This sucks." And then uh, there's a scene where. He goes like and listens to this pub of soldiers, of the French soldiers who like didn't get killed, and they're all like drunk and like ah. ah. And then this hot girl goes on stage. She was like, she's like a like a prisoner of war almost. She's like the German, you know, lady. And the guy brings her out the bar, to the, the the bar worker, whatever. Is, he comes out. He goes, separate up. We got a hot girl here. She can't dance. She can't do this. She mm-hmm. can't, but she can sing. And she starts singing, and she so goes. Like some German yeah, shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then every and then all of a sudden everybody quiets down and they just start like all crying and they yeah. all start going, mm, 
mm-hmm. singing along with her. What? They're singing along. They start with singing her? along with her, humming, and they're all crying. And dude, I every time I see it, I cry. It's like the, it's absolutely phenomenal. And the mm-hmm. woman. So the the scene wasn't in the script. You're right. So what happened was Kubrick was watching like this television program, and he saw this woman in there, and he was like, "Who's that?" And they're like, "It's her." And he's like, "Nice. Let me see her." So then he cast her in the scene because he needed like he didn't feel like the, the script had like a punctuation. He's like, "We needed like a punctuation for this." So then he had this woman go on stage. Her name was Christiane, and they ended up getting married and staying together until his death in 1999. Christiane Kubrick. And her, I, her, I think her uncles were like Nazis and stuff, but that's not. I mean, if you're German at that time, like everybody yeah, yeah, has just, a family member who is a Nazi, mm-hmm. much like today, you have a family member who's literally a Nazi. Yeah, uh huh. Mm-hmm. In, in my case, it's my co-host on this podcast. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh. so but that's a that's a fantastic scene, and it really, it, and it's not even just like a cheap fit throwaway thing to get, but it also serves Colonel Dax's character so well because now he's so like, oh, humanity sucks. And then he sees this like this glimmer of hope in humanity for him. He's like, "Oh, maybe I, maybe we still are capable of something good." You know, mm-hmm. I thought that was I thought that was very good. Mm-hmm. And so it opens to great reviews. But what yes. about this movie stirred controversy? It was so since it was the French army in the movie, they they banned it in France for like twenty years. I think it was banned in France for, for maybe maybe it was banned in France until the nineties or the seventies. And it, what? It's interesting how long it... Yeah, they were like, oh, know. yeah, that's right. We're still... Yeah, yeah, they just didn't think about it or any, for, you know. Yeah. And then uh, in Spain, it was also banned. Box office-wise, it did pretty good. It, it was the first Kubrick movie to, like, turn somewhat of a profit. It wasn't a hit or anything, mm-hmm. but it did okay. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. I would imagine, like, at that... So, in 57, I mean, a lot of those people who served in World War One probably were... So, some of them were probably the ones who were in charge of france and spain at those times you know like yeah like seeing the general di- like you know being a general and seeing that movie and going god damn it they got it right like they're they're just kind of like maybe he didn't mean to but i could see if you were uh someone from france you could be like pretty offended like they're making but us well, look like well some of us look like idiots yeah you know? well that's the thing about like basically from like every movie that it was his movie like spartacus we'll get to but it wasn't his movie but every movie that was his like starting in paths of glory was pushing some kind of boundary. Like mm-hmm. every single one was controversial. Every single one was like, you can't do this. Yeah, yeah. This is sucks. And but by doing that, you're pushing, you know, the fringes of our consciousness in terms of, you know, can, like what is allowed in a movie. You're pushing the limits with every single one. Mm-hmm. And that, that was like the that was that, that's that, that, that's why I think that Paths of Glory is the first Kubrick movie. Before Paths of Glory, Kubrick w- had written a script titled Burning Secret with Calder Will- Willingham. It was an adaptation of the 1913 novella by Stefan Zweig. Well, I'll just pretend I <laughs> knew <laughs> Let's what just pretend <laughs> you said that name right. <laughs> <laughs> MGM never made the movie, and the script was lost for 60 years until being found by Nathan Abrams, a film professor at Bangor University. Where do they, where do they find Like, <laughs> How does something like that go missing, and then they just find it somewhere? Like, yeah. It wasn't just in... <laughs> well, it's just like somebody puts it away. It's, uh, you know that scene at the end of Indiana Jones where like they put the the Ark of the Covenant yeah. in the box and it's like an entire warehouse. Mm-hmm. It's all you know, but um, so that that how that movie was described to me is basically this guy. It's like the reverse Lolita. So in Lolita, Humbert hum, Humbert Humbert marries or gets in. He he marries Charlotte Hayes because he wants to have sex with her fourteen year old daughter, right? 
But in this movie, it's about a guy who befriends a boy so he can have sex with her mar- his married mom. Mm. So it's like the reverse of Lolita. Um, that's all. I, that's all I know about it, basically. Mm-hmm. And then what? What was the other one? It was uh, One Eyed Jacks. Yes. He worked on that for like six months, with uh, Marlon Brando was gonna was gonna star in it or did star in it, but then like a week before filming, Kubrick was like, "No, nope, not doing this." this it could have been just creative, maybe because Brando and uh, Kubrick are such giant personalities, and also Sam Peckinpah was writing the script, who's a, like a has his own thing going on. Mm-hmm. So I imagine like it was probably some creative stuff. You when, know. Ar- around when was this that he was coming up with? Are these all in um, similar time periods? That yeah, like Burning Secret was like before Paths of Glory. Mm. So around like, let's say 56 and 57. And then uh, One-Eyed Jacks was, I think it was pretty close to Spartacus. Cause okay. Spartac- so, so he didn't want, and then yeah, he, wrote, he wrote the German lieutenant and that no, nobody wanted to, that, that basically is these guys who were, they had to like blow up a bridge or something like that. And it was a suicide mission. These German officers and then they're like we can't do this and then it just shows them after the war living like normal lives even though they were nazis mm-hmm. it nobody was that really one was the, l- the german lieutenant you yeah said? that was the german lieutenant mm-hmm. then let's get to spartacus spartacus 1960 a week into shooting spartacus actor producer kirk douglas fires director anthony mann and replaces him with kubrick Kubrick has a creatively frustrating experience. Yes, because like I said earlier, like Spartacus was never really a Kubrick movie because he came in so late. There was only so much that he can do. He talked about how he he you know had all these notes about the script, and at first they were like, "Oh yeah, yeah we agree, whatever." And then the further they got into production, the more they were like, "Yeah, we're not going to change anything." So Kubrick didn't film. Anthony Mann filmed like all the stuff in the. Uh, in the uh, uh, the desert when they were like out in the salt mines and stuff, that was that was Anthony Mann, and then Kubrick basically was everything after that, and and like the thing that's interesting about Spartacus is because it's not it's not a Kubrick movie, but it thrusted him into this giant because Paths of Glory, the budget for that was like, n- you know nine what nine hundred fifty thousand, and then the the budget for Spartacus was twelve million. Yeah, yeah, that's just like so. Another, and he, and he was working with he was budget. working with Lawrence Olivier, uh, he was working with like Charles Lawton and all these giant actors. Kirk, and, well, he already worked with Kirk Douglas, but it was this big giant cast with like these huge mm-hmm. veteran actors. And he did clash with the, some of them, where like he didn't like the acting style of Charles Lawton. Mm-hmm. But again, he didn't have. It was frustrating because he wasn't in the position that he was in other movies, or he was later in other movies where he's like, "I'm Kubrick, shut up, mm. do what I say." He he goes the 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 stuff in the. Uh, because basically it starts, Spartacus is a slave. He gets sent to like a gladiator academy, basically, where they train these slaves to be gladiators. And then he starts a rebellion. And then this le- he leads this whole rebellion across the country um, and then tries to, you know, and then he's basically killed. But that, that scene when, um, that's, this, that's a movie when they go, I'm Spartacus, and they all stand up. I'll never understand who the real Spartacus is after seeing that. <laughs> That's an office quote for you. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, it's almost like him doing this movie was a like a calculated but frustrating move for him. Like he 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 knew, in a sense, maybe hindsight's twenty twenty, but in a sense, he knew it would help spark something. Oh, oh definitely. Like it obviously, def- like it definitely. We'll get to that, but like it definitely gave him. Because now he's a direct, now he's a Hollywood director. Yeah, yeah. That can make a big, giant, successful movie. 
So during production, he has two kids. Oh yeah, that I mean, took that so makes, long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How, yeah, when, how when, when were they filming it? It should say, it should say there. Uh, they were filming it uh, January twenty seventh, nineteen fifty nine to July twelfth, nineteen fifty nine. All right. So, yeah. So this filming was how like you know what, what seven months? Yeah. But then editing kids. it took so long, and also the movie's like three hours and seventeen minutes. Mm-hmm. So I'd imagine it would take a long time. Yeah. Was that con- like? Are, were older movies like longer in that way, like three hours and seven? Well, I think it, it's you know fluctuates. like right now we have a lot of three-hour movies. Yeah, I think yeah. it comes in waves. Like if you go to like the '80s, you'll never find a three-hour movie. Mm. You know, it all depends. Like there's like that. There's a Napoleon movie that's like nine hours. Mm-hmm. You know, it's one and it's one movie. It's one like movie. No intermission. Or anything. <laughs> I don't. Know, I'm sure there's a couple. <laughs> <of intermissions. laughs> I would hope so. There's, a, there's, a, there's an intermission. <laughs> there's a, a intermission too, and then there's an inner. Oh my god! (laughs) And then it's a uh, cinematographer Richard Meddy talks shit on Kubrick. So there's more um, things that were giving him issues on set, I guess. Oh yeah, I remember this story. What was it? I don't know. (laughs) That's all it says. (laughs) It says, yeah, Richard Meddy was talking some some smack on our boy Kubrick. All right. I totally got that on the first try. I didn't have to look up what the yeah, Richard yeah. Meddy thing was. So what happened was, because Kubrick was just coming on set and being like, this is what we're going to do. And basically Kubrick told Meddy to just like sit there and do nothing. And Meddy was like, fuck this guy. Whatever. And then the movie came out, and then he won Best Cinematography. <laughs> so he, he was, was like, like so Richard right. Meddy won Best Cinematography, <laughs> even though Kubrick told him to do nothing. And he was like, actually, it was good. He's a good guy. He's a good guy. I like, I like him. It's, it's funny to think that he was like going around like, he's not letting me do anything. Like, I just want to work. And then once he wins, that he was like, I did it all. I, yeah, I, he's like, I did it. I did every second of it. I, I came up with Kubrick all of is it. an absolute genius. <laughs> he told me to do whatever I wanted. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so after it comes out, obviously they win a few Oscars. It's a critical hit. Yeah. Well, how many? What did it win? Four. Four Oscars, nominated for six. Yeah, and it was. I don't think he got best. I don't think he got nominated for director, right? It doesn't. Um, I I'm not sure All to right. be honest. But but uh, yeah, but box office wise, it does, it's the highest grossing movie of that year. It makes like sixty million dollars, which is however many. It, and also sixty million, given we don't they we don't really know reliable box office data until like the nineties. Yeah, maybe yeah. the eighties, right? Just a guess Everything before it's a guesswork because sometimes you have the domestic numbers and sometimes you don't have the worldwide. So. It makes sixty million, let's say, which is you know I'm sure hundreds of millions of dollars today. That's a lot of money today. That's a shit ton of money. Yeah. <laughs> so now, yeah. I would take sixty I million. Mean, yeah. <laughs> but um, but now Kubrick basically he was the Hollywood director, and he would he now he could have some power in choosing what stories he can tell, yeah. and instead of telling the ones that he can get away with telling. We have Lolita, 1962, with his new freedom in the industry. Kubrick chooses the super-controversial novel Lolita by Vladimir Nabokov as his next film project. Kubrick ends up co-writing the script with Nabokov. Yeah, I haven't read the book. I, I know either. the movie, I never really felt I, like I got it. I'm like, people, like, I see, I see David Lynch being like, that's my favorite Kubrick film, and I'm like, I don't understand why, the, what the, like, I don't understand what the gist is. I understand it's like a comedy and it's just showing how pathetic Humbert Humbert is, and the fact that his name is Humbert Humbert is already dumb. <laughs> yeah, that, <laughs> you know? that's the worst. So thing obviously ever. they're making fun of this guy, and I don't. I, I, I obviously haven't read the book, but what can I? I can tell from watching the movie two times is 
they're not obviously they're not condemning this guy because the whole movie is a joke on that guy and and James Mason is like the perfect casting because he's really good in other movies like he's a very good stern guy in other movies but in this movie he's such a pathetic loser smarmy whiny guy he has his whiny accent and uh he whenever he says beardsley college he goes beardsley college mm. and he he says stuff like that and it's like really funny do you do you mind running down a bit of the story i don't yeah so so basically humbert humbert is a french uh is a professor in french literature and he gets a job somewhere in ohio to 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 teach at beardsley college mm. and he takes a vacation in new hampshire for the summer and he's looking at houses <clears throat> and this lady, Charlotte Hayes, is like, here, here's my house. Here's how good it is. Please stay here. And he's like, oh, I don't know. And then he finds some, you know, 14-year-old girl sunbathing in the back. And he's like, nice. I want to stay here now. Mm. And that's Lolita, of course. Okay. And basically, the rest of the that act is basically him, like, trying to get to close to, to Lolita. He marries her mom. And so he becomes Lolita's stepdad, and then he's like, wait a minute, because he hates Charlotte. He's like, I cannot stand this woman. He's like, wait a minute, if I kill her, I can get custody of Lolita, and I can do whatever I want to her. Oof. But before he can kill her, she fi- she finds his journal, and for s- I don't know why you would write this in a journal, hey, I'm a pedophile here, read the journal now. But she reads that he his feelings for Lolita, and she gets hysterical and goes, fuck you, and then runs outside. And then she gets hit by a car and dies. Who the the mom? <laughs> the mom, yeah. <laughs> so that so she dies. So he doesn't have to kill her. He's, he's like, like nice. nice. <laughs> oh my <laughs> yeah, god. Dude, so so it's it's dumb. I mean, it's not. I'm not saying it's dumb like it's bad. Mm-hmm. It's dumb like it's funny. Yeah. Well, at least he's not a hypocrite. <laughs> <laughs> the worst, no. That's the worst part. <laughs> that's the worst part. No, no, no. But okay. Well, now I now I feel weird about saying it was a sexy book. <laughs> he, it was, it was, it was, came I came from ignorance. He didn't yeah, know what yeah, it was about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and in the book, she's 12. In the movie, she's. 14. Oh my! They had the people were people criticized it, saying she's not young enough. <laughs> Dog, who's the? You're fir- writing this down. You wrote down that she's not young enough. Yeah, what? Yeah, that's like, crazy. I also, mean, just, like, what did, did they think? Adding, like, uh, she's 14 now. It's better. Like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> who's the guy? Who's the first guy who had to come up? And <laughs> yeah, say, like, it's like 12. They're like, no. And he's like, 14. I don't know. So, <laughs> what do we got next for? Lolita? I mean, for some reason, the censors didn't like it. <laughs> yeah, the people they were like, you can't, you can't do. You weren't even allowed to show at some point, like the, like on TV. The first couple to be in bed together on TV was like in the seventies or sixties. It was crazy. So imagine that seems late. Yeah, really. I don't know if it was that late, but, but I mean, still, I mean, it's like the the, the Hayes Code was so stuff, annoying. I don't know when it stopped. I don't know if Lita was in the Hayes Code era, but censors for movies were always so annoying at the time. But I kind of liked what. Uh, what is the Hayes Code? I don't know. The Hayes Code is just like the original, you know, censorship rules for movies oh, okay. in the golden age of Hollywood. So it's like, obviously, there's no homosexuality. So that there's that Norm story where he talks about uh, there was like Red River, where John Wayne's character walks in and Montgomery's Cliff is like, "You like women?" He goes, "Yeah, I like women." He goes, "Do you like guns?" And he goes, "Yeah, I like guns." He's polishing the barrel of the gun, uh, all yeah. suggestively. He goes, "What you like better, guns or women?" And then the guy comes in and goes, "What the hell are we talking about here?" <laughs> like, that was the only gay stuff you were allowed to have in movies. That was the Hayes Code. Yeah. yeah, but I kind of like in Lolita because obviously you can't explicitly show him being a pedophile on screen because that'd be crazy. But what what Kubrick was forced to do because of the censorship was basically he had to imply everything visually. So all you would see instead of him. Like a narrator having, oh, I'm thinking about Lolita while having sex with my wife. It would be, he's in bed with the wife, 
and then you see the back of his head, her face is like, oh, Humbert, Humbert, hump me. Mm. <laughs> and, <laughs> and then you see, but the, then you see the back of his head, and then on the other side of the screen, you see a picture of Lolita. Yeah, yeah. So it suggests that he's looking at the picture of Lolita while he, and also, like, people were like, you can't do, people were so pissed about it. Didn't that. they make him shorten that even? Yeah, like I think that there was, there was that. The, he had to, they had the, the producer, I think it was still James B. Harris, maybe, he had to convince the censors, like, no, that's not the, what that is at all, or whatever. Mm. So I kind of like the movie in that in terms of, like, it kind of forces it to kind of be a little subversive in terms mm. of the imp- the implications of stuff. Mm-hmm. And then, the like I guess in the 60s, this is sort of a big crush to be condemned by the Catholic Church as well. Oh, yeah, the movie was condemned, which is kind of ironic in hindsight. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> you're like, why? Well, why could it be? I'm not ironic? one of those people who shits on the Catholic Church all <laughs> yeah, the time, yeah, but yeah. It, they mm. dropped the ball on that one for sure. Yeah, yeah, certain parts. Um, yeah. But they're like, yeah, you can't do Lolita. This is terrible. But I, I don't, like, again, I don't know what it's like, with, like, when I say, like, Kubrick is pushing the boundaries with certain movies. I always know, like, okay, with with Clockwork Orange, he was pushing the boundary in this direction. With this, he was pushing it in this direction. With Lolita, I know that he was had like he had a handle on some kind of boundary. I just didn't know exactly what he was doing with it. Maybe I need to watch it again. Maybe I need to read the book. Mm-hmm. I just don't understand the whole gist of I the mean, movie. Do you think? Do you think that he was consciously saying, "I want to"? take this boundary and push it or he like he just ended up doing that by the stories and how he writes stories like maybe maybe this is just uh in terms of his thinking that because at the time it was a number one selling book too so maybe he just thought number one selling book i'll just you know that'll be a good, good successful movie too so let's just do it and then in turn him doing that it just pushes some brown some boundary that i mean the, the boundary there is totally just like whatever that that day's FCC use the Hayes code or whatever. I guess that's the same like that times FCC. That's like I guess he's pushing that boundary. Like what what can I do here? Yeah, in exactly. terms of well, he he said afterwards like if I had known how big the restrictions would have been, I wouldn't have made the movie. Yeah, but I mean, you're probably right in terms of like he was drawn to doing this stuff. I don't know if it's subconsciously. That's just the stories he thought were worthwhile. Or ones mm-hmm. that he's like, I don't know where the boundary is here. I don't know what's what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Or maybe he just wanted to do that. He was doing it. I don't know. But yeah. it's just interesting to know that he did. But I do think, I, th- I think Lolita is his least successful movie. And I think in, in terms of getting ob- as objective as possible in saying that, because obviously everything's subjective. If you look at The Shining, The Shining is, you know... It's not. It's not The Shining, the book written by Stephen King. It's The Shining, the movie by Stanley Kubrick. Mm-hmm. When you say The Shining, they go, "Oh, the movie by Stanley Kubrick." They don't say the book. Yeah. By when you know we say A Clockwork Orange, it's A Clockwork Orange by Stanley Kubrick rather than A Clockwork Orange by Anthony Burgess, right? But with Lolita, it's still Lolita by Vladimir Nabokov rather than by Stanley Kubrick. Mm-hmm. So I think, and I, I there was a guy. I think it, there's, there's a great thing on YouTube. It's like a three hour long thing. Called Kubrick's books, and it's just this guy who goes. He read all the Kub- all the books that Kubrick based his movies off of, and then watched the movie and documented like how they're different. And that was one of the things he said, where like Lolita isn't in the same pantheon as the rest of his movies. Like it never succeeded the the level of the book. So this is his last film that he does in the U.S. Yeah. Yes. So the, the, he this was like part parts of this were filmed in the U.K. and parts of it were filmed in the U.S. Um, but the way he saw it was like, all right, <coughs> there's three production centers in the world where I can make movies. 
Los Angeles is the best one, but I hate living there. New York, I like living there, but it's the worst one between uh, Los Angeles work, and England. There, right? So he goes to London, and he's like, London is the best mix of I like living there, and uh, mm. they have the best the in their production level. And also, he talks about like I'm already there. By the by, by the time 2001 came around, he was done with that. He's like, I thought about moving back, but like I have dogs. They have to be in a six month quarantine if they go to another country. My kids went or have friends. They went to school, so he kind of just stayed here. Mm-hmm. You know. Doctor Strange Love or How I Learned to Stop <laughs> Worrying or Love the Bomb, 1964. Okay, after Lolita. It's the summer of 1963, the height of the Cold War. Kubrick reads Red Alert by Peter George and starts researching to adapt the book with with the author. During pre-production, the Cuban Missile Crisis occurs in October of 1963. Which is crazy to think about. Like, imagine writing a movie about nuclear war, and then, like, nuclear war almost happens as you're writing it. You're like, shit, 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 I gotta write faster. (laughs) (laughs) Like, he probably was on TV. He probably was, like, writing and then saw on TV, just went... (laughs) (laughs) but the interesting thing about that is because red alert was like they played straight in the in the book basically it's like just showing how nuclear war could happen accidentally mm-hmm. and in the book it's very straight laced and like it's this horrible horrific thriller and kubrick was originally going to adapt it for that he hired the author uh who, who was it um peter, peter george. george and he and then he started co-writing the script with him and then they, James B. Harris talks about, I think it was James B. Harris, talks about, he goes, yeah, and all of a sudden we're like shooting shit late at night, you know, we just start throwing out ideas, and one of us goes, what if we just like, you know, what if we did this scene comedically, like, oh, they throw pies at each other or something like that, and they're like, ah, ha, ha, no, but no, but seriously, we gotta keep it straight, and then, like, however many weeks later, James B. Harris goes off for a few weeks, and then he gets a call from Cooper going, yeah, I think we should make it a comedy. And James B. Harris is like, God damn it. <laughs> so, and it makes sense, because Kubrick, he read everything on the spectrum in terms of nuclear like the game theory of nuclear war and stuff like that all the theories and stuff and he was like at the end of the day like this mutually assured destruction like when you get to the extremes of nuclear war it's very very funny and he just he made a uh, a judgment call where he's like all right let's make it funny and that's just very interesting how it started coming about as something he he couldn't express it uh, straight. He just had to do it comedically. That's something that happens. Like, whereas, like, they've read a movie and they're like, the third act is funny. What the hell is going on? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, it's just because maybe. Do you think? Do you think that person saying the the thing where we should just do it funny like sparked something in him, or he just realized later on? Well, it's just he. I'm, I'm sure that was the moment where he was like, huh. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. then he started thinking about it more and more and more, and then until he couldn't see the movie mm-hmm. as not a comedy. Yeah, which is something he's known for doing. Like he'll he. He was like a bit of a control freak, but he would take, he would listen to other people's ideas. Yeah, he wouldn't, people think he's like this, you know, dic- dictator, oppressive dictator on set who was like, no, we're going to go in the script. I wrote the script. It's perfect. Shut up about it. He would, if somebody, if you had an idea, he would always be like, all right, let's try it. Yeah, yeah, We're going to yeah. do 500 takes for everything anyway. Yeah, well, like, why not? Let's yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. He was very collaborative. It would be funny if he like had done so many takes of this movie where there's like a serious version of it and just like a super funny <laughs> yeah, movie. Yeah, right. <laughs> he has two cuts. That would be funny. The Cooper cut crazy and then the, the phony Cooper cut. Like halfway through. Uh, Alright, let's get funny with it. Yeah, <laughs> let's get funny with it. <laughs> I feel like that's something he would say yeah. too. Like based off other things he said, you know, yeah. to I mean, people. Like, yeah, like just he, give me magic. Or so, you he know, would like, always do something crazy. Like he would just tell the actors like do something brilliant. 
Mm-hmm. And then, like, on Full Metal Jacket, he was just asking Matthew Modine, like, how do you think the movie should end? Like, he just didn't care <laughs> or, like, what it, about what he wrote. He was just like, what, what do you think? Which movie was that? Sorry. Full Metal Jacket. Full, oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> just, yeah. like, you're just on the set, like, dude, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> We've been filming for six months. <laughs> I don't know. I haven't thought about it. <laughs> Nobody's thought yeah. about it. Like, okay, this, this interests, interests me. Uh, Peter Sellers was paid a million dollars which is more than half the budget. Kubrick is quoted saying, I got three for the price of six. Yeah, that's correct. That's because, uh, but also, Sellers did have three roles in the movie. He played Dr. Strangelove, and then he played uh, President uh, Muffley, and then he played uh, Colonel Mandrake. Okay, yeah. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I guess he did earn his money, and he's really funny oh. in the movie. Uh, there was an ending that was cut along with the throwaway line about Dallas that was redubbed. Yeah, so so Slim Pickens, because the movie was filmed in 63, and Slim Pickens, there was a line where, also, he was in the movie. You know who Slim Pickens is? No. He was this guy, he was this guy back in the day who would, you know, we're going down here, and we're going to fly this plane. If you look in your, you know, your, your survival packs, we got lipstick, we got a Russian phrase Bible, mm-hmm. and uh, he would like, talk like that. So Kubrick was just like, just play it straight. He didn't even, like, barely knew it was a comedy. <laughs> so, um, but anyway, so there's a line where he's going through the survival pack, and it's like, it starts off like, okay, we got, you know, 500 rubles, we got $100, we got this, we got that. And then he goes, we got lipstick. He goes, we got one Russian phrases slash Bible. And it's like this little thing. It's like he just starts naming funny stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's like it's like how it's like a suitcase full of stuff in this little thing. But then he goes, hey, a fella can have you know a, a good weekend in Vegas yeah, with all this stuff. And that was dubbed over because it was originally it was Dallas. A, good, a fella could have good stuff in da- a good weekend in Dallas. And they filmed that before JFK got his head blown off in Dallas. Oh my god. <laughs> so and then there was a cut ending where. Um, there was a cut ending where uh, it ends with all the guys in the war room throwing pies at each other. And you can find footage of this. Or not footage, but at least you could find the, the production stills of all of them just throwing pies at each other. And then Kubrick was like, all right, we might be getting too... Maybe less is more. This might be getting too obvious. Like there was a... Too s- why, that there was a what? That there was a... Po- like, all right, let me explain the story. So basically, uh, this guy, Jack Ripper... General Jack D. Ripper <laughs> it, uh, basically just starts launching nukes at Russia. And then uh, <laughs> and then he just won't give it. He will not give them the codes to stop the nukes or uh, stop the nukes. And then it's basically just all these people like, you know, s- you know uh, scrambling and trying to figure it out. <clears throat> and but what happens in the end is um, the 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 code reader thing on the plane gets like shot by Russian planes. So they're still going. They call off. They're able to call off a bunch of planes, and they still go. And then they just drop the bomb on Russia, and then the world blows up because there's a doomsday device where, mm-hmm. it, as soon as the nuke launches and gets explodes, it just kills everybody on Earth. Yeah. So at the end, they they explain all the guys in the war room are like, well, you know, uh, we should live in the 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 mine shafts. Like we can actually live down there pretty well. And the half life of this doomsday device is only ninety six years. So in a generation or two, we'll be back or whatever. And they just start planning, and they're already getting in fights with Russia. It's like the Russians are going to be right more ready than us during the mine shafts in a hundred years. It's like that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Because they talk about like we need you know nuclear, uh, that we cannot have a nuclear gap, like the, the technology gap. And then General Turgenson, George C. Scott goes, we cannot have a mine gap, <laughs> like stuff like that. So they just shift it over to right. the next thing, like. And then that scene progresses into a giant pie fight, and Cooper cut that. 
And I think that ending works better because this is the first Kubrick movie where if you look at most of his movies, they're mostly partly talking about the relationship between sex and violence. Mm-hmm. And what like what something in Kubrick's movies, like you think s- sex and violence would be at the two opposite ends of a spectrum. But what he shows in his movies is that it's like basically a circle where you have like, you know, I guess neutral territory over here. And then you have violence, then you have sex, and then they meet at the bottom and they cross over, right? In uh, Dr. Strangelove, the first instance of that is when the the guys in the plane, they get the, they get the code to launch the nukes. And they go, all right, here it is, nuclear war. And like nu- the, the last beat of that sequence is we're going to nuclear war. And then it immediately cuts to some hot girl on a bed, right? Mm. And General Turgidson is like, hey, I got to go. He gets called in, right? And then he goes, hey, I got to go. I'll be back or whatever. And uh, he makes it a reference to the nukes and, like, sexual intercourse. He goes, before you can say, blast off or whatever. Oh, yeah. And then uh, later when we find out why Jack D. Ripper launched the nukes, uh, he talks about, he goes, Mandrake's like, where did you find this theory about, you know, the Russians and their conspiracy? And he goes, he goes well, Mandrake, I... Uh, Came aware of it during the physical act of love. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he he goes, I this uh, extreming this extreme feeling of fatigue, and he goes, they interrupted my fluids by their with their fluoridation of their water, and he you know he basically connects that to I need to destroy up uh, destroy the entire world or whatever, and then when the nukes go off at the end, that final scene when they're on the war room, the f- their first thing is like, all right, we'll go into the mine shafts, and then their first thing they're coming up with is, uh. Oh well, you know we, w- we we do need to keep the population going, and you know certain breeding protocols are going to require that each man gets you know ten young, attractive, yeah. you know fertile women. Now, so it's like, dude, the first thought is just how can I get some? Right, exactly. So <laughs> yeah. you're you're seeing like you know you're seeing sex and violence overlap. There's like the most there's like the most uh, primitive form of it in Kubrick's movies in Doctor Strangelove, and then once we get to something like uh, Clockwork Orange, it's yeah. like mm-hmm. crazy, and then. Full metal back to f- and then Full Metal Jacket does the same thing. So that that's what it pri- that's what mostly interests me about um about Doctor Strange Love. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think it's one of his best. Like people say, it's great. I think it's really really good. There's something about it that doesn't resonate me. There's another movie, um, Failsafe, that was coming around ar- coming out around the same time. You watch the two movies together, exact same thing. Beat for beat, it's like it's like they had the same script and then just filmed it serious and then filmed it comedically. Mm. It's o- it's almost the same thing. And the failsafe was directed by Sidney Lumet, and I actually like failsafe better than Doctor Strange. Than Doctor Strange Love. Kubrick. Kubrick was like, all right, he, when he heard when he heard about failsafe, he was like, all right, we got to make sure uh, Doctor Strange Love releases before failsafe. Doctor Strange Love becomes a big cl- classic, and then mm. failsafe kind of fell into obscurity. But I actually like it better. I watched that going, holy shit, yeah, that went like hard. That slapped. That went hard in the paint. And I that was it was it was from 1964, but I'm sitting at home being like, oh my god, you know. And but I there's something about there's something about Doctor Strangelove that just hasn't connected with me as fully as it should. Like I recognize that it's a great movie and on paper that it works. Mm-hmm. And there's lines that I like from it like a, a lot. Like my, my my favorite line is the president's on the phone with the Russian prime minister or the premier, and uh, that he's drunk. The Russian guy, he, he's like, Dimitri, uh, Dimitri, uh, well, my generals did something a little funny. He went a little funny in the head, and he, well, I, I'll tell you what he did. He ordered our planes to strike your cities. <laughs> well, let me finish, Dimitri. 
As if the guy's supposed to be like, yeah, like, okay, keep going, let me know. Exactly. There's so many lines like that that I'm like, that's great. Uh But as a whole, there's something, there's something stopping me from just enjoying Mm -hmm. it more. I'm not sure what it is, but I recognize, I Mm -hmm. I appreciate, you know. Yeah. It could just be partially the times, like, because when that movie came out, I mean, there might be a reason why the failsafe faded into obscurity or relative obscurity. And then Strange Love, uh, like other than the fact that it's directed by Stanley Kubrick, it might have just been that that's what people needed yeah. instead of like a serious like reminder, like you might actually die. Like yeah. you, you get some sort of like a co- co- comedic value out of yeah. it. Or that's a good point. Like they, f- they spent all, all they, sp- they already spent all day going, fuck, fuck, fuck. They don't know. Yeah, they don't need yeah, to go exactly. to the theater and pay to do that. They could just go to Strange Love and be like, well, laugh, laugh, laugh. Mm, but it's kind of funny. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of funny. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's a good point. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, What's, it's, what, what? it's sort of just like a natural thing to like find humor in like bad situations. Well, yeah, I Kubrick guess. was the best at finding humor in extreme situations, mm-hmm. especially so, like cynical and irreverent humor. Yeah, so uh, it releases. It's super controversial, as is any other movie that he released, and it, uh, it's a critical hit and commercial hit. Yes, so I made a lot of money D- domestically. It says on the internet nine point two million off a budget of 1.8 mm-hmm. again it's 64 we don't know exactly how much money it made yeah. um but commercially it does well critically it gets good reviews but it's also another controversial thing we're like uh, obviously by today's standards we're like holy shit or no no by by then standards they were like holy shit you cannot do this but by today it seems a little bit tame it's like yeah of course why you know we haven't thought about nuclear war in 30 years that you know the soviet union mm-hmm. fell dude and, and obviously now we're starting to get a little bit worried about it Especially about Oppenheimer. Yeah, Oppenheimer came out, and um, we're all like, "Wait a second! Wait a minute! I care about it again." <laughs> so, Insert that face. Yeah, so. but back then it's like you can't do this because like yeah, people yeah. were like, "The world at stake," and you're gonna play. We'll mm. meet again as the world blows up. That's mm. crazy. Yeah, yeah. Again, Kubrick is pushing the boundary. Yeah, people. It's probably like this a similar thing of when. Uh, What's the Seth Rogen movie that came out? The dicta- No, not The Dictator. The one where they were like, you might piss off North Korea with this one. Oh, The Interview. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's yeah, probably yeah. like similar to yeah, that. Yeah, honestly, yeah, that's, a good, that's mm-hmm. actually a good comparison. There was an interview with like Obama when that happened. And he was like, I wish they would have like asked me <laughs> <laughs> if it was okay. Yeah, like, I, w- I really wanted the cameo. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, he wasn't. He's, he's like, I wish they would have asked me if I could be in he's the like, movie. God damn it, you gave it to Eminem. I wanted to come out as gay. <laughs> <laughs> It's funny. Uh, I'm not coming out, though. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, and also, the studio lost the original film negative. Yeah, Cooper <laughs> talked about it. I think in, there was like a 1987 interview with Tim Cahill. I think it was that one, where he says, yeah, they lost the original negative, so I had to, like, go and help them put it together using, like, duplicate negatives that they got. So, like, the original, like, we, we're never seeing the original film negative. We're seeing the, du- the duplicates, the second-generation films. Oh, for oh, so there's no like, I, yeah, I guess there's no digital copy. Obviously, right. I didn't well, even think about well, that. What they do like, is they make digital copies from like with a lot of movies, especially like yeah. w- movies from like the '70s that were you know not lost to history. They would make the digital copies from the original negatives, but they only had the copies that they gave to theaters because they're not going to give theaters the original negative, right? Yeah. But yeah. I don't know how they lost it. It's just something gets lost. People make a rounding error wrong in like the. In some and an XL, whatever XL was back then, a yeah. typewriter. Yeah, but just a piece of paper. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. There's there's too much fucking cigarette smoke in front of their yeah, faces. Yeah, Is that yeah, a one? Like, Who uh, cares? Ship whatever. it. Yeah, it's got. You think they sent it somewhere? Or no, I don't know. I was just making yeah. a joke. Or somebody just ruined it and was like, 
Uh, yeah, somebody just stepped on it. It was like, I'm going to make some sh- high heels out of this bad boy. Yeah. I'm going to melt this down. <laughs> make, me, make myself, make my wife some new stilettos. We're in the, this is the big enchilada. If you, uh, yeah, if you want to say so. I, mean, I know it's the big enchilada because I got these notes in my hand. Yeah, this is you the got big the one. notes and everything. I don't want to mess this one up. I don't want to. I don't either. want to mess this one up like we did with the killing, <laughs> and <laughs> and every other movie before yeah, the rest of this podcast. <laughs> no, but the, these movies are, I guess, how would you say, a little bit bigger. I feel like I feel like Kubrick's career is, like I said, Paths of Glory is the first Kubrick movie, but I think if you could split his career in two, yeah. it would be in between Doctor Strange Love and Two Thousand One. Some people may argue. The two thousand or Doctor Strange Love should be included on the later, the latter half instead of the earlier one. But let's just say it's around two thousand one to uh, in between that and Doctor Strange Love. So you already said it, but two thousand one, A Space Odyssey, nineteen sixty eight. After reading the work of sci fi author Arthur C. Clarke, Kubrick calls up Clarke and tells him that he wants to make the proverbial science fiction movie. I will say this is this kind of started the first trend of. Kubrick basically doing the complete opposite because to, uh, obviously Doctor Strange was like this irreverent cynical comedy right and it just talked about how there's no hope for humans to survive this nuclear age we're all going to die blah 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 and 2001 he completely pivots to this sort of I guess hopeful in the end space odyssey giant thing where it's kind of humans have overcome the nuclear age, and now they're just a commodity just like anything else. We've mastered our control over uh, nukes. And I really think that's interesting. How he, he always, and then, and then Clockwork Orange, he completely pivots to ultraviolence, and this is, mm-hmm. he, he just, he would never do the same thing twice. Mm-hmm. He, go, he would make a movie and go, what's the farthest thing I can do from the one I just did? Mm-hmm. And so the, the screenplay for 2001 uh, was off a short story Clark wrote called The Sentinel. Yeah, The Sentinel was about, it was a short story about all these, uh, this higher intelligence, like le- leaving these objects on other planets and stuff like that. And Kubrick took that and was like, all right, let's make something off of this. And they and the, it was interesting because they, Clark like co-wrote the screenplay, but while he was co-writing the screenplay, he was also writing the novel. So if you watch the movie, it says based off the novel by Arthur C. Clarke, but the novel, came, it was like almost like a novelization of the movie. Like, Kubrick was like, you can't put that in the novel. Like, he was basically directing the book that Arthur, Arthur C. Clarke wrote. That's an interesting way to write it's a novel. It's weird, yeah. Like, be like, and so, the, yeah. write something down and have Kubrick be like, no, nah, I'm going to use that. I, was it like that? Like, well, he would see it and be like, no, nah, I'm going to use Well, he would that. write down an idea. Like, it was sort of him writing the screenplay for that was informing the novel. He's like, oh, we can't do that. Well, it's not in the screenplay. I can't mm. do it. Like, he would only be able to add stuff. He wasn't able to change stuff. Like, one of the earlier things was... Uh, originally the monolith was going to be like a a pyramid and it was going to have like a TV on it just showing them how to use bones and stuff and like clank tools together and and Mm -hmm. they were like that's kind of cheesy and dumb oh okay and then they moved to just the monolith this weird ominous thing and you don't know how it's working it's just like Zaps them into the next generation almost. Yeah, like it gives the them a big old zap, and you can see their skeleton. It doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't (laughs) zap them, but there's definitely that moment where. It seems as though it drives them towards the next thing. Yeah, yeah. It's it's, like a, it's basically yeah. It's like one. It, it's 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 influencing their evolution. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. For sure. 
Mm-hmm. What's in the, what, what else we got next? It's a, well, I wanted to talk about how, like, the beginning, like, from my understanding of what I thought, going into what I thought the movie was going to be, like, where it starts. Just yeah. in the... <laughs> yeah, the dawn of man. Yeah, twenty minutes the, of monkeys. Yeah, yeah, which is so cool. Like, I loved all of that stuff. Yeah, I thought it was amazing. And it's, like, it, everything is so primordial, and like the 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 cheetah, the big cat, just his eyes are just white and glowing. You're like, why is his eyes glowing? It's like I don't know, but it, it probably would have felt like that back then. Yeah, yeah. If you're exactly. just in the you know mm-hmm. in the 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 Sahara Desert, just like shit, shit, shit. I need mm-hmm. food. There's this thing trying to kill me. It depicts like such a simple and empty time in his in human history mm-hmm. and it's it's just interesting because like it probably was like you know some things like this is the part where joe rogan would be like yo you ever heard uh the stoned ape theory oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> i mean it it probably was like simple things like that got a certain group ahead by just learning to use like a, a tool oh yeah definitely you know? <laughs> well that, that's what that's the whole cut of when it cuts to the dawn of man to 2001 you, the, the, the cut of when he throws the bone that's like a, that's like the best edit of all time mm-hmm. so he throws the bone in the air and then it cuts to the satellite up in space yeah and, and that's like actually that a nuke it does, it's in, the, in the book you can tell it's a nuke in the movie there's not a lot of stuff to tell you that it, it is a nuke but I think it is mm. and so it's basically going it's man going from his first weapon to his last yeah nuke, interesting you know? yeah yeah I didn't yeah. Know, I didn't catch that it was a nuke that's an yeah. interesting that's an interesting little thing. And then, so we get into the visual effects of the film, which yes. just like hold up even today. And maybe not like a hundred percent, but right. it still well, is pretty in cool. The, in the opening, like every, anytime you're seeing these giant planetoids like lining up, and st- it's it looks fantastic. It still looks great. Like mm-hmm. it doesn't look fake. Um, and this is all they also did it before they knew what Earth looked like from space. Sixty-eight. Yeah. So like they like, knew, like they went into space with that, but nobody was really sure. Um, but I think some of the stuff of the the, the spaceships orbiting uh, look a little, you know, they that they look a little outdated, except for the one of the space station that's spinning. Mm, when yeah. that thing looks a hundred percent real, yeah, yeah, it does not look fake at all. As opposed to like the ship that um, uh, uh, Haywood is riding in that pointy looking guy. Mm-hmm. And that looks that looks weird, but that ship looks fantastic. And then there's just there's like a throwaway shot of the Discovery later in the movie, just floating through space, and you see these two asteroids go over the camera, mm. and they look fantastic. And nobody mm. ever talks about that. That's like exactly how an asteroid would look, you know. Mm. That and that's why like the budget the budget was originally like eight million. MGM was like, all right, we'll give you eight, and then it went up to twelve million because they just the the the, it, the visual effects in this are so complicated. And the stuff they did, it was like a twelve-step plan. Like every little uh, screen you'd see, like every every module in a ship or like a, a room had its own separate projector being lined mm. up, and they all had to play in conjunction with each other. It was so unbelievably complicated. The visual effects. It's incredible. Like some of the effects done in that, like the fa- it's almost like the FaceTime that he has with his kid. Oh, like the Zoom call, yeah. The Zoom call type of thing, like. That's incredible. That's like scarily accurate. Impression, yeah. I mean, it's it's obviously like pretty obvious how it would end up, but it's pretty accurate on how it actually is now. Yeah. You know, like camera right there. Like obviously the camera's. And you don't even there, have to pay it. Like you don't have to pay a dollar seventy five. It's just free. Yeah, on yeah. This little telephone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But so the well, the how did you how did you feel like the stuff in the in, in like in the discovery sequences in terms of the the visual effects, like the stuff where they're going around. The 
when what is it called the 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 main room in the discovery the thing mm-hmm. that's like a giant circle and you see you see uh david bowman come down through the ladder and the other guys on the other side and you see him walk up You're yeah like, what the, like mm-hmm. what was your what was your thoughts on like all that stuff well see that to me is incredible too because i mean i'm sure at the time when it was first released like they take a lot of time to show all this stuff. Like it takes a long time, and you're right. like, "What is going on?" I could see why in 1968 you're like, "Why?" Or like, "Wow, like this is incredible." Right. But now that we know how space, wor- like yeah, space works a little bit more, it seems slow. It see it could I could see how it would seem slower, but I loved it because I was putting myself in that mind frame. Yeah. But also, it's pretty incredible to think that they kind of had an idea. Like it would. Ha- to be in space, you'd have to have something rotating to stay. Yeah. Like have a gravitational, right? Like I'm yeah, pretty you, sure you that's have to have how it would work. In order to have gravity or whatever. Which is incredible that yeah. they knew that. I mean, I don't know. Like well, obviously, he probably would have scientists like helping right. him figure that kind of stuff out. But the concepts of it were. All they had was just math equations. Yeah. They, they, they were like, all right, this is probably what mm-hmm. it is. You know, same thing with like the, 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 the lunar surface and, and stuff. Like. There was a lot of stuff that they had to just get guess mm-hmm. based off of the best science, and there's not a lot of stuff they got wrong, except no. for like the Stargate sequence. You Wh- know, what's the Stargate? That's sequence? like the that's, that's the crazy trip at the end. Yeah, yeah, but that's Which is obviously yeah. That's like the interstellar moment. How do we even know if that's right? <laughs> like, yeah, who knows? Yeah. I do it every night there, when I eat those funny plants outside my house. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what you say? <laughs> I said I do that every night. Every time I eat those funny plants outside my house. <laughs> <laughs> That's just cow poop. (laughs) (laughs) Cow poop with ergot on it. (laughs) No, dude. I mean, there's things in the movie where it's like, even watching it recently, I'm like, that probably might be what it's like when we get to take shuttles to the moon. Yes. Like, that actually... It's like this weird corporate... It's like taking the bus to go to the moon. Like, nobody... He's not looking out the window going... He's just like, all right, I'm just going to read this dumb fucking TV Mm -hmm. in my lap, you know? Mm -hmm. I'm sleeping. Yeah, there's just people sleeping. Like the vel was, this is probably a stupid question. Velcro was developed in 1968, right? Was it in or was it by 19? I don't know. I don't know. Like I'm, I'm trying to remember it because in this movie they have like things that are like the way like the grip, grip shoes, the yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, and obviously it's showing the way they're walking is showing that they're pulling the Velcro yeah. or whatever it is off. So yeah, and it's like we don't, and just like the little throw, like we don't to understand this movie, we don't need to see that. He can zoom his daughter on her dumb birthday, and she wants a dumb bush baby. What's a bush baby? We never know. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. We don't need to see that, but it's like the perfect little mm-hmm. thing to just illustrate the world at that point. Mm-hmm. You know, she's like, "Can I have a bush baby?" He's like, "Oh, let's see." Like, what the fuck is that? There's one. There's one part of the movie where I wish for one more second they like he held off because they go. It's like I got it's small thing, but it's just like cool to show how like used they are to living in it. Yeah, they're just mid conversation talking about like. Like, oh, we found this crazy thing. Who wants coffee? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he gets to the point where he's about to pour the coffee. I'm like, how is the coffee going to act in the spaceship? And then they just cut away. I'm like, no. Yeah. Like, I well, they're on the moon, so it would pour a little bit. Yeah, there yeah. There's a thing slower, where they couldn't, they like couldn't replicate. That's another. Th- that's, I guess, one thing I got wrong is that they couldn't replicate how walking on the moon would be because they didn't know yet. Yeah, like, They yeah. knew it would be less gravity, so they kind of try to act like mm-hmm. they kind of just pretend to be fat people. <laughs> like, yeah, they're kind of yeah. just like, whoa. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, it's not, they're not like bouncing and skipping around, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. But I think all that stuff is great. Mm-hmm. And the score, I mean, the score. Oh, yeah. Well, was he amazing. actually, there was, there was a guy named Alex North and Kubrick hired him to do the score. And Kubrick was like, no, nah, 
so he just used all a, a classical music from like Leggetti and shit like that. That mm-hmm. weird yelling of people going, oh, 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 and you're like, oh my God, that's so scary. <laughs> I, that was the most terrifying <laughs> thing. I had to watch it with headphones on, uh-huh. and I was like, I had to like turn it down a little yeah. bit. I was like, I'm getting spooked out yeah, a little dude, bit. I remember like, the first time I watched so that tense, movie, I was like, like in a dark room, and I'm like, I was so close to turning on the lights, and I'm like, don't mm-hmm. do it. Bless yeah, you. yeah. Cause, Cause, you're thinking like I'm thinking in my head. I'm like, I'm gonna go to sleep later and like hear this. Yes. And I'm gonna be like, I can't sleep. Like, just imagine waking up in a room and that noise yeah. is going. Oh. oh. <laughs> you're like, is that the wind or is that ghost <laughs> screaming? How do you direct? How do you like when they're recording something like that? They're like, you scream, scream, oh, scream a little, little more. Yeah. <laughs> they just like pinch them on the. They just, <laughs> they just pinch them with tweezers on the butt. Oh. oh. <laughs> <laughs> that's what it sounds like it's just so spooky like yeah yeah that that's like that also it's like something i i don't think i've heard in many other like in terms of a score yeah like other movies i've never like, heard any like screaming like maybe yeah. there is but not like there's, not there's to like that level some movies have like the like the throat singing in uh dune i know the godzilla used that same piece of music from 2001 the, oh, they used it for the trailer mm-hmm. remember that but you know. They use the same one. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. interesting. Okay, so that brings us to. Well, I want to talk about. I want to give some credit to Douglas Trumbull. He was the visual effects guy. Yeah, he was like the legendary mm-hmm. landmark guy. Mm-hmm. And there was a there was a story about him where he was basically just like playing around, you know, doing some visual effects stuff. And he he did like a time lapse thing, like a long exposure on his camera. So the camera apertures opened. For long exposure, and then he moves stuff past the frame, and that's how you get that stretchy, yeah, you know, effect. And then he called Kubrick, and he was like, "Hey, I think I figured it out." And then Kubrick looked at it, and he was like, "All right, keep going." Yeah, just yeah, like where you're going with that. And you know, the the thing that sucks though is that there was no visual effects like category, I guess, at the Oscars for like the cre- like the director would get it. Like Kubrick won the Oscar for best visual effects, not Douglas Trumbull. Yeah, which is crazy. And then I guess they they updated it, which is nuts. That's the only Kubrick. That's the only Kubrick. Uh, the Oscar won. That was the only Oscar that Kubrick won for vis- the visual effects for two thousand one. Even though I guess D- Douglas Trumbull was like the head guy, mm-hmm. or at least one of them. Mm-hmm. But I mean, either way, like seeing that guy talk about it, like, I mean, he seems pretty proud. Obviously, like I would be super. Oh yeah, because every, well, everybody knows he he just like I'm sure everybody like he knows that everybody knows that he was the guy. Everybody, like, Kubrick and him were, like, the two guys who were, like, all right, this is... And also, like, there's... They have they have these projectors on the TVs, and then they have this thing spinning around in the background. There's, like, 14 layers to some shots. You're, like, oh, my God, that was probably a nightmare to make. And that's why the budget went up, because there's just so many components. And then on top of having all these projectors in the same spot, and then, you know, the background of the planets have to be moving, you have to make the entire set, like, turn and stuff. Like, the ladies walking and the whole set turns, like, how do they do that? There's that scene where the, the with uh, Frank and David Bowman walk down the tunnel and then they step into the thing and then they start like it's, so the tunnel that they were walking in is steady and then the tunnel that they're going to step into is spinning. The moment they both step into the spinning tunnel, that stops and then the camera yeah. starts spinning and you're mm-hmm. like, oh my god, mm-hmm. it's seamless. Yeah. So. And who who voiced the uh, Hal? I don't know. You Originally, don't know? it was like Martin Balsam, and then it was another mm. guy. Whoever did I forget. it. Oh, dude. Amazing. Like that. I'm going to look that up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was. You know, funny thing about that, if you go on ChatGPT and you type in, open the pod bay doors, Hal, 
chat GPT goes, I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid <laughs> I can't do that, which is like, oh, that's funny. He gets that joke or is it like, or is he, yeah. is oh, this like funny. a sign? Yeah, yeah. It's just Hal coming back. But yeah, like you can tell from the tone of the, of hi- of the robot or uh, of Hal, like right away, you're like, I don't trust this guy. Oh yeah. It's like that perfect monotone, like Douglas Rain. That's what it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, okay, moving on. Moving on? No, not moving on oh. from... Wor- no, I was like, I want to talk about 2001, <laughs> how dare you? I want to talk about... I still want to talk about... So, there's an uh, exhibitor screening. Oh, yeah, so the movie... 2001. Mov- yeah, so the movie's, like, taking forever. And there's an exhibitor screening where, like, big people in Hollywood are at the screening. I think Rock Hudson was there. And they start playing the movie, and 241 people walked out. And Kubrick, apparently... Like Jack Nicholson goes, he told me that 241 walked out. And I know that he was at the door counting everybody who walked out because he needed to be sure. That night, Cooper was like, oh, my God, I am ruined. Like, mm-hmm. his wife, Christiane, said that, like, his he lost his voice. He was just like, oh, my God, what have I done? And uh, and then the movie starts playing for, like, a week or two. And it's getting, like, bad reviews. And actually, no, the premiere, yeah, so at that premiere, after that premiere, he cuts 19 minutes of footage. Mm. And then the movie starts playing for, like, a week or two. And it gets, like, mixed reviews. And the box office isn't doing well, and people are like, shit, theaters are ready to start pulling it. Like, this was a giant bomb. And then suddenly all these young people start showing up and seeing it. And some of them were, like, just getting high and going to see the movie. But a lot of them were just genuinely curious. Mm. And were like, what is going on here? And it ended, and again, people are seeing, like, this. there's never been a movie like 2001 done before or since. Yeah. Like, it still feels like it has the biggest perspective and cosmic celestial it it feels like it was made by the higher intelligences from the movie Mm -hmm. the perspective of it is so giant i don't know how he did it like the story shouldn't work there's no protagonist i guess dave bowman but like it's it doesn't make any sense how it works Mm -hmm. it was something that's never been done before and it's something that still people are like what does that even like what does the ending mean yeah there's multiple i couldn't tell you i i mean i i i'm scared to even share what i thought but like you know it's like one of those things where i could see why people p- there's probably a good portion of the crowd who saw it and was like i hate it and then they're like i gotta see it again <laughs> exactly woody allen talks about that in that mm. documentary he's like i saw it i didn't like it then I, again i watched it again a few months later i'm like oh that was actually really good and then mm-hmm. a couple years later i saw it again i was like this is really a sensational movie that's every one of uh sydney pollock said that he goes Every single one of Stanley's movies would come out, and people would go, "Oh, he's not good anymore." And then ten years later, it would be a classic. You know, mm-hmm. it, he, his movies have a way of just—they have the ultimate staying power, where they always get better and better the more you watch them. Mm-hmm. And if you would allow me, I have what I think the movie is about on here. Yes, yeah, not like a big theory, just like pointing out some of the, uh, I guess, the metaphorical yeah, stuff I, in the movie. Yeah, I would love to hear what you have to say, and then maybe I'll say what I got my first okay. thought was. So I said I mentioned that Kubrick does the 180 turn, and basically what this story is is basically at least the AI part of it. I think this is the best interpretation of artificial intelligence in a movie ever. I don't think a movie has done it better since. But so David Bowman is named after the underdog from David and Goliath. The Discovery One mission sequence could be seen as an allegory for man's competition with artificial intelligence. HAL 9000 is the perfect computer that never makes a mistake. But when HAL is forbidden from revealing to David and Frank the true nature of the mission, his programming gets caught in a philosophical knot and manifests in him making a mistake. Realizing he's made the mistake causes him to deduce that, 
he should blame it on human error, given that he has the confidence that the mission cannot succeed without him because he is the, the supercomputer that doesn't make any mistakes. So once David and Frank... Slow down. <laughs> so once David and Frank agree to shut down Hal, Hal eavesdrops on their conversation by lip reading. His programming will not allow the humans to shut him off, given that he believes that this is the best way to complete the mission is his existence. Therefore, he decides to eliminate the humans from the mission. Hal, thinking that the humans are obsolete for the mission, speaks to how the possibility of greater AI concluding that human beings are obsolete as a life form and not productive, pro- not as productive members of society as an artificial intelligence would be. Therefore, Hal expels Frank from the mission and from the discovery from Earth. Uh, David Bowman retrieves Frank's body, but when he returns, Hal has locked him out. The mission. He's locked him out of the mission. He's locked him out of you know an allegory for gr- the greater society as a whole. So now Dave has to operate or has to improvise his way back into the discovery. As David disconnects Hal, Hal starts coping as a human would, saying that he's scared. I'm scared, Dave. He's scared of getting turned off. Hal sings Daisy, Daisy, that song, which is the first compu- uh, song sang by a computer, mm-hmm. which is very interesting. And I just think, and the, the, one of the interesting things is, is it, you're basically uh, obviously watching man triumph over the machine, but if you look at 2001, I think it's a story about, uh, like, you know, achieving different levels of existence, right? So uh, the Dawn of Man sequence, right? What we see is them, we, they, see the man, they see the monolith, and then Moonwatcher uh, gets the idea for the weapon. He starts using the weapon, and then we cut to the nuke in the sky, showing that man has mastered weaponry, mm-hmm. right? And then we see Dave overcome the machine in space, we see men overcome artificial intelligence, and then we can get to Jupiter and ascend to the greater, the greater higher, highest existence as like the starborn baby thing, mm-hmm. right? Before we reach the monolith on Jupiter, and before we ascend to the next level of existence, we must first assert control and contain our creations like AI, just as the higher intelligences orchestrating our evolution have controlled us. Mm. That's that's mm. my insight. Yeah, that Sorry was if that was a ramble. I got really excited there. No, I mean that. I don't know. See, this is where this is where it gets. Well, really that's hard the, this is when it opens it. up for like giant. It's yeah, the, it, I don't want to get super like abstract too deep where it's like. Well, what what do you what do you, what do you, tell me what you told me? Oh, I was thinking it's something of a of a loop, in where he because he he goes back to being a baby at the right. end, and it's like a loop where. Always, he was the one to possibly like deliver that thing, the monolith. And wherever he's um, at the end is at the dawn of man, and right. he's about to deliver the monolith to them and start the process over. Which showing it might be showing like we should only get to a certain point, or we can only get to a certain point as human beings. Right. Well, I kind of like that idea of Dave being the one because because th- I haven't heard that before. And also, it doesn't. They don't specify what era of in the in the novelization. He says he just, he destroys all the nukes, but Cooper cut that because he didn't want it to be too similar to uh, to uh, Doctor Strangelove. But I like that because then it kind of shows that if if that's him, goes back in a loop and places the first monolith. Mm-hmm. That shows that like human beings kind of have control over their own destiny. Mm-hmm. And again, it's a very hopeful message because it's basically us overcoming nuclear war and and mm-hmm. surviving in this. Giant cosmos. That's uh, again the the one eighty turn from Doctor Strangelove. Mm-hmm. You know, because but also it also could be that 
It could not be a loop. It could be like a like he's the like he's a baby and he's going back to <laughs> It's so funny to say that he's a baby. <laughs> he's like a starborn baby, but it could also be that like cuz if you think about it, when you look at the Dawn of Man portion, it is very like Mad Max Fury Road looking too. Hmm. Like it could have been that he's sent away to like hold human knowledge. And has to go back and restart everything yeah. after a big nuclear fallout or something. That's a good happened. idea. See, now we're just like rambling. Okay, so now we start with a movie that wasn't made, but I think both of us would have loved if it was made, and that's Napoleon. 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 Okay. <laughs> after this, After the success of 2001... Kubrick wants to make the definitive Napoleon movie. The movie got as far as pre-production. It was shaping up to be the most expensive movie ever made. And then Waterloo released in October 1970 and bombed hard. Yes, Napoleon was like somebody Kubrick was obsessed with. He knew like everything about him. The research that he put into that movie was insane. If you look at like in the Stanley Kubrick Museum, they have... um, like all these drawers where every, in these drawers was like hundreds of index, thousands of index cards. Mm-hmm. And on each index card was a day. And on that day is what Napoleon did. He basically had his entire life like mapped out and he wrote mm-hmm. the script. It was basically like a cradle of the grave story and birth to death. And the, 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 the weird thing is I, cause in the, Jan Harlan, who was his producer, Kubrick's producer and brother-in-law, he was, I think he was Christian's brother. He says that once Waterloo bombed, they canceled the movie. But Kubrick started reading the script or writing the script to Clockwork Orange before he had to have before that movie came out. So I don't know if it was shaping up to be a bomb or whatever. Or maybe he realized, oh, they just did a movie for Waterloo. Let's let's delay this. Mm -hmm. But the moment of him switching from Napoleon into Clockwork Orange is a little squirrely. I don't know where it was. Maybe he was already writing the script before he started work on Napoleon. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Maybe there was something in his research also that um, was like thinking, because as a history buff myself, maybe he found some things where he's like, I can't tell all this in one movie. And he was like, I That's don't want to yeah. do wrong by trying to fit it all into one movie. Sort of like... yeah. You know. Well, a lot of people say like you need like a mini series for Napoleon's life. Yeah, but mm-hmm. I mean, if anybody could have done it in one movie, it could have been. Oh yeah, Kubrick. yeah. I mean, I still would have loved to yeah. seen it. It still would have been all. Even it, it, people would still be like, "Oh, it's not the definitive thing." It, it still would have been awesome. There was he was gonna he was like talking with like the Romanian army about just getting like their soldiers as extras. He was gonna have like fifty thousand extras in one scene. Mm-hmm. He developed these like these paper costumes for guys all the way in the back of the frame. Instead of just like spending a shit ton of money, all these he just had these pieces of paper that he had him wear. Uh, I didn't. I actually didn't know this. Jack Nicholson as Napoleon. Yeah. And Audrey Hepburn as Josephine. That would have been sick. Can you imagine Jack Nicholson as Napoleon, just being like, yeah, doing yeah, that crazy yeah. face. Mm-hmm. Josephine, <laughs> darling, light <laughs> of my life. Do you think it? I said <laughs> I don't have a Napoleon complex. <laughs> I don't know why everybody thinks I'm so short. What these even days. does that I'm mean? I'm a completely normal height. <laughs> is that fun? Imagine if you came back to life and people were like, "What? You got a Napoleon complex?" He's like, "What's that?" It's like, "Oh, it's when you're really short and you're like you have a big temper." He's like, "What? <laughs> I wasn't short. Like a fucking." How tall was he? I don't even he know. He was like five seven, five six. He was like, 
I mean, short by today's standards, but I guess that's probably average size for yeah. Them. He was like a normal dude. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Maybe I don't know. And then a lot of the pre pre production resources like costumes were used for Barry Lyndon years later. Oh, that's all right. Yeah. That's good. A I lot of that know. research went into Barry Lyndon because he's like, I need to make something from this time period. <laughs> A Clockwork Orange, 1971. <laughs> <laughs> After quitting on Napoleon, Kubrick chooses A Clockwork Orange by Anthony Burgess. Burgess or Burgess? Burgess, Burgess, I don't know. Yeah. And again, enlists the author to help adapt the book. The book is already super controversial. Part of the reason he chooses it is to prove he can still make a cheap movie after 2001 and Napoleon. Yeah, so he wrote the... He, he had Burgess write a script for the movie... And then he said he didn't like it, so Kubrick just finished the script on his own. And it, this, I think, this might be like the fastest turnaround for a Kubrick movie. Mm-hmm. I just like I, I again, I don't know exactly when the writing happened, but like assuming that it started like in 1970, in like in at September. least early 1970, then then that's two years that he made that he wrote, directed, and edited that movie and released it inside two years. Mm. Well, which the, is fim- a crazy the filming time. started in September. Yeah, so the writing so. had to have started, you know, however many months before mm-hmm. that. Probably, jan- like, jan- like at the la- at earliest, maybe January. I don't mm-hmm. know. That's very interesting. Maybe, maybe there wasn't... I mean, there's definitely writing, but maybe, like, in terms of... I know, like, one of the, this movie was partially, like, let the actor do or act... Like, the actors do, like... Stu- random stuff, right? Yeah. There's probably parts of well, it. He was I don't always, know. It seems well, he like was always open. Like we said before, like he's always open to like just anybody's ideas. Like, mm-hmm. all right, let's try it that way or whatever. I don't know if there was improv- improvisation. There, w- like the one thing that was improvised was Alex singing, singing in the rain. Malcolm McDowell just did that, and then Kubrick mm-hmm. was like, Kubrick called up that. and was like, "Give me the rights to that song right now." Yeah, yeah. Or else I'm gonna die. Yeah. He didn't say that. <laughs> I made that part up. Oh shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. This says it might have been the first time Kubrick destroyed all the copies of deleted scenes. Yes, there was some deleted scenes. There was also he read the American version of the novel, but for the European or I guess the English or European version, there was an extra chapter where Alex at the end is like, "Oh, I'm a family man now, and don't even worry about it." And Kubrick was like, "That's kind of shitty." So even after he realized that he was reading like the book without the ending in it, he was still like, "That's not good." Mm-hmm. Um, but there was some deleted scenes, and there was, there was like the first time that he just destroyed. The copies of the scenes, and we don't have any record of them. Is he, did, he did that with the shine. There was an ending of the shining he destroyed. Uh, um, he, I don't know why he was so anxious about. He was also, I think, maybe he was just obsessed with like what's in the movie is what you should interpret, and not like maybe that's why he was so secretive around the productions. I don't know. Yeah, that, I mean, I could see that being why he didn't. He knew that, like at that point, two thousand one, he'd probably been hearing like a bunch of people be trying to tell him what the movie was about or something. Yeah, and then he just didn't want to hear it. Yeah. So, like, I felt maybe if he had like some deleted scenes and somebody got a hold of it, that and then it implied something different. Yeah. Or or was too right. He doesn't too like implying of with something. the shi- with the Shining. We'll get to that. There was an ending that like really impacted. Yeah, but it's funny. There's a that the only time he ever explained what uh, 2001 meant. There, it was, there was a documentary for The Shining, and it was like this Asian guy going around uh, uh, Pinewood Studios and being like, "Hey, this is where we shot this. This is where we shot this." And then he gets on a call with Kubrick, and then Kubrick just explains 2001 to him. And the, and the guy, the guy just goes, "Mr. Kubrick, what is the meaning of 2001?" And Kubrick just goes, "Oh yeah, so basically what happens is that he's in this alien zoo." 
and then they re you know reincarnate him into this star baby and then this he just explains the whole thing mm. and, this, and then he just explains the shining <laughs> and the guy's like thank you like he has no idea what he just got out of this man <laughs> like he just got like the most yeah, private yeah. secretive director of all time just explain mm-hmm. his two most highly debated movies is there a recording of this? Yes, he's, it's a phone recording of Kubrick <laughs> oh just spoiling God. everything. Yeah, and then the ghost of The Shining, and then this happens. Yeah, like, it's yeah, crazy. Yeah. That's crazy. And the guy just goes, yes, thank you, yeah. bye. Cool word. <laughs> yeah, nice. <laughs> he so. just doesn't even know what movie he's talking about. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, but I think too, Clockwork Orange to me is another movie where, like, the idea of it is like, oh, that's a good movie. But then when I watch it, I, I'm, like I don't get ups- that upset about the vo- like the ultra violence in it because it's like uh, obviously by today by today's standards like we've seen either. some go- crazy stuff. It's more about just like the substance of the violence happening that's like very scary and and uh, horrifying more than the actual like physical acts on mm-hmm. screen. Um, but I, I I do think it's just too talky. I know Roger Ebert said the same thing. It's like a lot of talking a lot of times. Mm-hmm. I'm like, that's true. Like, there's a lot of scenes where it's like a five minute scene and Kubrick just holds on one shot, which I don't mind as long as it's interesting. But there's a lot of stuff. And, uh, and also just like the language of like, oh, I've got trousers in me, Gulliver's. And I'm like, what does that mean? And then mm-hmm. like somebody says brain like two scenes later. I'm like, oh, it meant the brain, which I guess it kind of keeps you on the t- on your toes. Mm-hmm. But um, I don't know. What, you, what are, you've seen it, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. There, the, 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 in terms of the violence, like, yeah, by today's standards, it's not anything super crazy. But I always remember something that sticks with me is like the scene where they like kill like the homeless guy, or right? they beat the shit out of they him. Be- yeah. Uh, well, either way, like I always thought that was just like that stuck with me because I felt like so bad. Yeah. When I the first time I saw, it, I was like, that's so like horrible. Yeah. Like just thinking about something like that happening because it does happen apparently, but like it's just and also like the like. I remember when I first watched the movie, I'm like, nice. And then I, I well, I wasn't you said nice. nice one. No, and I was wow. like, all right, that's wow. crazy. And then I realized that they're all like 16. I'm like, God damn. Yeah. They're not even out of school yet. That's like, and that's crazy that they're basically these psychopaths or whatever. Mm-hmm. But. And, and it was also like confusing. Like, what was this, that club that they're like hanging out at in the beginning? That's, like, yeah, that was like, I like it as an opening shot because it's like, what is going on? Mm-hmm. I don't recognize anything in here. Yeah. Why yeah. is he wearing one mascara eyelash thing? Why is there milk coming out of these ladies' statue breasts? Yeah, yeah. It's crazy. I, I kind of like it. I like. I, I do mm. like this movie. I do catches think it's your really atten- good. That yes. definitely catches your attention. And it's just on it's, his big face. It's funny to think, like, if you walked onto a set that wasn't, and it wasn't Stanley Kubrick directing that movie, and you saw that, you'd be like, You're just like what, the what did I get myself into? Like, <laughs> what is this crap? You're like, like, God damn it, yeah, this movie right? sucks. <laughs> I'm, I'm doing some weird shit. What are these guys standing here with their crotches out, like, just <laughs> literally doing nothing in the scene, yeah. just there, like, yeah. you'd probably be pretty concerned about it. Yeah. And then, so, uh, Emilio de Alessandro. Yes. So this was, the, he wrote a book on Stanley Kubrick called Stanley Kubrick and Me, which is that book. Oh, that's Stanley that? okay. Kubrick's big black and white face on there. And um, it's excellent. He worked at, <laughs> what are you thinking? I said big black <laughs> no, and no. white. Well, keep, keep, um, keep with but the he, he worked as Kubrick's assistant for like 30 years. He was basically, he, Kubrick had a bunch of assistants. But that book is amazing because it, it really gets into who Kubrick was and how he was at home. And he recounts like his first run-in with a Kubrick production is, you know the scene when they he kills the cat lady? And there's that big giant like dick statue that's like bobbing back and forth or whatever. He had a, Emilio D'Alessandro delivered that because he was like a driver. He was a race car driver, and then he was driving for like work. Mm-hmm. And then he delivered that, and then like a few months later, 
uh, Hawk Films called him up. Was like, hey, do you want to work for us? And then he kept working for Kubrick and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So why, why this movie is the most controversial one of his career? I think it it is. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's, it's I think this movie was the first the fir- the first Joker. Because oh, okay. the budget yeah. was like relatively, the budget was cheap. It was like what two mil, two point something million, but then it made one hundred fourteen million worldwide, which by today's standards is like eight hundred million. Mm-hmm. It was the first Joker because, and it came out in the media, the way the media handled this movie, it was like the same thing as the Joker. Like this is going to incite violence, and this is yeah, yeah. crazy. There was a there was a kid. I think they called him the Clockwork Orange Kid, and he said, "Oh, he he uh, he committed crimes because of Clockwork Orange." And then, but it turned out, and then the media was like, see, this movie's dangerous. You shouldn't watch it. And then it turned out that he hadn't seen the movie. He was talking about the book. Yeah, But yeah. the book was already mm-hmm. controversial, of course. But there was, they were claiming that there was all these copycat murders and shit like that. And um, it got crazy where, there's a, there's a documentary, which I have to see, called A Forbidden Orange. And it talks about how it was like banned in the UK. It was pulled from the UK release at the request of Kubrick. Because Kubrick started to get death threats. People were like, I'm going to come. Woody Allen talks about, he goes, uh, I saw a review that says Stanley Kubrick should be physically harmed for making that movie. He goes, now that's yes. a bad review. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so Kubrick w- went to Warner Brothers was like, look, you g- can you pull this from the, this? In, like, my pe- pe- like, I got a family dog. Yeah, you know? yeah. And so and Warner Brothers was like, we want to make Stanley Kubrick movies. Yes, we'll pull it, which is crazy. And I mean, it already made a shit ton of money. But that's that's... I think definitely the most controversial. The fact that he got he had to stop mm-hmm. the movie. That I th- I don't the fact I don't that think someone like him would take would listen somebody, yeah, and some, be like somebody okay, who's so obsessive and relentless was mm-hmm. like, All right, I'll take it out. But yeah. you know, it's also he was he was a family man. People talk shit about him like, Oh, he's this weird recluse. No, nah, he was like a giant family guy. He loved yeah. do- not <laughs> not like Peter Griffin. <laughs> Movies. <laughs> Movies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but in terms of like my like like when I when I talked about um Doctor Strangelove, when I talked about the relationship between sex and violence, I think this movie might be the most explicitly that. Mm. It's like if you take like the most extreme form of love, what do you get? Strange love? Sex. Oh. Right? <laughs> you get the, the most extreme <laughs> form of hate. I said strange love. Strange love? <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> um, but if you, and then the most extreme manifestation, I guess, of hatred would be violence. Yeah. Right? And then what's one act that is both of those things? Rape? Yep. Mm. And that's all over this movie, dude. And the, all these poor ladies, dude. The, like, every time a woman gets raped in this movie... It's like God damn it! That's fucking. That's real. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that looks crazy. That that mm-hmm. was that that imagery is what strikes strike struck me the most in the movie. I'm like, that's crazy. Mm-hmm. Like I haven't I haven't seen stuff like that even today. I get that point. The the like violence and all that stuff in this movie is like it hits you in a weird way where you're like, oh, it makes me uncomfortable. Yeah. Like, like, and this is again nobody do- nobody had done this before. It's mm-hmm. so ultra ultra violent. And this and the reason why it causes so much controversy I've written down here is the whole idea of the movie is that when you take away a, bi- a man's ability to choose, he ceases to be a man, right? And I saw this explained in that same uh, thing, Kubrick's books, that same video, where the guy talks about if a lesser director wants to prove a point, like let's say he wants you know, to talk about how the death penalty is wrong, a lesser director would say, okay, this man is innocent and he got killed because of the death penalty. See, it's wrong. But what Kubrick would say is, no, well, if the death penalty is really wrong, then we should show people why it's wrong to kill a guilty person instead. 
Alex, so that's basically what he's doing with Alex. Mm-hmm. Because he's, Alex isn't a good boy who gets messed up in something and then they mess with his brain and then he, they take away his ability to choose. He's a terrible person who should be shot and killed mm-hmm. and then reanimated and then shot and killed again, yeah. right? And, but what he does is take the hard route and go, no, this is why we cannot, ha- we cannot live in a totalitarian society where they control your behavior if you step out of line. Like, people need the freedom to choose between bad or good or else they cease to be a person. That's a super hard idea mm-hmm. to communicate in a movie. And that's why it's so controversial is because it's, a, it's such a difficult philosophical thing to deal with. And that's basically what he's doing in this with Alex. Mm-hmm. I forget. Alex, in the movie, Alex is like the, um, like, he, wh- what are his upbringings? I, I can't remember. He's like, right, so has a family and everything. Right, like, he, he lives with his mom and dad. Yeah, yeah. And his he's mom like, and dad are like, did you have fun at work? You, you see him rape a lady, and then it's like, hey, did you have fun at work? And he's like, shut up, mom. Mm-hmm. I, I like how he talks to how he's always like, even when there's people right next to him, it sounds like he's yelling it to them in another room. Mm-hmm. He's always like, yeah, blowing my all of us hurting. <laughs> but uh, Malcolm McDowell is great in it, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so... Is that it with yeah, Paco Gorns? So. Do you have anything to say? Um, no, I feel like I, I feel like I said most well, of. Also, there's like a thing about the media, like the way it wraps up when the when the media, um, the go- like the government teams with the teams up with Alex in order to sacrifice, like in to salvage their image. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I like the government. They're doing a government and media thing. I don't know how they re- how that relates to the rest of the movie. Like philosophically, I don't know what that's trying to say about the media. I know it's saying something. I've watched the movie like three or four times. Maybe I need to watch it again and think about it a little bit harder. Mm-hmm. But the whole thing about like ha- the media's role and whatever's happening is kind of a little bit lost on me. So that brings <coughs> us... <laughs> Continue. So that brings us to Barry Lyndon, 1975. Reportedly, for his next project... Kubrick wanted to repurpose the extensive research he put into Napoleon into his next movie. So he adapts The Luck of Barry Lyndon by William Makepeace Thackeray. <laughs> <laughs> He's William really Makepeacing those Thackeray's, dude. Is that like nickname or like it's ma- I guess his it's like it's okay. it's, it's, it's like Ron Artest and renaming himself Meadow World Peace. <laughs> okay, okay. Make peace. <laughs> I was like, what? Just keep going. Okay. <laughs> the first time in his career, Kubrick writes the screenplay by himself. Yeah, because the writer's dead. So he's like, well, shit. Um, Barry Lyndon is interesting because that was like again, to that like I said, two thousand one to Clockwork Orange, total one eighty, mm-hmm. right? And Clockwork Orange to Barry Lyndon, total one eighty. And Clockwork Orange, we're we're seeing this incredibly open, you know, you know, socially open, disgusting, hedonistic, ultra violent society, repugnant mm-hmm. society. And then Kubrick immediately goes to this extremely traditional, aristocratic, repressive society where everybody dresses up as dolls and they're all dumb and, mm-hmm. ooh, fruity tooty. Not like in a, yeah, yeah. Like a hateful way, I mean, but they're yeah. all like, ooh. Yeah, 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 you yeah. Know. just like proper, you know. Yeah, which is and, interesting. And you said 180, and that's not meaning like he turned back around and went... 
back towards like a 2001 direction. Like, yeah, he just he went in a totally again. He yeah. did something he never did. Be, he took, yeah, yeah. He took it's, again. He would go to these. He would go to these genres and be like, I'm not just gonna make like a costume piece. I'm gonna try something nobody's ever done. Mm-hmm. With The Shining, he went to horror. He's like, I'm not just gonna do some dumb horror movie. You know, I'm gonna do something crazy. I'm gonna mm-hmm. do my horror movie, and then he ends up changing horror forever. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. What do we okay. got? So. The, this is one of those movies where he did some very interesting things with uh, the filming of, like, the actual technical side of filming. I yeah. mean, he does that in all of his films, but this is the first one that was lit only by candlelight yeah, so in certain scenes. Yeah, so th- um, what he did for that is he had to get lenses and a, or a camera at, uh, as well. He had to get lenses that were developed by Zeiss for NASA for satellite photography. And the lenses were super fast. They were like a 0.7 mm-hmm. uh, f-stop, which is like super low. It's faster than most things today still can get. Yeah, like I have like the, I mean, I'm just an idiot, but my best lens that I have is like a 1.4. Mm-hmm. So it's it's half of that, which is. Cr- and you're just an idiot. Yeah, I'm just an idiot. <laughs> so actually, Co- you know, Kubrick's lenses were 0.7. Mine was double his. Mine were 1.4. Oh. <laughs> um, but so, but the prop the thing is that the the depth of field. Uh, is so mm. the 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 amount of like uh, space that's in yeah. in focus is like an inch less. So it's super hard to, for the focus puller to make sure everybody's in focus for his job. It's super difficult. And also, when it, when a lens is faster, like point seven, it means the aperture is big. So the higher the number, the lower the aperture is. I know that's annoying as fuck, mm. but that's just how it is. Mm-hmm. Um. But and it, but you look at the candlelight scenes and it's insane, and wh- and th- the the t- the determination that Kubrick had on these sets. There's a story about a guy where they're filming Barry Lyndon. There's like a thousand candles on the set because it's only it's this giant room only being lit by candles. They have a crazy NASA lens on the thing. It's hur- there's a hurricane outside, and these guys have to stand and like hold these things up so they don't blow away. And then Kubrick's just in there talking about, well, what do you feel like your character would do in this scene? Because mm-hmm. he's just like, no, we have to get it right. Like, don't you want to get it right? And just the incredible. And also, there's a funny story that uh, Emilio talks about in his book, Stanley Kubrick and Me, where they're on the set of Barry Lyndon, and it's super difficult to film because they would be filming outside, and they'd have to do an entire shot with, with when the clouds don't change. Because if cloud comes into the frame during a shot, then it messes up the lighting and like the, the exposure. Yeah. So they're, they're, it's, it's super hard to, g- to get out there and, and get a shot. And then all of a sudden they hear this music. And they're like, and they're like where's that music coming from? And everybody's like looking for like it, for like a lo- like a few minutes. Like it's really delaying. And they're like, where the, f- where the fuck is it? God damn it, mm-hmm. where's that music? And then uh, some guy, I, I guess his like assistant director goes and sees that it's his wife, Christiane, in her van in like somewhere else, like a, like a few hundred meters away. And she's playing music and while she's painting. And they come back, and he goes, all right, the, the music's off, Stanley. He goes, who was it? He goes, it doesn't matter. He goes, no, who was it? And he goes, it was Christian. And he just turns and goes, he rubs his beard, and then he just turns, and then he goes, all right. And then he goes to the camera, and he goes, catchy tune, though. <laughs> <laughs> he just <laughs> like pulls he knows a one that he can't talk shit that, about yeah, 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 yeah. It's funny. That's like one, one thing about him where it's like clear he's just so in love with that. Oh, with dude, he wife. loved Christian, yeah. dude. Mm-hmm. He would... We'll talk about how much like he loved it, like when we get to the Aryan papers. Mm-hmm. But like his his daughter, like he loved his family. Yeah, yeah, so much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good dude, very good dude in, in that regard. Yes. Like you know, uh huh. And then so, 
yeah, I guess this goes along with the no. Oh, another p- point I wanted to make. I think st- I think it was Steven Spielberg in that documentary. He says like the lower depth of field actually caused the compositions to look like they were like classically painted. Oh yeah, thing. You know what yeah, I'm cause saying? And because the way. And, oh yeah, and Kubrick would look at he would cut out he would buy art books and like cut out all these paintings. Mm-hmm. And then there's there's the one scene where Lord there's a scene near the end where Lord Bullington finally confronts Barry Lyndon. He's like, I want to duel you, son of a bitch. Mm-hmm. And, son of a bitch. And he walks into the room and Barry Barry's lying like this. He's like sleeping. And the shot, it's like you're it literally looks like you're looking painting, at a painting. Yeah, the yeah. way the lighting hits and everything, mm-hmm. it, like the whole movie is filled with stuff like that. It's known as like one of the best looking movies of all time. Mm-hmm. And whether that translates to a good movie, well, I think this might be maybe one of Kubrick's most challenging movies to watch. Mm-hmm. I still think it's very good. Again, there's something like with with Doctor Strange Love and Clockwork Orange where like I feel like I haven't hit the full effect of it. Like I get it in terms of what it's saying about you know the impregnable class divisions. You, you can't join these people in, like in this society it, in and stuff like that. Um, I do think there's a weird like. Cause <laughs> Like there's a weird abstraction between you and Barry Lyndon. In the in the the luck of Barry Lyndon, it's like a memoir almost. It's like from the first person, but Kubrick decides to have like this omniscient narrator in it. And whenever it, you're not you're not so much the camera isn't tied to Barry Lyndon's perspectives perspective so much as the narrator is following Barry Lyndon. So like when you see a lot of these scenes, like the painting scenes, the, the scenes aren't from Barry's perspective. He, you're picking Barry out from these shots, right? You're following him. So, but for example, there's not like people say like the movie's cold and it doesn't, it feels like detached from the characters. But, and I think that's partly true, but I think the movie does that. It withholds that atta- that emotional attachment until the moments like where it matters. So basically, the story is Bar- Barry Lyndon or Redmond Barry takes, he, he lives in Ireland. He's like sort of like a poor, lower class family. And um, this this captain in the British Army comes to uh, marry his uh, Barry's cousin, who he's in love with. And so he duels the captain, and he's like, this is my girl. Get the hell out of here, fella. And he kills him. And then he leaves to go to Dublin because he has to hide for a while. And then he uh, gets picked up and joins the army for uh, for England. And then he joins the Prussian army, and then he finds this, whatever. But then he learns that they faked the captain's death and that she's married to the captain, his cousin's married to the captain because they're like, we can't sacrifice 1500 quid a year, uh, guineas a year because he would bring money to the family. So then, uh, Barry Lyndon ends. It's kind of like the first parasite. You remember parasite 2019 with, it's like the Korean movie, um, about this family just infiltrating this rich family. And you're just seeing these people like take over this family's life. And it's so satisfying. And and seeing Barry climb the ranks from like a poor guy to just like this giant aristocrat is satisfying, but it's not as satisfying as something like Parasite, which is not I'm not conf- it's not fair to compare the movies. But there's one thing that the movie does in terms of its camera, where like Barry's son dies, and it's a very emotional scene. Like it gets me every time, and that's like the only scene in the movie that has any sort of like raw emotion. But everything else is so detached from the characters. For example, the ending. Uh, it ends with Lord Bullington, who's uh, Barry Lyndon marries this uh, woman, Hon- Honoria Lyndon. Her husband dies. Barry Lyndon steps in. He's like, oh, shit, I can, 
you know, now I'm good. I'm part of this family. But then if she dies, all the money goes to Lord Bullington, who hates her son, Lord Bullington, who hates Barry Lyndon. So he's trying to become a lord, but he it ends up he can't. And Lord Bullington challenges him to a duel. He shoots Bullington in the leg. Or Bullington shoots him in the leg, and then he fades it. Barry fades into obscurity and dies like a poor and lonely guy. And at the end, Lady Honoria is, is signing his annual allowance of like 500 guineas. And it cuts to a close-up of her looking at his name. And there, her face her face is blank. It tells you nothing. And you're suppo- and you're like, is she? does she feel love for him? Does she hate? Like, what is happening? You know, there's another scene where Lord, the reason why Lord Bullington shoots him in the leg is that I know I'm going on, but I'm swear no, this no, is good. No, no, no. There's a, the, the, when they duel at the end, Lord Bullington, they go, Lord Bullington, you have the first shot. And Lord Bullington misfires. Like, he just, he's like, oh, fuck. Mm. He goes, this, this thing's faulty. Can I get another one? They're like, no, that counts as your shot. Mm. And he's like, shit, I'm going to die. And in, but so you see a close up of Barry. Lord Bullington fires the gun. It goes back to the guys. Barry's in the background. They go, that was your shot. And Lord Bullington's like, shit. And then, during this time, in between shots, Barry is kept in the background. He's never presented into the foreground until you see him in the background of the shot fire into the ground. Mm. Being like, being like oh, this, is, this has to, like, do you have satisfaction? Let's end this duel. Yeah, and then Lord Bullington goes, "I do not have satisfaction." And then it cuts to a close up of Barry, right? Mm-hmm. So Kubrick deliberately doesn't cl- cut to a close up of Barry in between. We don't we don't see the decision of Barry going, "I'm going to shoot into the ground." Mm-hmm. So we don't get to feel, or at least hint, we don't get a hint of what Barry feels in that moment because him and Lord Bullington hate each other. So it's like, what is he? Is he? Does he feel bad for Lord Bullington? What does yeah. he do? Like we don't know, and that's a certain. There's a certain thing that Kubrick does that kind of affects the movie in a way. And I'm mm-hmm. not sure exactly how I'm not you know, I don't know exactly the the mm-hmm. that's just something I've noticed. I don't have a full theory on why it, the movie works lot, the way it does. A lot is left up to interpretation, but it's like a lot, yeah. But but it's like part of it's you're like wishing that some of it wasn't. Yeah. You're saying. Yeah. Basically. Like you wish you got more out of there's moments where maybe there could be more um more emotion shown on the on the screen, like the where she's looking at his name, and her face yeah. shows no emotion. It's but, like, but what, again, are, you, what are you thinking? Yeah, but that's not that's like it's an intentional choice by Kubrick. Mm-hmm. No, so no, I d- yeah, I wasn't saying yes. it wasn't. Yeah, I know so it I'm was, just wondering. I'm like, yeah, I'm just wondering why. Mm-hmm. It's not. I, I, I guess I just have to watch it more. That's mm-hmm. in Kubrick. You, guys like Kubrick, you give the benefit of the doubt. You know, mm-hmm. a lot. A lot of his movies, like I feel like a lot of people would say, I have to watch it again. Well, that's that's yeah, all. It's, yeah. it's like mm-hmm. you, you're like that was weird, but I want to watch it again. Mm-hmm. You always want to watch. Like I might say, like general audience might see like Eyes Wide Shut and be like, "What the fuck?" Yeah. But every time I see one of his movies, I'm like, "Damn, I can't wait to watch yeah. it again." Two thousand one. A lot of some people were probably like, "Fuck that shit." I'm never watching. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, Rock, dude, I said Rock Hudson was at the premiere for two thousand one, the exhibitor screening. He walked out. He's like, "Fuck this." Yeah. This is dumb. Mm-hmm. All these monkeys are here. I'm here to see space, dog. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man, imagine walking out like in the first scene, like you don't even get to the yeah. To the space shit. Yeah. Um, so, well, I guess we didn't get to a lot of the points on this. No, keep going. Okay. All right. Well, um, so the budget ballooned. They had to move move from Ireland to England after th- threats from the IRA. I wonder. Yeah. Well, they were filming. 
They were in Ireland filming scenes of British soldiers. Oh, okay. And Ireland was like, I hate the Britain people. Yeah, yeah, the IRA was for The IRA. Did I say Ireland? Well, IRA is. Yeah, the IRA was like, I can't stand these bloody... Well, that's not Irish. I I, I can't stand these bloody British. I could do a a good one when I went to Ireland for a little while, but I can't do it anymore. I came back with a solid one. (laughs) I I lost it in like a week. I just do Brad Pitt from Snatch. All right, I'll do a movie for you, but I want one thing. I want you to get out of my fucking country. Yeah, it's, it's, it's something like that. It's not great, like but it's like, it, you know. It's something like that. Um, so, yeah, so they had to move, they had to move and that t- in the book, that's like a big thing, was uh, like, get, especially getting the guns across the border, the, the muskets, that was a big deal for Emilio, because he was like in charge of all of that. And, yeah, the production shut down twice, and, and again, like what I said about the, 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 the weather and the clouds would like affect filming, they would mm-hmm. s- maybe get like a scene a day. They filmed for 300 days. Mm-hmm. I think maybe three hundred. That might be The Shining. Anyway, okay. And then first time Kubrick collaborated with Leon Vitali, who became Kubrick's personal assistant after production ended. Yes. Do you know who Leon Vitali is? I've heard the name. I d- I don't know exactly. So he he he, w- he played Lord Bullington in the okay. movie. He played so uh, he was an actor, but then he was like, wait a minute. I don't know how exactly he got to start working with Kubrick as an assistant. But he like basically dedicated his life to be like this guy's a genius. I need to help him make his movies. Mm-hmm. And then he was he was Danny, you know Danny Lloyd from uh, The Shining. He was the kid. Yeah, Danny, yeah. Danny oh. in The Shining. Mm-hmm. He was basically like his acting coach. In oh, that movie. that's cool. He, but he was also like a production assistant for Kubrick and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. He was like his personal assistant. again. Kubrick had like a million assistants. Yeah, I'm sure. But he yeah. he's a very important guy in Kubrick's life. Mm-hmm. Seemed like Kubrick was like very good at. Um, uh, categorizing his work and and sending it off to other people who he knew yeah, could get the job done. He was really very good well. at delegating. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it is released in December 1975 and gets okay reviews in America and great reviews in Europe. Yeah. Um. That's the that's how the story goes. Th- I thought. I mean, based off, I th- I thought in the documentary it was like it was bombed. Like everybody hated it. Well, the the movie the financially it didn't do it didn't do good. It made like the budget was what twelve million or eleven? Uh, eleven million. And it yeah. made like nine million in the U.S., which isn't good. Okay. It did very well in Europe, um. So it would have been profitable. It it was what it made thirty one million worldwide. Mm-hmm. So it obviously, but you know, it's by today's standards, it's made a profit. Yeah. Uh, since then, but it was still disappointing, especially for the studio who put a lot of money into it and a lot of faith in Kubrick and choosing this kind of obscure subject matter. You know, yeah. cost, co- especially a costume drama for like that budget at the time, was a pretty big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, how many movies are like Americans are like, oh, and then f- the French just eat it up. You know, Kubrick. There was a there was a shot there was a shot on The Shining because th- this speaks to the why the Europe loved it a lot. Kubrick. There was a shot. People always think like everything is calculated or whatever. He would do a shot on The Shining and then turn to his crew and goes, he goes, uh, let's see what the French critics th- think about that one. Mm. Basically, being like they're all just like. They get they kind of eat this shit up. Yeah, oh yeah. He just knows that they. Yeah, they love he knows it. that they're gonna read into it and stuff. You mm-hmm. know, they're yeah, yeah. That makes sense. And I guess so. I guess, war- but still, Warner Brothers and Kubrick were disappointed by the box office. Did you say that? Yeah, right? yeah, they were disappointed. Mm-hmm. Kubrick was definitely disappointed, and that's why. And then you know, obviously, The Shining's up next, and that's why I think he went to The Shining, because I and he went to the biggest book at the time, like the like the, the, the Shining was like a big book and he was like all right i want to and he went to horror which is like a good genre to make money in and he was like i think i i need to give them a money a a movie that makes money Mm -hmm. so i think that was i think the shining again 180 was a reaction to barry lyndon being like all right let me get something more pulpy 
The Shining, 1980. The same way he pivoted from A Clockwork Orange to Barry Lyndon, Kubrick pivots from the obscure source material of Barry Lyndon to Stephen King's mega-hit, The Shining. However, he does not hire Stephen King, Stephen King to write the screenplay with him as usual. Instead, he hires the novelist and professor Diane Johnson. Yeah, so, that, so Kubrick did read a script by Stephen King that King wrote, and Kubrick didn't like it because it was just like the book but the movie, you know? And uh, the, the, I did hear a story of Stephen King being like an anti-intellectual, and there are streaks of intellectual isms in Kubrick's movies. I think he is sort of like a highbrow guy who does have like mass audience appeal. And people say that's why Kubrick didn't go with Stephen King because Stephen King is sort of an anti-intellectual and Diane Johnson is sort is like a you know a a, a professor mm-hmm. and sort of a highbrow lady. He he Kubrick was impressed with a book that she wrote called The Shadow Knows and he was actually going to adapt that at one point and then once he read The Shining and the story about Kubrick finding The Shining is his assistant used to say that he would read books constantly because if you look the, the it's the longest gap in between Kubrick movies at this point like 5 mm-hmm. years and I- in terms of like the longest gap between him writing finishing a movie and then writing the next one cuz he couldn't find a book his his wife talked about that all the time like he couldn't find the source material that was worth you know doing a movie on mm-hmm. so he'd be in his office just like reading books all day at sometimes and he would just throw them against the wall he was so pissed his assistant said and then finally she gave him the shining and then she didn't hear any books being any thrown? Any books being thrown. <laughs> she was like, nice, dude. Yeah. He said it, he called it compulsive reading. Like, he loved the book. Mm. And if, But of course, like, you know, just because he changes something in the book doesn't mean he didn't like it. It's just, mm-hmm. it's not suitable for film. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And this is one where, I mean, I feel like, did Stephen King like this or no? Stephen King fucking hates it. Really? So much. I don't know if, let's just get to it now. Screw it. Who cares about chronologics? So, the movie comes out. Kubrick hates it. He always says, like, oh, it's like a Cadillac without an engine in it. It's well made, but there's no story. They made all these changes, blah, blah, blah. I don't like it. Um, he, he goes, my book is very warm, and Kubrick's movie is very cold. And out of all the, like, the stuff that like, people say in the movie, like, oh, they, they, if you look at this frame in this corner, the floor is a different color. That means this about this character. It's like, okay. People mm-hmm. definitely read into The Shining and Kubrick's movies too much. Yeah. But there is a scene uh, that Kubrick just deliberately, deliberately puts in the movie, which is, like I think, obvious. Because in the book, it's like a red buggy that they're riding down the, sh- the, the road in the beginning. And in the movie, it's yellow, I believe, yes. And then at, at one point, Halloran... Is good. If you know the movie, you know what I'm talking about. Halloran is driving back to the Overlook Hotel, and he just sees a car accident on his way over. has nothing to do with the movie, and you just see a red buggy crushed by, like, an 18-wheeler. Mm. And it's basically Kubrick saying, like, fuck you. This is my movie, pal. Yeah, yeah, Which yeah. Is, I don't know how vocal Stephen King was against the movie at that point, but Stephen King really doesn't like the movie at all. Yeah, He's probably yeah. sick of not talking about it at this point, you know? Mm-hmm. How does that work? Like, did... Um, I guess I'm just not as knowledgeable on this part of it but so Stephen King buys the rights to the movie or to Kubrick or sorry yeah. Kubrick <coughs> buys the rights from uh Stephen King and he's like cool go make the movie but then he doesn't have any like say right, over Right once 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 I think it's probably Warner Brothers got the yeah, yeah. got the rights and then once Warner Brothers has the rights like 
Stephen King can't do anything on the movie version because mm-hmm. now it's, it's it's up to Kubrick. Yeah. So Kubrick can just do whatever he wants with the script. Mm-hmm. And also, like you're making, you can't like, like I said before, a book is a book. You can't if you film a book, it's gonna be feel like you're watching a book rather than watching a movie. You have yeah. to make certain things. And there's other things like the maze. Kubrick put in the maze instead of the originally it was like the hedge. You know, there was like these hedge garden things of like animals in the book that were at the hotel. Mm-hmm. And they come to life and they move. And it's like, well, the CGI, that would look terrible in the 1980s. Yeah, yeah. Kubrick's like, yeah, we're not going to do that. Let's just do the maze instead. Stuff Mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's, um, I guess it just, it's just interesting that he doesn't like it. Like, I didn't, (laughs) I didn't, I didn't know that he didn't like it like that much. He hates it it that much. so much. Wow. He's not like, you know, Stanley Kubrick should be shot. Like, he likes Kubrick's movies, but he's just like, I don't like. Mm-hmm. You know, did they have a weird relationship after that, or any relationship? I don't know after if they that? talked at all. I just think, yeah, yeah, that's it. Just funny. it happens. You know, there's a lot of, you know. Mm-hmm. Either way, um, so Kubrick hires Steadicam inventor Garrett Brown to be a camera operator on The Shining. Yes, there's this a very, very good story about that. Because Garrett, Bra- so you know why in, in Rocky when he goes up the steps, the reason why that shots in the movie is because in the original demo footage for the Steadicam. Garrett Brown did that with his girlfriend, his wife, his girlfriend, now wife. Uh, he filmed her going up those steps. And then he sent this out to Hollywood being like, I got this shit. No dolly. Mm-hmm. This is crazy. And all these studios were like, how, how, would he, how was he doing this? Mm-hmm. You know? And then he, Kubrick got his hands on the demo tape and was like, Congrat-, he wrote to Garrett Brown, was like, congratulations on whatever. I would like to hire you for my next movie, blah, blah, blah. But it must be mentioned that to the careful observer in frame 247, the shadow of the your device can be seen at the bottom left corner of the screen, and you know somebody who's uh, has you know a detective mindset could easily deduce that this is how it works based off of the shadow. And of course, Garrett Brown was like, "Oh, of course, Stanley Kubrick f- like figured out how part of this works because he saw the shadow in one of the frames." Oh wow! Like Kubrick, Kubrick caught that. Yeah, like, that's how yeah, good he was. yeah, yeah. That's which cool. A, which is a funny story. But Garrett mm-hmm. Brown was like, only for he had so Kubrick hired him. But he had to do Rocky Two during the production, so after like six months, he had to teach this other guy how to do the Steadicam. But Garrett Brown, so he goes, I like knew how to. I did the Steadicam for like other movies, but I really learned how to do the Steadicam on Kubrick's movie. Like mm-hmm. it would get, we were doing so many takes, it would get to the point where if I, I was like, oh, if I take one extra inch in my last step, I'll actually end up with her right nostril on this side of the cross. Like Kubrick would be like, her nostril has to be on this crosshair. Mm-hmm. The crosshair has to be on this nostril. If it's not, it doesn't mess up. He was so good at, it, at holding it still that Kubrick would just use it as a tripod. They come stand over here. You're using it just to hold it still. Yeah, and he, he would, would hold it still him. on the steady cam. Is that like he'd use him as a tripod. Yeah, basically? yeah, yeah. That's funny. <laughs> that's it, like, I'm sure um, Kubrick, being himself, probably understood it a little better than him by the end of the film too. But yeah. Ger- well, Garrett right? was like on the, in the commentary for Garrett was like Garrett Brown was like. Also, Garrett Brown, who sounds like exactly like James Cameron, which is weird. I just picture him as James Cameron in my head. But he talks about like he wanted Kubrick was like, oh, let me see that thing. And, and then Garrett Brown was like, you want to try it on? And Kubrick was like, no, 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 no. Like he was very shy. Uh, he was like shy about stuff like that all the time. Like he didn't like being touched and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and people would be like, hey, try this. And he'd be like, no, 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 no. I have to do this. Yeah, yeah. He didn't uh, He didn't want to like try it? No, on? he was just like scared and shy mm-hmm. or whatever. I don't know. But mm-hmm. um, yeah. And also, of, of course, Kubrick, and 
innovated with the st- he innovated the use of Steadicam more than anybody else in that in the Shining. Just in in the first time using it. Well, uh, Rocky used it. And I think one more other. In, I mean, in his first time. Yeah, his it. first time using it. He just like that completely changed because mm-hmm. he, he was able to use the camera and like just use the camera as the spooky ghost that was just following the characters around. Never been done before. Mm-hmm. What's next on the agenda? Uh, so Shelley Duvall is cast as Wendy, yes. which was seen as a weird choice at the time. Yes, and people like. I think it's good because it, I think it's more interesting to have somebody somebody incredibly unique like Shelley Duvall rather than just like some hot awesome lady. You know, I think I still think Shelley Duvall is, is attractive. People are like, "Oh, she's ugly." I'm like, "What are you talking about? She's a cute lady." Come on, give her a break. Can't, you also can't judge it of how she looks like in that she's movie. She's supposed to look crazy. She's supposed to look like she's, she's supposed losing to look her like mind. She's yeah, the most terrible time. Uh-huh. You know, and I do think people like say like, "Oh, this is why she's mentally ill because Stanley Cooper is horrible to her." The Stan- Stan- rumors of Stanley Kubrick abusing her on set are most likely f- false or exaggerated. Yeah. Because, like, there's a rumor about J- Jack Nicholson on the set of The Shining, how he comes home and he was only allowed to eat cheese sandwiches because Kubrick wanted him to be, like, you know, angry on, on camera. It's like, that's not true. But why it's the cheese sandwich thing is because he came home one day after doing a ta- the takes where his character has to take a bite of a cheese sandwich, and he would come home and be like, oh, I was eating cheese sandwiches all day. Mm-hmm. And that person tells another person, and that person says that he's been making them eat cheese sandwiches on the set all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, Same thing with, with, with Shelley Duvall. Like there's, you can see the Kubrick's daughter, Vivian, made a great making of The Shining. It's like 30 minutes. It's, it's absolutely amazing. You just, see, you just get to see Kubrick like talking, and walk, you get to see Jack Nicholson walking around the set, and Kubrick is just like, you know, walk, watching Kubrick just move and talk is so fascinating. Mm-hmm. Because you you think he had like a very like scholarly voice, but he just like, sounds like he's from the Bronx. Like he has like a you know, like I don't, I don't like he talks like Muffley in Doctor Strangelove. Like Dimitri, like he kind of has that weird like uh, to his voice, you know. Um, but uh, what was I getting to? You could see him arguing with Shelley Duvall on the set. Like, well, come on, what do you mean roll camera? We're killing ourselves out here, and you got to look desperate when you come out of the door, Shelley. Mm-hmm. And like he, he Shelley says he was doing it on purpose, but he was never like he would you know get in arguments with her. But that was pretty much it. Mm-hmm. You know, she but it obviously it was and it was stressful for everybody on the set. Like she was there for a long time. Jack Nicholson was there for a long time. There was there's a scene where she goes, look at this hunks of hair coming out of my hair, and there's like five hairs. And Kubrick takes it and goes, huh, hunks of hair. Okay. I don't sympathize with Shelly. <laughs> <laughs> he just says that. <laughs> but, there's, yes, there's, uh, that I would recommend watching. That's so fast. Yeah, I've watched yeah, that like yeah. a million I've times. I've seen little clips of that. Yeah. And it's like, th- I, I, they do play up that one. Like, there's the one specific thing where he's like, yeah, we're killing ourselves out yeah, here. Yeah, exactly, and it's yeah. all your fault. Kind of. Like, he like, doesn't I can't even that. get out of the door. He's like, we got to look desperate, Shelly. Otherwise, you're just wasting our time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And, I mean... Like I'm sure that a little bit of that was him, like, you know, prodding her too. Yeah, like, exactly. Yeah. But but um, I mean, even hearing her talk about it, she doesn't seem like it was the worst experience. She she says like, I would have like I think what she says is like I wouldn't do it again, but like I'm grateful for that experience because I got to work with Stanley Kubrick. Right. She didn't say like Stanley Kubrick's a fucking asshole. Yeah. Like, she was like I learned so life. much. I was like, you know. Yeah. Shelley Duvall up until that point only worked with Robert Altman, I believe, who was mm-hmm. another director, who, who's another ama- amazing director. I hopefully will do him, not do him, but hopefully we'll, do, we'll talk about his movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he, so she went off and did The Shining, and then her next movie was Popeye with Robert Altman again. And he and she came back, and he just goes, oh, you're a different actor now. Mm-hmm. Like, you changed. Yeah, yeah. she learned so much on The Shining. 
Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's a very valuable experience. To oh, like, definitely. Because also, like, if you make it through an experience like that, like, I'm sure there's nothing else that can really yeah. phase you, you know? Yeah. But it still seemed like she... I think I think people probably overplay that because it's, like, one of those things where obviously her character needed that. Yeah. So they think, like, he was abusing her so it would get in, in the role. And it yeah. was probably a little bit, but probably and, not as and, much as and people Kubrick, think. And Kubrick was that guy where all of his life... Like, we'll get to this in, in a later section of this. But he was always, like, the news, the media was always after him being like, oh, he's this weird recluse. They would always exaggerate things about him and just make up rumors and stuff because he would sort of, like deny the press prop the proper attention that they expected because he was a very private guy so they would always there was always there was anything anytime you hear a story about stanley kubrick that is about how about his negative character it's Mm. probably exaggerated just like probably some of the stories about how smart he was and how people think that everything in the shining is the most exact planned out you know intricate thing of all time which Mm. is like partly it is but he's, he's just a human being dude it's like one of those things because he never like really uh went to bat for himself almost like he never felt the need to defend himself yeah. until like later on maybe when he yeah, finally one did interview. he did one interview in 87 with tim cahill where he's like that's not true yeah yeah that's but it. even still I d- i've never seen the interview but i'm sure he didn't yeah. go too far into it to being like this is you know yeah he wasn't really mm-hmm. yeah um so even though shooting was scheduled for 17 weeks it ended up taking about a year. Others, m- other movies had to be delayed f- so that The Shining could finish filming at Elstree Studios. Yeah, Steven Spielberg was going to shoot Indiana Jones. He had to wait. Mm. Uh, uh, Warren Beatty was filming, was shooting Reds. He had to wait. And Kubrick would just, like, Kubrick, th- that was probably the most takes he did. Maybe Eyes Wide Shut more. But, like, there's that scene, apparently, but also, it's exa- again, it's exaggerated. Like, Kubrick talks about, like, you know, he th- th- this is a, a, s- a passage from that interview where he goes, actors are sometimes undisciplined enough to go home and learn their lines. Instead, they want to go out partying or whatever. They don't want to get proper sleep. <coughs> and then they come to the set, and they don't know the lines. So I make them do a bunch of takes. I make them do 40. And then suddenly 40 becomes 100, and then the press mm-hmm. runs with it or whatever and stuff like that. He goes, you cannot act if you have to think about the lines. They should just become second nature, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but also, like, the, the, the stu- part of the set was, like, burnt and caught on fire and they had to rebuild it so that delayed stuff a little bit more and Jack Nicholson and Shelley Duvall were in contracts where they couldn't leave they couldn't go to another production unless they were f- done with The Shining like they, Kubrick had them for as long as he wanted oh okay yeah so he did do you think that I mean that wouldn't cause him to like extend the no but like now he can just do he knew he didn't he have to rush or anything yeah mm. and 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 there's there's an entire book that Lee Unkrich, who's like a Pixar director, he wrote a book. It's like this, it's like a collector's edition book where it's like two thousand dollars, but it's just about the production of The Shining. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. That, that, so if you wanna, if you have extra pocket change lying around, you can buy that book for two thousand dollars. Which book? The it's the it's Lee Unkrich's making of The Shining. Oh okay. Mm-hmm. He has like all these production notes and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So The Shining releases, the critics hate it. Yes. And Kubrick recalls all copies of the film and cuts the ending. Which is a crazy thing to do. A movie's already out, and you go, wait, let me change the ending. Yeah, yeah. Because people, like, critics especially, like, hated it. They were like, what? This is the worst, dumbest. Again, because they de- they never, because you think horror. Kubrick would take horror and go, um, no, I'm not going to make, you know, like, a director would go, oh, I'm gonna, my horror movie's going to be darker and grittier and scarier. 
than any other movie it's been. But it's like, no, my movie's going to be scarier, but it's going to be brightly lit and not gritty, but just like there's going to be this invisible horror instead of some guy, you know, Michael Myers just w- slowly walking towards you. It's going to be something mm-hmm. different. And so, like, like again, people, he, it, it, the movie was like ahead of its time. Because, again, 10 years later it passes and then everybody loves it or whatever. People still hate it today, but like uh, Stephen King. Um, but pe- like the, one of the reasons Stephen King didn't like the movie is because he goes, it's misogynistic to, to Wendy. But it's like Wendy is like the, like the best person in the movie. Like she's doing all the work. Mm-hmm. In the mo- like if you, when Jack is at the hotel, or when, that, when they're at the hotel, Jack is always typing away or sleeping or whatever, doing God knows what. Wendy's like doing all the chores and she's hanging out with Danny all the time. She's being like a great mom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like, so how is that? Like in his movie, they made a TV series. Oh, yeah, I didn't tell you about that. They made a TV TV miniseries, Stephen King's The Shining, where it was like faithful to the book. And it sucked. It's bad. It's bad. I've seen clips. I mean, I shouldn't say it's bad because I haven't seen it. Yeah. But it's bad. Yeah, yeah. uh, No. Yeah, it's mid. No, I haven't seen it. (laughs) You know, it looks terrible. Christ, that wasn't me. That was the ghost. <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> um, over the yeah. So critics hate it. So Kubrick, there was so there was an there was an ending, right? So basically, let me give you the rundown of the story. They go to the uh, Jack Nicholson's character, J- Jack Torrance. He needs a job, and he gets hired to be the caretaker of a hotel. Him and his family go into the hotel, and I don't know why I'm saying that. anybody who's this far deep into it knows that The Shining is. But yeah, so, yeah. Anyway, he starts to go insane with his family because of the isolation, and then there's ghosts and stuff like that, and then. Uh, Obviously, Jack gets goes into the maze and Dan- chases Danny. Jack gets stuck in the maze. Danny and Wendy drive off in the snow cat, and then the movie ends, and then it cuts to the the picture of of Jack in the picture in the hallway. And that's the ending. But originally, and only if, if, if people like if you've seen somebody who's seen The Shining, if you know somebody who's seen The Shining when it first came out, they've seen this ending. Mm-hmm. Is Wendy and Danny are in the hospital, and uh, Ullman, the guy who run the the manager of the hotel. He's wearing this big fur coat, and he walks in and sees Danny. He goes, he goes, hey, we we checked out the place, and uh, there's no sign of anything that you like. We can't find Jack's body. The hotel's fine. There's no blood anywhere, or whatever. And then when he's like, oh, and then Ullman, uh turns around and shows a ball to Danny, and then tosses him the ball, and Danny catches it. And like Kubrick was very intent that it bounces three times. Mm-hmm. And that's like leaving this ominous thing, ominous thing that like maybe Ullman had something to do with it. And people saw, so people saw the ending. You cannot find that ending in it. There's production stills of it. You can find like a script around, but you can't, Kubrick destroyed the footage. Mm-hmm. He took it out. He recalled all the foot, all the prints, and then took it out, destroyed all the footage, and then sent it back in. And then it did, it did better, and people liked it a little because the ending, it left that ambiguity that makes the, the Shining so scary. The, one of the reasons The Shining is so scary is because it's completely... It's, at the end of the day, out of all the theories you have, and we'll go through all the theories, it's completely unknowable. Mm-hmm. You'll never know. There's this invisible horror to not knowing what's going on. You mm-hmm. know? So that, that other ending gave more of a conclusive thing to it, which yeah, it, made it, it just a little bit too much of a knot, like a, a bow at the end. Mm-hmm. Of like, oh, Omen has something to do with this. Because mm-hmm. just leaving that leaving that out makes it a lot more scary. Definitely, yeah. I don't know if I have a theory on how like how that movie ends or any like. Well, you're unique because everybody does. Yeah, it's yeah. Ti- it's, it's sometimes it's tiring, mm-hmm. th- especially the ones that aren't good. We'll mm-hmm. get to them. But um, what uh, 
What do we got next on there? So the, uh, this says that there are two separate cuts of the shiny yes. still in circulation. Today. So I so th- my sister in law is British, and I told her there's a, there's a European cut of the shining, and then there's an American cut. The European cut is about is about two hours. There's 20 minutes cut out, and the American cut is two hours and 29 minutes. So I guess the, the European cut's two hours and nine minutes. I've seen both of them because I was like, what? He cu- Cooper cuts out some of the allusions to like the Native American stuff, which makes sense, I guess, if you're releasing a movie in Europe. Mm-hmm. The Native American stuff might not like resonate as much, but p- people. Somebody says that Kubrick said that he likes the European cut, but I don't think that I don't. I don't think the European cuts as good. I've watched it. I'm like, this isn't this isn't working the same. Mm-hmm. There's some stuff cut out, and there's only one scene that I believe should have been cut out, and it's a scene where with with Dick Halloran when he goes to like this gas station and he talks to. But everything else I should I think should have been left in. Um, but I think that one's. I think the. I think the the main cut of The Shining is better. People say, oh, the, the European cut's better because it moves faster. It's like, who cares? Mm-hmm. Time doesn't make any sense when a movie becomes as timeless as The Shining. you know. And, um, yeah. So I w- if you want to watch The Shining again, don't watch the European cut. Mm-hmm. I, asked for the Euro- I asked for the American cut on Blu-ray for Christmas. You can just, like, buy... Because this box set I have, The Shining oh, okay. is the European cut. I watched uh, it. I saw it. I'm like, two hours. So I looked it up. I'm like, oh, shit, there's a European cut? Mm-hmm. Cut? My voice didn't crack. When why I said did it? To why did it? Why did that one come with the? I don't know. It, I guess it just depends on the manufacturer who made it. Oh, okay. It's weird. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Is that the only one of his movies that has two separate? I'm pretty sure. Like, there's a, there's an unrated version of the of Eyes Wide Shut that has some of the nudity that was cut out of the theatrical. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's pretty much. I think like, you know, the cut was the cut for a lot of his movies. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, let me get into my thoughts a little bit about like what I think about The Shining. I think of The Shining as an abyss of interpretation. Again, you'll never know what the movie is really about because even if you figure out something, there's another theory where you go, oh, yeah, that, that makes sense too or whatever. I believe The Shining is about the horrors of the foundation of America and how America is built on tragedies that are basically going to haunt us forever and ever. Because if you look at the Native American stuff, there's the allusions to Native American genocide. There's some allusions, there's some, that, there's some allusions that I think are valid uh, to the U.S.'s history with gold, right? And there's a lot of other things that we'll get to. Um, but at the end, the picture, it's dated July 4th, 1921. Uh, the U.S. is Independence Day. Mm-hmm. That's not a coincidence. Like, that's yeah, a very, yeah. a very inten- intended intentional date thing to put yeah, July you don't forward. pick that day if right. it's not intentional and, and we'll get to some of the more stuff about it being the foundations of America but it's mainly the, the Native American genocide mainly uh, a th- the theory about the gold standard that is uh, propagated by this guy Rob Ag- Ager, Ager on YouTube who's pretty good most of the stuff he has to say about that is good there's some other stuff I'm like you're reaching dude mm-hmm. but um, yeah so let's get let's get into the, the, the theories about The Shining okay Years later, fans can't stop analyzing the movie and formulating their own theories. One is the movie is an allegory for Native American genocide. Yeah, so like the, in terms of the allusions to that, there's Omen says that oh, it was built on an ancient burial ground, and and uh, if I believe, if I'm correct, we had to fend off some, they had to fend off some alien uh, alien attack, Indian attacks when mm-hmm. they were making the thing, and then there's. Um, there's there's a ton of like uh, Native American imagery in the sh- like in the direct decorations of the halls. There's some paintings that Jack throws the bouncy ball. The bouncy ball significant because mm-hmm. that cut ending with Ullman. But also we can't use that ending as a interpretation because Cooper cut it out. Um, but Jack is throwing the ball against like these fig these Native American figures like these totems or whatever. Um, 
there's the Calumet uh, can with the Native American guy on it next to Doc Dick Halloran's head when he goes, how about some ice cream, Doc? And then also the the blood that comes out of the elevator. Uh, in co- in the in con- in the context of the Native American genocide, that can also represent the blood of the Native Americans. Mm-hmm. And it is it spill? Uh, is the carpet like a Native American type of design, or that carpet is something that people always bring up? The, uh, like the, the, the like design that, on the that, carpet. That the, the carpet that looks that it's like an octagon with a. It's just all. Patterns. I don't know. I don't know. If, I don't know if the carpet is a design, but if you look at also Jack throws the ball at another. There's like the there's like a there's like all the wall hangings are all Native American designs. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, there's a lot of allusions to that. Yeah. Which it's basically an allegory mm-hmm. for the American genocide. Which would be a sort of an ironic thing to put all over a hotel that's like they had to fight off Native ba- Americans. Yeah, on an in Indian burial, mm-hmm. burial ground. Are you kidding me? Mm-hmm. Obviously, that place is cursed. Yeah, yeah. You know? And then and then just to have all their decorations all over the wall. It's like yeah. Oh, uh, okay. And then allusions to America switching off the gold standard. Yeah. So th- so this is a th- like a theory I half buy into. So there's a thing with like the gold room. So originally Kubrick had the gold room painted silver, and then after they were done with it, he's like, "Actually, no, make it gold, mm-hmm. right?" And then when Jack goes into, um, into the gold room for the first time, where where Wendy confronts him for hurting Danny, uh, he goes to Lloyd, and it's just them two, and he and he hands him a like a bill, and it works, and he gets his drink. But then when Jack travels back in time. Uh, he goes. Your the guy goes. Your money is no good here. And he goes. Well, how's my credit? And he goes. Your credit's fine, because America switched off the gold standard sometime in between 1921 and you know when, whenever The Shining came out. So now money was no longer tied to the price of gold. It was you know tied to whatever, yeah. not like the federal in the creation of the federal. I don't know about the economics behind it. So when he goes back in time and tries to use his present day money, it doesn't. He goes. It's no good here because it's not. Uh, it's not backed by gold, mm-hmm. right? And there's another thing where, um, Ku- like Kubrick was big into gold. He was like, this is uh, like he was he had a bunch of his money in gold, like in banks and shit like that. And at the end, the gold room. After the movie ends, like when they when they push in to the frame of Jack in the in the crowd in 1921, th- that frames in another gold room like that sign just says the gold room but there's no gold anywhere mm-hmm. it's just this weird hallway or whatever and he tries to do this thing where like in the picture is there's people who people who started the federal reserve like uh um uh, fdr's like daughter and there's and uh, other, a lot of people in like the FB, uh, fdr administration who were responsible for the federal reserve and getting off of gold he says they were in the frame but it's like it's he's i think he's really reaching with like this person kind of looks like a young this person. It's like, dude, where are you, where are you getting that from? Mm-hmm. Um, what's the next theory? Jack is in hell. Yeah, so, th- so basically the premise of this theory is that in the real world, Jack already killed Wendy and Danny in the hotel, and now this is his punishment for eternity over and over again. And this is supported by when Grady says, you've always been the ter- caretaker, you've always been here, and Jack is in the, in the, in the bedroom uh, and when Wendy brings him breakfast, and he's eating the breakfast, and he goes, "You know, when I came here, you know, I had the feeling like a familiarity, like I've been here before." And basically, the idea is he's just cursed to go through this over and over and over mm-hmm. and over again. And just and, and that's the thing about these theories is like just because one theory, like that that theory has credence, credence is credence yeah, yeah. the right word? Yeah, yeah, credence. 
the I think the the Native American theory has cre- credence. I think those can both be true. Yeah, definitely. Because it's all about like a pris- it, like, The movies are like basically like pr- prisms of interpretation. Mm-hmm. Like depending on what angle you look at it. Like w- if I'm one day I look at it through the Native American thing, I go, oh, that's right. Yeah. One day I look I look at through that, and I go, that's also right. They're all cool ways yeah. of like, looking at it. Yeah. I like I like either one of those. It's like a it's like certain movies where there's like a sort of a different a definite um reason for it or whatever yeah. or even if someone comes out and says what it's about it like blocks it into that one thought exactly. which isn't bad You'll never for see certain it in things. that cont- you know yeah that's like one thing when i listen to a song if someone tells me like the real reason for it i hate that yeah. cuz i'm thinking i'm thinking of it in multiple different ways like for this like you're telling me different reasons and none of them are like concrete to actually be the thing, but they're all right. cool ways of thinking. I mean, about but also, it. they're not. They don't sound concrete. If they don't sound concrete, I'm also just an idiot who's like half remembering. I didn't mean you know? like I didn't mean yeah, it I like that. Mean. I meant it like yeah. like they're they're just like all different ways of looking at it, basically. Yeah. And I'm also more interested in an audience interpretation of a movie rather than the director. Yeah. Like again, mm-hmm. like when I talked about Kubrick on the phone with that guy, there's nothing more uninteresting than a director talking about what his movie means. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No- Nolan did that on Memento, where he was like, "Oh, so this is what happened at the end." And then his brother was like, "Don't ever do that again." He was like, "Oh shit, you're right." Yeah, yeah. Then, like, stop. Because and then once you, because then it would just cut off all the conversation. We wouldn't be having tw- thirty years of the Shining conversations, mm-hmm. being like, "Oh, what's it this about?" Whatever, you mm-hmm. know. That's why I, after I watched two thousand one, I texted you and I was like, "I want to look up on YouTube like don't do it ending explained." Yeah, you could actually. Well, I just don't want. I d- I don't like. Yeah. Want to? I don't want to de- like you, someone you to tell me like a definitive end and ending yeah. to it. I mean, I don't mind watching videos like that as long like as long as it's like not the first thing I watch after the movie. Yeah, I yeah. think you should sit on the movie and be like, all right, let me. Chew yeah, on that's this why I'm glad I did. Yeah, what's mm-hmm. the next one? Uh, the ghosts don't exist outside the Torrance's um, psyches. psyches. Yeah, I think this theory is like coupled with another theory by that Rob uh, Iger Ager guy, where. The, the ghosts don't exist outside the Torrance's psyches because Kubrick described this movie as a family going insane together. And then there's another theory that Jack is sexually abusing Danny. And I'll try to get through that as fast as possible. So in the movie, right, there's if you, if you look at it through the context of Jack is sexually abusing Danny, there's a scene where uh, the, basically the sequence starts at... Danny watching TV with his mom, and Jack is upstairs. So this is like the sec- this is the, the the biggest intersection of the movie. It's right in the center, and the killing and Rochamon are important to think about, and I'll, I'll explain why. So we we're, we're in the TV room, and then he goes, "Mom, can I go get my fire truck from the the room?" She goes, "Yeah, but your dad's sleeping. Just be careful." That scene was cut out in the European cut. Then he goes up there, and he's acting all careful, and he sees his dad, uh, with the bathroom behind him, and he's sitting on the bed, and his dad's just Jack is just staring. Mm-hmm. out the window and then he goes come here and he moves his arm like this and Danny comes over there and then they have this weird creepy conversation of Jack going you know I'll never do anything to hurt you mm-hmm. I wouldn't do that right and he's like yeah dad you won't do it and the music ramps up and you get the sense that like, something bad is going to happen mm-hmm. and then it cuts to Wednesday right and the next thing we see is the scene with Danny's wearing the Apollo 11 shirt and the ball rolls up to, rolls up to him and he goes mom and then he, he sees that the door to room 237 is open he goes in. He blacks. He and then the, the, it cuts to black. Mm-hmm. The next scene we see is Wendy in the boiler room, and there's a there's, there's like a first aid sign talking about like the dangers of choking and what to do if somebody's choking. 
That's significant. She hears Jack. Then at that at that moment, she hears Jack yelling at his typewriter in the in the the big lobby. He's mm-hmm. going, oh, oh. He wakes up and he's like, what the fuck? She's like, Jack, what happened? And he, and he thinks for a second and he goes, I had a dream that I killed you and Danny. And then all of a sudden, Danny walks over, and he has bruises on his neck from mm. getting choked. And when he's like, you did this to him, didn't you? And Jack's like, what the fuck? And then she runs away. Jack goes to, uh, down the hall into the gold room, and Lloyd's there, and he buys the drink. And he's like, yeah, that bitch. He, he calls her the old sperm bank upstairs. He's mm-hmm. like being really misogynistic or whatever. And he's, but being, he's, he's like all guilty when he's walking down. Every time he passes a mirror, he goes, <laughs> he does like a weird thing. And then, and then Wendy, after that scene, uh, at the end of that scene, walks in, runs in, and goes, Jack, there's a crazy woman in one of the rooms. She tried to strangle Danny. And he goes, are you out of your fucking mind? And then he goes, no, she tried to strangle me. He goes, all right, I'll go look. The next thing we see is him walking into room 237. He walks in, and in the, he goes into the bathroom, and there's a naked lady, and she opens the curtain like this, mm-hmm. the same way that he signaled Danny to come over here earlier. And then he walks in and starts kissing her. And then in the mirror, a mirror, which is significant, which I'll, I'll try to get to, is he sees the mirror and then all, he sees that she's all covered in boils and open wounds and she's all gross. And he's just, he's just, she's just this gross old lady. And he's like, oh, oh. And then it cuts with Danny going like mm-hmm. that. You see pictures of Danny. And then I think Halloran sees this as well. Halloran's like, what the fuck? And it's this big giant sequence. And then Jack gets runs out of room 237 and locks the door and then creeps away. And then the, ne- the next time we see him, in the next scene, w- Wendy opens the door to the apartment, and she goes, did you find her? And he goes, no, I didn't see a goddamn thing. Mm. I know I'm rambling. Let me finish, please. This is good. No, no, he's I super, going. He's I'm, super <laughs> I'm calm. I'm getting spooked out, honestly. <laughs> he's super <laughs> calm, right? Mm-hmm. So if we view this from the perspective of Jack is sexually abusing Danny, somewhere between him going, I would never do anything to hurt you, which sign- like suggests that something bad is going to happen. If we assume that he sexually abused Danny, right? He lur- he lures Danny into the room 237 with the ball. Danny goes into the room. He blacks out. Children who've been molested when yeah, they were young tend to black thing. experiences that, which is very scary to think because you black it out. You don't have memory of it, which makes me think, wait, what the hell? Mm-hmm. Did I black something out? Yeah, oh, God. Anyway, not important. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so he goes in there. He blacks out. Then... We cut to uh, Jack, right? And he's screaming. If we assume that his nightmare is the scene where he goes into room 237 and he's having that nightmare while he's sleeping. So that scene takes place while R- Wendy is running over going, Jack, what's, what's wrong? You understand? Are you following the crime? Yeah, yeah. And so because that scene represents the, like what he's just done. Like he just sexually abused his, his son. At first, it seemed like a good idea. And then he looks in the mirror and sees that what he did was disgusting. Yeah, and like he's horrified. Yeah, and that's wh- and Danny's also associated associated with that scene because he's going like that because mm-hmm. he has the shining. So that's important that Danny's associated with that, right? And then he comes in, uh, or, or and then yeah, Danny comes in with the cho- the chokes on his neck, and she correctly assumes like you did this, didn't you, or whatever. And then he she walks out, and then he's like, "Fuck, I did it." She's right, whatever. He walks into the gold room, and when she comes in, he goes, "There's a crazy woman in one of the rooms." She tried to strangle Danny. He's genuinely. Are you out of your fucking mind? Because he knows it was him. Yeah, yeah. It's like so he goes to look, and when he goes to look, that isn't when he goes into room two thirty seven. Two thirty seven, when he goes in there, it was his dream. Yeah. So he goes to look, and then or pretends to, and then he comes back the next scene and just goes, uh, "I didn't see a goddamn thing," and he's all calm. 
So if you take the killing where everything's out of order a little bit and apply that to that scene, that's significant. And then the you know the bear in that the the guy in the bear costume? I can't now I'm, my brain is just trying to th- all right, think. Sorry. No, no, that was one, I, one I totally thing. get this goes all into of what this goes into said, the though. psyches being the ghosts and, mm-hmm. I, and then we'll we'll move on cuz I know we're getting out of the out of hand here. So mm-hmm. and this I, I can't be incredible like this is this, this isn't any original thoughts. These are just what people think of the internet. Again, no. that guy Robert Jeer is very helpful in mm-hmm. terms of um but in this in this the 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 hallucination or the ghost being the, the psyches of the characters. So Danny when he's being talked about to the doctor about like he had this like event at home where he like passed out or whatever, there's he's he has this bear uh, pillow behind him and the eyes are cut that and it looks very similar to the the elevator, and also face you can see faces all over the the the, the Overlook Hotel. Mm-hmm. Kubrick made it spatially impossible. There's like faces everywhere. The elevator, the screaming elevator, the elevator with the blood coming out. You could see there's a, it's a screaming face. The eyes. Or like a, or ha- a semicircle, and mm-hmm. it looks like it's going ah like that. Um, so then the bear's behind him, when she's like, is, "Is Tony your friend? Like, what happened? Like, there's this weird psychological thing going on with Danny, and he's covering his his like genitals when the doctor's mm-hmm. there, and this bear's right behind him. And then later in the movie, where Wendy's running around trying to find Jack and um, and Danny, while Jack is getting chased by, or Danny's chasing, Danny's getting chased by Jack with the with the axe. Uh, uh, she runs upstairs. Wendy runs upstairs, and she sees a guy in a bear costume giving a guy in a suit head. Mm. And if you interpret that as her finally realizing what's going on in her family, that this is what Jack has been doing, because the bear is very important, because the bear is is associated with Danny from because it was right, it was right in the frame, right yeah, behind yeah. his head, you know. And that's it's really really spooky. Damn, that that one seems like. With all the information, all the information that you just told me, like yeah. that seems like it could be real. Like I don't know. Yeah, there's so many I mean, interpretations, but that one again, seems. Yeah. After visualizing all that, like that, that's yeah. like gonna be next time I watch the movie, it's gonna be stuck in my mind. Yeah. that that specific one. Also, take what I say with a grain of salt because I watched the Room Two Thirty Room Two Thirty Seven documentary, and I was like, this is so true. And uh, you know, yeah, with yeah, the way p- people present information, it could be very true. And last thing that the, the, to nail it in. There's a scene where Jack is reading a magazine when he's before he gets interviewed uh, for the job mm-hmm. at the Overlook, and he's reading a Playgirl magazine. And if you f- look up that magazine, there's an article on it that says uh, incest in families: why parents sleep with their children. Oh, so he's like doing research, like why do I want to do this? I don't know if he's doing or research, but it's just weird that he's reading a Playgirl magazine at a job interview. Yeah, know? yeah. So mm-hmm. I guess that was like, th- it could be an, an incidental thing, but mm-hmm. you know. Anyway. Uh, the next one, do you want to keep going with these? Yeah, or? sure, go okay. ahead. The Overlook is a CIA mind control operation. Yeah, this is the, I think this is like the, there's literally one piece of evidence for this and that's mm-hmm. it. Like some this, people this think. This sounds like, compared to the last one that we were just talking about, this sounds like it's going to be like a. Yeah. Drop off. I mean, it gets me excited when people say it because I know a lot about the MK Ultra thing. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. basically, there's a when Danny first sees the two twins mm-hmm. in in the game room, there's a poster that says Monarch. There was a there was a project Monarch in the CIA MK Ultra thing. It was like a sub project, mm-hmm. and that's it. So people are like it must be the CIA. People say like the Omen's right hand man. I forget the guy's name. He's like the running the operation where he you know they're experimenting on mind control on the Torrance family in an mm-hmm. isolated area, making them see things. It's like yeah, that's fun, but like other than just that one poster, it's like okay. Mm-hmm. Okay, Wendy is the villain. 
Yeah, the Wendy theory. So this guy, I think his, his name was like Evan Navarro or whatever. He had a theory that all the every time something bad happens, like every time Jack's doing something uh, bad, it's Wendy like hallucinating that uh, she didn't do it and that da- Jack did. So he says like every time there's a continuity error, like anytime a scene move, like a chair moves, like a light switch like suddenly appears or whatever, it means that the scene is from Wendy's perspective, and uh, she's and it's really her who's the villain. She's like project. She's like hallucinating that she's a good mother, and and ja- she's like making Jack the villain or whatever. I don't think it holds up because some continuity errors are just continuity errors. I it, even if they're, they're but intentional or not, they still should be interpreted because it it kind of lo- makes all these things that Cooper changes. Like there's there there are things that are intentional. Like when the the ball rolls up to Danny, the the pattern the pattern on the carpet is let's say north to south. Mm-hmm. And then when Danny stands up, the pattern on the carpet switched, and it's south to north. And that's inten- like the ha- something like that should be intentional. Yeah, it is yeah. intentional. Because it, it, it gives you this feeling that the, 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 the hotel is moving around you, and it's weird. And, and like you, but it's, but also, you just watched a movie about the nicest lady ever trying to save her son from this maniac. And this guy may be sexually abusing his son, and then you're going to say, that, no, she's the villain because, you know, you're going to blame all the, st- all the bad stuff that happens on her. Because she reads Catcher in the Rye, she reads Catcher in the Rye, so they're like, "Oh, she's crazy." These are her hallucinations. It's like, all right, I don't know. Yeah, about that's that. Mm-hmm. that one seems like the least. Yeah, well, I mean, I've, other than the CIA one, just because there's one thing, but like, yeah, um, moon landing confession. Yeah, people think so. Like we talked about the the lenses that NASA made mm-hmm. uh, for th- for or Zeiss made for NASA, and Kubrick used those. People think that Kubrick on 2001 was basically like doing research to fake the moon landing because of the front projections. If you look at the moon landing footage, it does look like front projection. So what front projection is that he used on 2001, especially with the Dawn of Man sequence, is you have a set, and then you have like a blank, can- a very highly reflective uh, canvas, and then you have a, a front projection of an image going through a piece of, gl- uh, of like a one-way mirror that's, mm-hmm. like, that's like tilted at a 45-degree angle. So that image goes through the mirror and onto the canvas, and then the image bounces back onto the mirror side of the one-way mirror into the camera. So it's like a real-time analog green screen, mm-hmm. right? And uh, the thing about that is you can sometimes see the separation between the background and the set, and some of the moon landing footage does have that effect, where like you'd see the foreground, and then at some point there's like a separation, and then it looks like a background, right? So people th- that's why people think Kubrick uh, directed the moon landing. There's uh, also the moon room sequence, the sequence where Danny gets raped in that other theory. Uh, this guy, Jay Widener, describes that if moon, if you look at room number, you, you have room and then N-O. The only words you can make out of those are moon and room. And 237 is the amount of miles that the moon is away from Earth, right? Mm. But also you can get moron from those letters. <laughs> and if you look at a lot of, th- it's like two ter- 238 is the average length sometimes mm-hmm. uh, from the sun or from the, the moon to the earth. So like that number's a little bit squirrely, like more, yeah, whatever. Da- but in that scene also, Danny's wearing the Apollo 11 shirt. It's like, all right, I'll give you that. Yeah, that's yeah, pretty that's funny. But that's that's also probably just a, I mean, to disprove that, that's also like a very common shirt that was probably going around at the time. Yeah. Like, you know. Yeah, and it's uh, yeah, it was the, the 80s. Yeah. The moon landing was awesome. Yeah. But also, it could have been Kubrick like knowing that those theories and being like, yeah, let me just f- like throw that in. That's funny. Yeah, what yeah, why not? Yeah, is that the last one? 
Uh, no, uh, an allegory for the Holocaust. Oh, yeah, people think, yeah, I don't think this one is that, um, holy shit, we're about to do an hour just on The Shining alone. <laughs> That's Fuck. fine. Um, Maybe release just a Shining episode or something. <laughs> yeah, know. right. So people think, uh, there's some guy who thinks that uh, it's the Holocaust because the number 42 keeps propping up, which is apparently has relations to the Holocaust. There's a, there's a, the typewriter that Jack's, the Jack's, that Jack uses. Mm-hmm. Is like a certain brand that like has Nazi. Ty- I don't. I don't know exactly. I like. I think all. all I think all the uh, revelation, all the allusions to the Holocaust that they're talking about is probably the Native American stuff. He talks about how Danny retracing his steps in the in the maze when J- when Jack is chasing him is basically like retracing your steps behind, like you know, looking at that back at history and using history to not repeat itself and stuff like that. I don't know. It's very. I'm not doing a great job of explaining it, but I, I read and listened to, all like some of the stuff that describes it, and like that's not very convincing. That's not a lot because forty. That's just you're looking at numbers. That's just like all right. That could mm-hmm. be. I mean, there's, there, there, you use like weird. If you, whenever you use weird math to like make a connection, like well, you get these number. You get eight and you know, uh, fucking what's like a, what's a what's some what's something divisible by what's something what is forty two divisible by. I don't want to say seven. Like seven? Yeah, seven. So it's like seven. Oh, you get seven times five or seven times six, seven, six. You times those together, you get 42. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, if you do that with another number and multiply by 17 and then yeah, you know, subtract by 100, you get 40, mm-hmm. whatever. Um, so I don't think that's very... Anyway. Stanley's home life. Up until 1979, Kubrick and his family live in Ab- Abbott's Mead, Manor, which was sold to him by Simon Cowell's father. In 1978, Kubrick had bought Childwickbury Manor in Hertfordshire, England. Especially later in his career, tabloids tried to paint Kubrick as a crazy recluse when in reality he was a very present family man with a tight circle of friends. Yeah, like he, there, if, especially in that book, you realize that Kubrick's, Kubrick's like home was like uh, the nucleus for his entire movie productions. And he always had his friends and family like circling around, like involved in production. Like Vivian was, o- his family was always on the sets of his movies. Like they're always just hanging out. And you, there's all this great video on of Kubrick on YouTube that you can find, where it's just like him sitting. It's in 1983. He's like sitting in one of his offices or whatever, and they're playing with a video camera. That's like a new thing at the time. And Kubrick's just sitting there. He's all shy. He goes, "What do you want for Christmas, Stanley?" And he's like, "I want a, uh, a Fortune computer." And he goes, why? He goes, because it has the uh, best chip architecture and uh, the best operating system. <laughs> yeah, and he's like, well, what's it called? And he goes, it's called Unix. <laughs> and he's just like being a weird, he's, he's just like, they're, they're talking, how does he know so much about manuals to computers? Mm-hmm. He's just going through a manual going, yeah, the Berkshire one isn't that good, but this one's very good. So like you've read that manual? Yeah. He just like, what? And he, he loved animals. Dude. There's, and also in those videos, you could just see his cats lying around. And he had a bunch of cats all the time. There was one story that his uh, one of his daughters told, where he left a when they were leaving to go somewhere, he left a note for the people who were taking care of his cats. Yeah, I think the names was like it was like Freddie, it was Freddie and uh, Tommy. Let's say they were they were like a father and son tomcat, and it it was like an eighteen step thing of like, um, if Tommy and you know Freddie start fighting, the first thing to do would be to uh, pour water on them, and if that doesn't work, you should open the door because Tommy can outrun Freddie. 
Mm-hmm. If, there, if there's no way to get him out the door, then you just keep screaming and throwing water on them until they stop, whatever. Wave shirts around. Yeah, and wave shirts around. It's and just like, picturing not, Kubrick doing yeah, that is so Do funny. not grab Tommy. You can grab the other one, but do not grab... Like, he's yeah, 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 so yeah. specific about just, like, interaction between two cats. Yeah, exactly. Like, how does like he know... Imagine like, how everything else was. Like, yeah. He, and, he, he put, and also, there was another story where he was talking about his cat was, like, sick or whatever. He's like, I don't know if he's drinking enough water. And he goes, well, how much water is he drinking? He's like, I don't know. He goes, well, he goes, there's no way to really tell how much water they're drinking. He goes, all right. And then he hangs up the phone, and then Cooper calls him back and goes, well, how many, how, how much water do they do they drink up every like lap, like every time they lick the water? And he goes, I don't know. I'll I'll, I'll check it out. So the guy calls like a vet or whatever, and he gets back to Kubrick, and then Kubrick sits there and counts the amount of licks that the cat's taking to see how much water he's drinking. Like he was that yeah, kind yeah. of guy where mm-hmm. he was just he was also like, he was still obsessed with chess. You know, every time somebody would play, he like he learned somebody would play chess. He goes, "You play, you play chess," mm-hmm. and he would play them. Mm-hmm. You know, I saw a funny thing actually about him and ping pong too. Oh yeah, yeah. With uh, Tell it. on uh, Malcolm McDowell. Yeah, that he would just like make them play ping pong every time they were on set. Like ha- a lot of their hanging out was on uh, playing ping pong, and I think something about him wanting to get uh, the actor wanting to get paid and being like. Not paying him enough because he was like, we played ping pong most yeah, of the time. Yeah, they, like, they, they did like two weeks of recording for the narration, and he goes, a week was that of that was ping pong. I'll pay you for one week. Yeah, yeah, that was mm-hmm. good. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I, I would definitely recommend that book, Stanley Kubrick and Me. The the, the stories that Emilio, uh, and he was like so, he, but he was so demanding of people who worked for him too. Like every Emilio would go home at night, he would drive like an hour home, and then Kubrick could call him and be like, Emilio, one more thing. Mm-hmm. He because he was so good at delegating. He wasn't Kubrick wasn't lazy. Like he wasn't sitting going, "Hey, get this book for me." Yeah, he was yeah. always he was he never slept. Mm-hmm. He would he slept so little. His wife talked about that. Like he would, he died when he was seventy. Like he slept so little and he worked so hard on these movies. It was mm-hmm. insane. Mm-hmm. And it uh, it says in 1985 his mother and father died six months apart. That's nuts. Yeah, yeah. That six. Th- they talk about that in the book where Emilio, his assistant, after his father died. I think his father died first. After his father died, he had a dream that Jack or Jock, he was it was Jock was his dad, but they called him Jack. Mm-hmm. His uh, his 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 Stanley's father came to Emilio in a dream. Was like, tell Stanley I'm all right. And then the next day, Emilio didn't tell him. He was like, I don't know if I should like mess him with a guy's emotions like that. And then the next night, he had like a, a, the same Another dream of dream. his dad going like, no, seriously, tell Please him. Please tell him that. So crazy. then he he told Kubrick, mm-hmm. and um. And Cooper was like, thank you a lot. Wow. Imagine, like, having that dream, like, and then the next night it's, like, a yeah. reassuring dream where it's yeah. like, nah. You better tell this guy. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, he, he he was, he was, like, learning about his home life in that book is, is just so, fa- like, the care, it, it, that, it paints such a human portrait of Cooper because mm-hmm. you're always, he's just this in- untouchable genius. It's like, yeah. no, but he was still, like, a guy who was very funny. He yeah. loved having people over for dinner. Anytime he was always inviting people over. He lo- he loved having company at his mm-hmm. house. Yeah, and especially I mean, obviously for someone like you who like knows pretty much not everything, but clo- a, a good amount, close to everything about him. Like for you to learn that he is like not just some like recluse. Yeah, he's just a know, nice guy. You know, some mm, uh, I guess you would call him a mar- is martyr now that he's. 
I guess sort of. I mean, like I don't a, know. Well, he didn't not do Mar- no, yeah, he's not like, something like that. Yeah, so, something of a god in a in a sense. Not he's come. He's become like a myth ever since he died. Yeah, but when yeah. you get to he know, was he, already he's sort, sort of a myth, myth. in the in the, the the lexicon, the culture of movies. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. and I also in, in conspiracy culture, he's like the conspiracy director. Yeah, people always associate him with conspiracies. Mm-hmm. Him and Spielberg. So he's just like has some air to him, and to learn that he's more human than a lot of people think is yeah. very nice, sort of a nice touch. You oh, know? yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. I definitely appreciated that while learning about yeah. it. Goodbye, my sweetheart. Hello, Vietnam. Full Metal Jacket, 1987. Pre-production on a Full Metal Jacket took longer than usual. Kubrick read The Short Timers by Gustav Hasford in 1982, and his production team finally started filming in August 1985. It was funny because it sounded like he said there was The Short Timers written by The Goose. <laughs> yeah, I stumbled on the goose, the goose stuff. Are we getting too far to the podcast where our tired brains are just thinking that's really funny? Yeah, yeah, nothing, yeah, no. yeah. And also, as you can see, uh, Danny's crisscross applesauce in his chair because he's afraid to let his feet touch the floor after all that shining talk. The yeah, 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 I can't. I'm thinking about <laughs> things in the corner and yeah. stuff. So Full Metal Jacket, the pre-production for it was pretty... People say he was in pre-production for Full Metal Jacket since 1980, and I think it's not, you know, the short time... Like, he read the novel in 1980 and spent, f- like, five years developing it. I think it was... He knew he was going to make a movie about Vietnam, and he was just looking for... He read, again, he was looking for the material, the source material, like... It was really hard for him to find that. Christian mm-hmm. talks about that. Like he, it, it killed him that he couldn't find more mo- stuff to make movies about, you know. And um, and then you read the short timers in, in 1982. That's three years of pre-production because they started filming in '85, right? So that's pretty much that's a long time. Gustav Hasford originally he was writing with him, and then he fired him, and then got Michael Hare who did uh, who read who wrote Dispatches. Both of those guys, were Michael Hare and Gustav Hasford, were Vietnam vets. Uh, I believe, yeah, Gustav Hasford was a Vietnam vet. And Michael Hare was, wrote a book called Dispatches, which is like the best book ever written about Vietnam. It's like a reporting, it was a report book. It was, I, don't, I don't think it was fiction, it was nonfiction. Um, so they started writing the script. Um, I think, f- and we'll, we'll talk about during the production, I think Full Metal Jacket is probably my favorite Kubrick movie because I, it's the one movie where it feels like Kubrick just like hanging with the boys. Mm. Like uh, you know, he's just working with like all these hot, like hot young, not hot like well hot physically, but hot like they're young and they're actors that are mm. getting you know very much in demand, and he just has them for as long as he wants, and they're just chilling on the set, hanging out. I know it wasn't like that; it was extremely grueling to film, but he's still he's hanging out with the boy with the young boys, the young yeah, bulls, yeah. you know, the fellas. Yeah, with the fellas. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Um. <laughs> <laughs> what do we got? <laughs> Um, Kubrick originally started writing the script with Gustav Hasford, oh, but fired him. Okay, okay. Becton Gasworks yes. in England was chosen as the location of the film sequence in the city of Hue in Hue. Hue in Vietnam. That's crazy. Hue. Want to hear something crazy? Kubrick filmed all of Full Metal Jacket inside a 30-mile radius of his home in Childworth Ferry. Because he was just like, I don't want to go anywhere he's like why just not do it here yeah. he found becton gasworks was like an industrial plant that had basically the same the same architecture as the city of Hue did in vietnam and he heard and it, it, the, some music videos were shot there beforehand but he heard that it was going to be demolished and he went to the company and was like wait can i film a movie here maybe and they were like yes oh, yeah. so then they spent a long time they were there scouting it in like 1983 1984 uh, uh, there's a there's a picture of emilio and stanley kubrick and me 
where it's it's him scouting the location and stuff like that, and they had wrecking balls coming in because, and also Kubrick talked about uh, that he that he learned making movies is he wanted he liked the fact that they weren't building a set of a destructive dis- destroyed city, they were taking like this gas works and destroying it. Yeah, because it's 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 a much better when you destroy because there's a there's a logic in how something gets destroyed. And he goes, when you take a rock, when you make a fake rock for a movie, th- what the production designers always do is they replicate a real rock because subconsciously in your mind, you know that there's like a, it, it, like you know that there's a logic to each rock. Like they've been bumping around like a certain time. When you make like a fake rock, it just doesn't work right. Mm-hmm. He applied that same uh, logic to the Becton gas works. Yeah. And I do think some of the, I don't know how much of it is intentional, but I do think like sometimes when, when there's just like something constantly on fire and it's like that looks like a movie set a little bit. But I do think the gas works works as the, you know the city of Hue in Vietnam a lot. There's a lot of character to the movie. When castings got underway, Tim Colseri Col- was originally cast as Gunnery Sergeant Hartman, but Kubrick eventually casted Lee Ermey, who was the technical advisor on the movie in the role. Yeah, so Lee Ermey was actually a drill sergeant during Vietnam, and mm-hmm. he wasn't. He was in another movie, Vietnam. I forget the name of it. It was like C Company or whatever. Um, but so Lee Arm, he was hired as the technical supervisor to, be, to basically train the actors, so they mm-hmm. they felt and looked and moved like like Marines. And Tim Colseri was originally going to be uh, the drill sergeant, and Lee Ermey was like rehearsing with the actors, and he would just say all this stuff, and he like basically auditioned to Kubrick. He's like, "Look, let me, let me just do I think it, I can yeah. do this. Let me do this." And Kubrick was like, "Shit, he's right." And um. And the Tim Colseri did like a one man show about like how he that sucked. Mm-hmm. Kubrick still gave him like a credit in the credits, like his own title card, and he made him the door gunner. If you remember that scene where he's he's going get some, get some, mm-hmm. and he goes, "How can you kill women and children?" He goes, "Easy, you just don't lead them so much." <laughs> Leading like don't you don't aim in yeah, front of yeah, them yeah, so much yeah. when they're running. Um, still give him a crazy legendary. Drops the hardest line in the movie yeah. probably. Um, but that sucks. And Kubrick sent out a giant cat. He was like, anybody who wants to audition can. Mm-hmm. And then he literally looked at everybody. Matthew Modine was cast as Joker. And uh, Vincent D'Onofrio was friends with him. And Matthew Modine was like, you should send in an audition tape. D'Onofrio gets the part, gains 80 pounds. Mm-hmm. And it like, <laughs> like st- which sucks. He gained like 40 pounds. And Kubrick was like, all right, now you look just like you can kill somebody. I need you to look like you're a big baby. So he gains more weight. He's the one who ends up Blowing his own private pile, yeah. yeah, he yeah. plays private, and uh-huh. he he he's so good in that role. He adds like the perfect innocence, yeah. like the scene. Do you remember the scene where they're smacking him with the the soap in the side in the yeah. in the towels? And there, Kubrick was Kubrick was like, we have that. That is great. Kubrick like he rarely showed like enthusiasm when like a take went well, but d- in the commentary, D'Onofrio says like he did that, and Kubrick's like, we we have it mm-hmm. because the thing that he does is like that's like so hard. It's so heart wrenching because not only is like obviously you feel bad for him because he, he just got like beat up by all these you know like these, these like by his like people so, yeah his, his, his fellow team. bunk yeah. yeah his team whatever his his platoon and and then he starts crying and he goes ow yeah he says ow and it really like makes him in, like an infant it makes mm-hmm. you feel really really bad for him and the, the innocence of saying ow you're like oh my yeah God, yeah this poor guy you would never yeah. You would think, like, in a moment like that, someone would try to, like, hold it in. Yeah. It was just like, ah, yeah. Yeah. That yeah, was really good. He was that. great in that and, and honestly, like, w- that's one of those. <laughs> that, that the scene where he's in the bathroom and he ends up dead and he 
and like his face in that like is just so gripping. Yeah. I feel like that's one of those like like one of the most iconic scenes ever in terms of just movies and I mean a lot of Stanley Kubrick's um scenes are that way. But that's like one of the ones that you see on YouTube reels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and yeah. You still but watch it's, it's it. It's like all the ones the that you look, you see on YouTube, and you're like, I gotta watch. That. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that yeah. face that he does, he was talking about that with Kubrick, where, um, they were talking about what he goes. Kubrick's like, <laughs> Kubrick goes, "Do you know what you're gonna do tomorrow?" And he goes, "Yes." I go, he goes, "All right, do something brilliant." And then he walks away, and then Kubrick like clears his throat. Vincent D'Onofrio says, and he turns around and goes, "Make sure it's big." Mm-hmm. Lon Chaney big and Lon Chaney was like played like monsters and stuff back in the day. I don't know much about him, but that's where he got the that face mm. was from watching old Lon Chaney movies. But also that scene signifies like a stark change in the tone of the film. Oh too, yeah, right. Yeah. Well, right that's, after that, it well a stark change in the t- like because that's obviously it's the most tragic part of the first half. Mm-hmm. And then as soon as that happens, Kubrick just hits you with. These boots are made for walking. Like the super upbeat scene. Mm-hmm. And that contrast works so well, and I love it. So Vivian Kubrick made a making do- er, making of documentary for Full Metal Jacket as well. Yeah, she made that, She made another one, which is also awesome. There's there's some great stories from the, like if, if you look at the, the commentaries, like there's one where Adam Baldwin, uh, who plays Animal Mother in the movie, was doing a scene and Kubrick was just like, do it again, do it again. And Adam Baldwin got fed up. And uh, he Adam Baldwin turns around and goes, what does this guy want? And then Kubrick just turns, he just like pokes out from behind the camera and he goes, how about some better acting? <laughs> totally lights him the fuck up. Everybody on, on set like starts oh. laughing. And if I was Adam Baldwin, I, I'd like to mm-hmm. think that I would go like, oh, damn, I was pretty Yeah, good. yeah. But, you know. mm-hmm. uh, but, he would, but Kubrick was insane. Like, he would just walk around and be like, how do you think the movie, like we said before, how do you think the movie should end? Mm-hmm. And he was like, Matthew, him and Matthew Modine were pissed one time. And he goes, you know how it should end, man? Matthew Modine just goes, you know how the mo- fucking movie should end? Joker should just live. He should just live and have to live with what he did. Mm-hmm. And Kubrick goes, hmm. Okay, yeah. made at the end. <laughs> yeah, that's so funny. that I mean, I feel like even though he's walking around saying that, like he probably had something in mind, obviously. But yeah. like he just wanted people to give him ideas yeah. anyway, which was cool. That's like one of the things I heard he would just have meetings with, like really long meetings with the actors and just be like, yeah. What what do you guys think? Like, There's no such thing do? as a stupid idea. Uh-huh. Just tell me. Yeah, that that's really cool that he, yeah. someone who was like sort of a control freak would just, you know, have. Yeah, he, he was a control freak in terms of composition, but he wasn't a, he wasn't a control freak in terms of what other people had to bring to the movie. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. So uh, after Vincent D on <laughs> D'Onofrio, <laughs> D'Onofrio. D'Onofrio. It's an O. After Vincent what? D'Onofrio. D'Onofrio was cast as Private Pile. He gained <laughs> 80 pounds for the... Oh, we already said this. Yeah, we this. said okay. that. I did a typo. Okay. <laughs> oh, you typed it wrong? I might have typed it wrong. <laughs> okay. Onofrio. I mean, I didn't type this. Some guy gave it to me. Oh, yeah. Some random yeah, guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Dude, it's like... I'm thinking, like, <laughs> what are all these names coming from? Is there not a normal... Like, what about... There's no, nobody named, like, Jack Johnson or something? I don't know. <sighs> Nobody <laughs> with a normal name. It's always the most the hardest name to pronounce. <laughs> okay, Arlie Emery was involved in two car crashes while yeah. filming. Arlie Emery, Ermy. Did you say Emery? Emery, Ermy. Damn, dude, we can't catch a break. All right, so so that's cr- so the first car crash is kind of funny, or I don't know when it occurred, but the, funny. The, yes, this car crash is funny because I don't know if this is true because Arlie 
Ermi may have lied sometimes. Mm-hmm. We'll get to that later. But he goes, we were you know, in the car, me, Christian, and Stanley, and Stanley was driving, and he was looking out on the, on the, uh, like, you know, out on the field, and he goes, oh, we can, do th- we can do the shot there, and we can do this. And he's looking out. He's not looking where he's going. And he drives off the road, and the car tips over onto its side and rolls over. Oh, okay. And he said, without breaking a sweat, like, without breaking stride or speech, like, Kubrick just, like, climbs out of the door and mm. goes, and then, <laughs> <laughs> like, he just crashed, and he was just like, and then we could put the camera there. Like, he was still locked into it. Yeah, he was too focused. Yeah, and then the second car crash that Ermi was in was crazy. He broke four ribs. He almost died. Oh, shit. He was on this road where, like, people are known for getting murdered. And he crashed his car, and he was flashing his lights. Not he wasn't doing that, but he yeah. was flashing his lights. Um, and people, somebody stopped and helped him, which is like crazy because that's like a very infamous road where people just get murdered apparently. Mm. And they that, that saved his life. He almost died. Production was delayed for four months, or at least his scenes were delayed for four months. He couldn't do the barrack scenes, um, which is pretty crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, even though it was a critical and box office office success. Kubrick was disappointed that it was released six months after Platoon, which made $138 million at the U.S. box office alone. Yeah, so Full Metal Jacket made like 40-something million in the U.S. box office, and they mm-hmm. made 120 worldwide, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pl- Platoon outgrossed its worldwide total domestically, and Platoon was released first. So Kubrick really felt burned by, ah, oh, shit. Like, we got this out a little bit sooner. Because they start, the, it was in development forever. Like, Platoon was conceived shot and released in the same span they were like shooting not well that's maybe an exaggeration but um so kubrick is really burned by and platoon's a good movie apparently i haven't seen it but people say it's a good movie um that was just an an instance where kubrick was kind of too late but it's still still i think i think full metal jacket is remembered better than platoon or at least more Mm -hmm. um but i think people talk about how uh full metal jacket is Oh, it's about the dehumanizing effects of war, and it's basically like all the watching these guys turn into killers. The movie opens with uh, "Hello Vietnam," used ironically. Uh, it's like this, like this. It's like it's like um, the opening song "200 Years from from Nashville." Where it's like it's like so patriotic that the movie's using it ironically, like satirically. Like, we must stop communism. And all the guys are getting their heads shaved. And that's basically like a microcosm for how these guys are going through boot camp. And they're getting stripped of their personality and becoming Mm -hmm. killers and stuff like that. I think the the themes of that are pretty interesting. Like, they're not the the thing I'm most interested in the movie. The thing I'm most interested in is, again, this is something that I should probably credit to that guy, Rob Ager, Ager, whatever his name is, is we talked about the relationship between sex and violence in Kubrick's movies. Also, that pops up in The Shining with Jack abusing Danny. Um, in, in Full Metal Jacket, what he does is he constantly associates guns and penises. Mm. So, like, they go, the, uh, he gi- Sarge- Sergeant Hartman gives him the gu- gives the recruits the guns, and he goes, he goes, you are you will give your guns, your rifles, a girl's name because these weapons are the only pussy that you people are going to get. So immediately associates the guns with like sexual yeah. pleasure stuff like that, and uh, uh, Pyle names his gun Charlene, gives it like a female name. There's another scene where they're marching around. He goes, "This is my rifle. This is my gun." And they go, "This is my rifle. This is my gun." And then this is for fighting, and this is for fun. Mm-hmm. The gun the associating the penis and the gun the same thing. It, the gun is already like a phallic symbol. Um, 
And then later, the, the the first woman, the only there's three women we see in the movie. The first one is a prostitute who wants to have sex with Joker, and Joker doesn't have sex with her. And then the sec the second woman woman we see, uh, at least who's a character, is another prostitute at the end of Act Two, and the uh, the pimp describes it as like no boom boom for you, boom boom is how they describe sex, yeah, which is also how you would describe a a, a, a bullet, yeah, firing. Um, which is also interesting. And then that scene ends with Animal Mother going like, go ahead, I'll skip the foreplay when he goes and takes the girl into the movie theater. And, you know, Animal Mother's like, you, he's probably the kind of guy who would rape a, you know, a, a Vietnamese prostitute because he's not a very nice person. Mm-hmm. He know, He's like, he's basically what Hartman wanted Pyle to become. Like, the, the, the yeah, born again sense. hard, you're, you know, the, the perfect killing machine or whatever. And so you can deduce from that that he could have been raping her and all those guys are going to have sex with her right and because they're all like they're, they're like what's the batting order like who's going to have sex with her and then it, cu- it fades to black and then we see the squad leader get killed by a mine cowboy becomes a squ- squad leader he's fucking up he can't do it properly and then eight ball goes and gets shot by a sniper when he looks for a way through the city another guy goes and gets shot mm-hmm. they go to save them they're dead and then cowboy gets shot by the sniper and um, this, this, so this whole platoon is getting pinned down by one sniper. They get into the the building, and Joker gets up there, and he goes to shoot, but his gun jams, and he can't shoot her. And then she, and the sniper turns around. It's a fourteen year old girl. It's like a yeah. little girl, and she starts shooting at him. And then uh, Rafter Man, who's been at Joker's side this whole movie, he's like another war correspondent journalist, kills her, or shoots her at least, in- incapacitates her. And uh, Rafter Man goes, uh, I fucking blew her away. He goes, am I a life taker? Am I a heartbreaker? <laughs> Basically, like, am I a killer or a lover? Like that yeah, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, Joker goes, and she's breathing on the ground. Very Like, if you listen to her breathing, it obviously is her dying. But you can listen to, if you listen to it in another context. It's, <sighs> you can you can see how it, it can be construed as like a sexual Think she's on her back. Yeah, yeah. Right, and he goes. We can't just. Joker goes. We can't just leave her like this. And then animal mother goes. Fuck her. Mm. He goes. Let her rot or whatever. And they have a bit. And then he ends up killing her with a gun, which we've with Kubrick has already associated with a phallic imagery. Mm-hmm. So I think that scene is partly like a metaphor for what happened in the movie theater when they all had sex with that prostitute, but also that thing of them having sex with a prostitute which the final battle is a metaphor of is also a microcosm of the american involvement in vietnam as a whole like joker is finally like when he kills her he's finally taking part in the war he's finally becoming a killer he's becoming he's raping he's taking part in the rape of vietnam yeah yeah because the the only three women two of them are uh prostitutes and then one of them is in the scene is in the sequence where she's acting as the metaphor for the prostitutes. So basically all three women are prostitutes. Yeah. So that's that's what I think about it is really interesting. And also Joker has this amazing his his character is good because he has this amazing perspective on the whole thing. Like he's sort of like an outsider. Like he's very conscious of himself. Like he's always walking around like the best line of the movie is he goes he goes they're they're talking about like, why are you in Vietnam or whatever and the, all these guys are like I don't know why I believe I be- I belong in Vietnam like I like killing whatever. They're all saying their things and the Joker goes I wanted to see exotic Vietnam. The crown jewel of Southeast Asia. I wanted to come meet an uh, ancient and stimulating culture and stimulating people and kill them. Mm-hmm. I wanted to be the first kid on my block with a confirmed kill. 
Like he has that. He's smart enough to realize the sarcasm and yeah, and yeah, the irony of what's happening. And stuff. Yeah, mm-hmm. Joker's a great character. Yeah. Um, do Do you want to keep going, or should we? Do you have any thoughts? I have one more thought. If you don't have any, you can go. So we talked about. I talked about the the like the ending with Kubrick. His original ending was where Joker was gonna get shot, and then he was gonna freeze frame, and then it was gonna flash back to Joker playing as a soldier when he was a kid. Basically, high like these are just kids too. Yeah, right? yeah. And that was that was you can also sort of uh, see that's still in the movie at the end because he has them singing the Mickey Mouse song. It ends with all the going M I C K E Y M O U S C Mickey mm-hmm. Mouse. And people are like, "What is that's weird? That leaves a bad taste in my mouth." But he's basically saying like these are still just kids. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a strange. Yeah, way you, lo- you you kind of lose that throughout the movie, like. The fact that they are, I mean, I, like, you don't lose it, but it's, like, one of those things during, like, any war film, I feel like you you kind of forget that they're, like, right. some of them are in their teens still. Yeah. Like, like, just twi- based off I'm what's going on. In yeah. The, mm-hmm. I'm basically 25. You're 25. We were probably older than 80% of the guys who died in Vietnam. And, yeah. Uh-huh. World War, World War II. World War they were all... 16 to 24 like it's yeah yeah mm-hmm. they were just kids so yeah it's like and it's like easy to forget that unless you're given like a sort of a reminder towards the end so now we're gonna get into some more films that were never made sadly sadly and i think we would have loved to see them the first one is the aryan papers in the early 90s kubrick wanted to make the definitive movie on the holocaust eventually he chose to adapt Wartime Lies by Lewis Begley. A nice pronounceable name. I love to see it. Finally. <laughs> like I said, Jeez. I think we were talking about the shrine. Like Kubrick always wanted to make a movie about the Holocaust. And he mm-hmm. did a lot of like, it got really far into pre production this movie. Like they were they they casted it, they were about to shoot it. They had like they were getting the permits to like hang Nazi flags in certain towns in like Poland, Slovakia. I think Poland and Slovakia. Mm-hmm. And they were gonna have tram cars that come out of the hit like the museums to use in the movie. Um, and yeah, so in, in, in wartime lies, uh, the, the guy, Lewis Begley was like, holy shit, Stanley Kubrick is going to direct my book. This is insane. And I don't, I don't know if he collaborated on the script. Did, did it say, does it say if he collaborated on the script? Um, it doesn't say. Unlike, unlike Napoleon, we don't have a script for, uh, wartime lies or the Aryan papers. Oh, there's no, there's no no script script. for it. Oh, do you think he got? Do you think he ever had one? And Def- he definitely a completed, sc- uh, at least a draft, because they were in pre-production. Mm-hmm. You know, but they were in no the, in the guy Joseph Mazzello, who was cast, the kid, mm-hmm. his mom had to read the script. Oh wow, yeah. Uh-huh. So, so, there, yeah. but there's just not one in circulation. You mean? Yeah, you can't find one. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so the filming was to take place all over Europe and mostly Slovakia, mm-hmm. and then uh, the Aryan papers was deep into pre-production when the movie was canceled after Schindler's List started filming. But it wasn't the only reason the movie was canceled. Yeah, so the reason why he was like, all right, because he got kind of burned a little bit on Full Metal Jacket where Platoon came out. And he was like, do I really want to do this again with yeah. Schindler's List? You know, and But there's two other reasons why... Uh, he like that was like That's like the official reason. It's like, oh, Schindler's List's already been done, whatever. Um, according to... I think it was Ken Adam was the production designer. One, whoever was production designer at that time, uh, his daughter, I think Anya, Kubrick's daughter Anya, got pregnant, 
and Kubrick was going to travel to another country to film. He hadn't done that in a while. He's been in England for like 20 years at this point. And Anya got pregnant, and and the guy said, well, that's the end of this movie. And they go, what are you talking about? He goes, if Anya's pregnant, Christiane's not going to leave England. And if Christiane's not going to leave England, Kubrick's not going to leave England. Mm-hmm. And then, according to Christiane, there was another reason where he goes, th- she goes, there was a, a, another reason where like, he read everything. He knew everything about, you know, he knew everything that happened. And he would, he, you know, struggled over, like, how could I film what I know happened? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like, how could I even prepare to film it? Yeah, like, why? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And she said, like, I'm glad that he stopped because he was just getting so depressed. Learning more and more about. Yeah, like, having to do this movie. What happened. Yeah. And I'm sure, like, it would have been, and again, a Holocaust movie from Kubrick, who's known for pushing these, like, I don't know what we would have seen. Yeah, yeah. From and that. it's, I mean, even like Schindler's List, like it's heavy. I can't imagine what that was like filming that. I mean, yeah. you know, so, um, yeah, I could see why that would be something that would, for someone like Stanley Kubrick, to have to push himself to learn so much about something like that. Yeah, with knowing how obsessive he is, he probably lo- he probably like the worst thing to be obsessed about the mm-hmm. whole, like the most depressing thing. Yeah, obsessively learning about like what took place is just yeah, you know, it, there's there's a limit to what you really want to know. Yeah, <laughs> and he probably pushed past that limit of what you know what you yeah. really what you you know would want to know. But like the p- past the limit of what the general population knows happened like we know Which concentration camps but so the de- there's details of like and, al- and also um he talked about i think this is true he talked about schindler's list and it was like schindler's list not about the holocaust that's about saving people schindler's list the holocaust is about not saving people mm-hmm. which gives insight into what his movie w- his movie would have been the most depressing thing ever probably yeah so what's next up um, AI, artificial intelligence. Yes. After the Aryan Papers was canceled, Kubrick saw Jurassic Park and decided that technology in adva- had advanced enough for him to make AI. Yeah, a- you, you think AI is like the perfect thing for Kubrick because you see like what he did with 2001. I'm, cu- I'm curious to where what he would have done with it because 2001, I think like he got AI. But yeah. I, I'm, I'm like, I'm tr- I, would, I was always curious of what he would have done. I know that there was the relationship between a boy who has a mother that doesn't want to love him. And he's like, because that was like a big part of the studio, I think the original short story, was that since he wasn't real, the mother like didn't love him, but he was so devoted to the mother. And Co- for some reason, Cooper was like, God damn, that's mm-hmm. good. That's good. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, it's a, the, the original seed was a short story called Super Toys Last All Summer Long, yeah. published in 1969. Yeah. That was the, that's what you were talk- mm-hmm. talking about? I think that's the one, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then Kubrick went through many writers on the project. Brian Aldis, Bob Shaw, and Ian Watson. Some nice names. And and uh, Brain. <laughs> I said Brain, <laughs> damn it. <laughs> I was like, no way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, he was. In, the funny thing about that is Emilio talks about that, where he was driving all those ri- writers around at one point. And they would always talk to him. And they were always trying to get, like, they were always trying to figure out what was what Stanley. Because th- Stanley would never tell them anything. He actually he was he had them all writing at the same time and didn't tell them about each other, and wouldn't let them see each other's work. Mm-hmm. And one day, uh, I think it was Ian Watson was in the car with Emilio, and Emilio brought up like I don't know Stanley mentioned something about Pinocchio, and the guy goes 
Pinocchio. That's exactly what it is. Like he was because he was tr- Kubrick wouldn't let him know what he was thinking. Mm-hmm. He was so like guarded in that. And then he Emilio says Pinocchio, and he was like, "I got it." He's what do you nice. mean? He, like he got a clue to what he was right because like, Kubrick would keep him in the dark. Like Kubrick didn't want him. Like didn't th- he was weird. Like he didn't want them to know what was going on in his own head. He just mm-hmm. wanted to see what was going on in theirs. Mm-hmm. And then he brought he pitched it to uh, Spielberg, um, the uh, AI. And he was like a Stanley Kubrick production, a film by Steven Spielberg, like a, like a title card. And he was going to produce it, and Spielberg would direct. He showed him all these storyboards. He was like, Stanley, get, uh, or he was like, Steven, uh, get over here. He's like, when can you be here? He goes, tomorrow. So he flew over and went in his kitchen, and he pitched in 2001 and showed him all these awesome storyboards. And then, you know, Spielberg made the movie in 2001, and I don't think it's good. Because it's like, okay, the, the, the first act is like, cool, this sort of seems like a futuristic Kubrick type thing. Mm-hmm. And then the middle act is like, it's like this weird, syrupy, E.T., you know, uh, Hook-like mm-hmm. movie with, like, it's this weird robot holocaust in the middle. It's weird. And then the end is, like, Kubrick again. It's strange. I don't like it. But, yeah. Eyes Wide Shut is their next one. 1999. After postponing AI, Kubrick returned to another project 30 years in the making. Eyes Wide Shut was adapted from Dream Story, by Arthur Schnitzler. Got it. Got that name. Sing. Down. Boom. <laughs> <laughs> is that it? That's it. Yeah. All right. So, yeah. So, Dream Story is interesting because he wanted to make that for a long time. Originally, like in the 80s, I think he wanted Steve Martin. He thought of it like, as like a sex comedy. Mm-hmm. He wanted Steve Martin to play uh, the main guy that was at one point was Woody Allen, some other actors and stuff. And But then over the years, like, it sort of, sort of just morphed into what became Eyes Wide Shut. Mm-hmm. And the story is basically this guy, in the book, it takes place in Vienna in the early 20th century. And it's this guy who's, uh, him and his wife have a conversation, and his wife tells him, like, oh, I had an attraction to another man today. And then he feels, like, kind of cucked and frustrated, so he goes out and tries to tries to get some, tries to get some. Mm-hmm. And then he ends up, like, you know, going into this, accidentally stumbling into the secret society thing, and he's like, what did I just see? And... It's, it's sort of like this one-night journey through, like, this of self-discovery type of thing, which is, like, it's very strange. And so, yeah, that's, that's what Kubrick mm-hmm. adapted. Yeah, I saw the thing about, um, whatchamacallit, Tom Cruise talking about his character and that, how he, like, brought his character home by yeah. accident a little bit, and it made him, like, a little insecure. Yeah. Like, the character is... Well, uh, yeah, it's funny because you bring that up, because like, in the documentary, everybody's, like, so earnest in talking about Kubrick's movies, and then you can tell Tom Cruise is doing, like, his Tom Cruise, like, I brought that character Bill home with me, you know? He's, mm-hmm. like, he's like doing a performance even in the documentary that he's also narrating. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I was wondering, like, when they get to that part, is yeah. Tom Cruise just going to be narrating yeah. it? Like Tom Cruise had a funny story when he, when he met Kubrick. Um, he called him up because Kru- uh, Tom was in... Uh, England because Nicole was filming a movie uh, there and so Tom, Tom Cruise comes on the helicopter uh, he says he was driving the hel- he goes I, I, I landed the helicopter but we, he probably I like Tom Cruise mm-hmm. he probably said like hey land the helicopter the pi- I don't know if he was piloting helicopters at the point anyway he lands the helicopter on Stanley's like yard and Stanley's just in the garden chilling just sitting there on his own mm-hmm. and it's just a funny story just Stanley Kubrick sitting there like you'd think he'd have like an entourage he's just like oh look at Tom Cruise on a helicopter yeah Tom Cruise coming it's on a his funny story <laughs> <laughs> Tom Cruise landing his own it's also funny just to think that Tom Cruise landed the he- like was flying the helicopter yeah like he took the he <laughs> took the reins out of the pilot's hand it was like, like Stanley Kubrick's watching let me do this <laughs> just let me have this <laughs> we're gonna land this helicopter <laughs> 
<laughs> Let's go make a great movie. <laughs> um, so the same way Kubrick re- uh, created Vietnam within 30 miles of his home, he recreated New York City at Pinewood Studios in England. Yes, he had to build cities. He just had a, he had built like Gr- Greenwich Village a couple blocks. There was a woman I saw an interview with where she was talking about how Kubrick would call her and just be like, take a, pi- take a picture of like a garbage can. Uh, taxi how about this can you send some stuff over he was like basically her scout and like or his scout in like for new york um that was like a big production and if you, l- you look at the street names like none of the street names are anything like it's james street like, there's mm-hmm. no james street like, scorsese talked about that he just made up yeah the street names and like scorsese talks about it was probably like, intentional that it was the, the the street was sort of like made to like feel like a dream because the the, the the title of the dream of the book is called dream story and i do think this movie is supposed to feel like a dream mm-hmm a lot like it, it's very it's much more subtle than stuff in the shining but like you don't really know and like 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 i said like a dream you don't really le- realize eyes wide shut's effect on you until it's over mm-hmm. and you wake up and you're like oh shit i was dreaming that whole time you know it's a it's a very strange effect mm-hmm. and it might just me be reading too much into it because it's kubrick but is it is it as because this is one that i haven't seen but is it as um dreamy feel or um I guess what? How would you say airy feeling is like something eerie? like two thousand? No, oh. airy like just out there as like something like two thousand one or no? It's, it's definitely not. not, not it's definitely close. it's definitely not out there. Mm-hmm. If anything, it's just. I, I will say this: like on, in The Shining, when I say a certain theory, it's like yeah, there's probably a theory there, right? Mm-hmm. But since Eyes Wide Shut is so subtle, that the line between coincidence and intention is so thin. That any interpretation of the movie borders on the schizophrenic, mm. if, if that, if that like makes if you, sense. Yeah, like you're, it's harder. You're saying it's harder to. It's so subtle. Mm-hmm. Some of the stuff that that's it's going on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, sorry, I skipped over this point. Uh, the Warner Brother Warner Brothers president asked Kubrick to cast movie star, a movie star like in The Shining, which led to Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman. Yeah. And, the, and they were a couple that they were married at the time, and Kubrick was like excellent, and they were giant. Coop, Tom Cruise is the biggest movie star on the planet at this point, mm-hmm. and he makes him sign a contract that says you can't do another movie until we're done with Eyes Wide Shut. Yeah. And then they subsequently spent eighteen months on the shet on the on the shet on yeah. the set of Eyes Wide Shut. That's crazy. They worked four hundred days. It holds the Guinness World Record for the longest production, mm-hmm. four hundred consecutive days of filming. Wait, Nicole Kidman and Tom Cruise were married at this point. Mm-hmm. Did they get divorced like right after the movie or something? Now, I don't know if it was right <laughs> after the movie, but it was like sometime after. Really? Yeah. It's like it's like prop. prop yeah, I was, wouldn't was 33. be surprised if that was. Could have been. It was a crazy experience. Their their children again. their children develop English accents from living over there for so long. Yeah, that's that's weird. <laughs> like <laughs> you just sign a contract. Like they didn't think that it would probably take that long. Right. But but also it's Stanley Kubrick, and they realize like Stanley Kubrick. Yeah, got to work with him. It's to be in his body of work is like becoming mm-hmm. a piece. Uh, your your presence is, is going to be timeless. Mm-hmm. You know, and in that vein, Harvey uh, Keitel, Keitel, Keitel. I was going to say that, and Jennifer Jason Lee were originally cast but dropped out during filming. Yeah, Harvey Keitel's from The Irishman. He was also in Taxi Driver and some in uh, Mean Streets. He mm-hmm. was like Martin. He's done a lot with Martin Scorsese. But he originally was cast as Sidney Pollock's character, Victor Ziegler, and then there was a scene where like Kubrick made him walk through a door six like sixty times, and he's like, "I'm not doing this," and just walked off set. Really? <laughs> yeah. So then they recasted him, mm-hmm. and then Jennifer Jason Lee filmed this. I forget what scene she was filming, but she filmed, and then they wanted to re- Kubrick wanted to reshoot it, and she wasn't available, so they cast somebody else. 
for like for the whole year. Oh, she they was in, like she was in one scene. Okay, Victor Siegler's like a supporting character. Mm-hmm. And then Emilio Dale Alessandro makes a cameo. Yeah, he was a news vendor when he's <laughs> when Bill's getting followed, mm-hmm. which is funny. You could see him; he's just sitting there. It's in the book. He's he was having a great time. Mm-hmm. He and also at this point he wasn't Cooper's assistant, so he wasn't dog tired all the time. Yeah, he was. Just he was like just like, oh, I don't have to do the work. <laughs> yeah. sit here. It was probably interesting on. being on set, like after uh, after a lo- like s- probably seeing how everybody was on a four hundred day yeah. set. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I wonder he what that's like. He probably walked like. in like day three hundred. Was like, thank I do not miss this. Yeah, anymore. yeah, yeah. Was he retired at that point, or he just was on to new things? He was retired. Yeah. 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 Um, so, uh, Kubrick showed the movie to Cruz and Kidman on March first, nineteen ninety nine, and showed Warner Brothers execs on March third, four days later. Stanley Kubrick died of a heart attack in his sleep on March seventh, nineteen ninety nine. He was seventy years old. And that and that's just like what I said earlier. Like he never slept. Mm-hmm. He was so dog tired on, on the set the set of Eyes Wide Shut. He worked so hard. Mm-hmm. And th- there's a there's a story that Emilio has in his book where the night, I guess March sixth, the night of March sixth, he drove Stanley back from the set, or back from showing somebody something, and Kubrick like couldn't get out of the car. He was just exhausted. And he he, br- was he, br- he brings him up, and just puts him in bed. He just couldn't stand up. And he goes, "Thanks, Emilio." And then Emilio leaves, and then in the morning he gets a call like Stanley's dead, mm. and it's like the saddest. Everybody comes to the house and stuff, and it sucks. He wasn't Emilio's was a, was like almost like his best friend. Like he was, he knew him for like almost thirty years, mm-hmm. and he wasn't. He they didn't pick him as a pallbearer at his wedding, or at, at his funeral. Really? Yeah, which kind of sucks. I guess. I mean, that might not have been something Stanley Kubrick like picked him. Like yeah, I know, but I'm th- yeah. Stanley didn't pick it, of course. But they were yeah. like. It, there was a little bit of it, uh, like anim- animosity there, but that, it was really sad. Yeah. And, and people talked about like what he thought of the movie before he died. Uh, Jan Harlan and Christian said he thought it was great and it was his best movie. And but uh, Lee Ermey said that story about Kubrick jumping out of the car and going, "Yeah." And then in the shot here when the car crashed, he he said that Kubrick called him and I said, "How's the movie going?" And he said, "It's a piece of shit. It's like the worst thing I've ever done." Really? Yeah. So either he's lying, like somebody's lying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that doesn't seem like something that you would lie about. Yeah, you know, especially after. Yeah, it's like such a yeah, it's a weird thing. Some, though. Someone to say that like. I hope I don't. I oh, I think that's true. I don't. Like, that could be wrong. I don't know. Mm. I think that's true. Mm-hmm. I will say. At the I don't think. I don't think it's true that Kubrick thought it was. I think. Lee, I think Lee Ermey saying that was true. I'm mm-hmm. pretty sure. I will say at the beginning of that. Uh, bullet point. I was not expecting him to die by the end of the bullet. Yeah, well, I was point. looking you at your reaction. My face? I was like, oh shit. Yeah, <laughs> you were smiling when you got into it. I, I, like, oh, I feel bad for smiling, but it caught me like way off yeah. guard. It's sad, dude. <laughs> it caught everybody yeah. off. It was so sudden. Yeah, yeah. It th- the the beginning of that sentence does not sound like yeah, like he's gonna die at the end. Yeah. You know, which is just like it shows. I mean, it shows how much he worked. Yeah, like to be doing that kind of like. He's doing viewings of the film that he just finished right before he passed away, well, and it wasn't even finished. They like some of the music was wasn't uh, yeah. done. They did. They had to do something to get the R rating, where they had the CGI people standing in front of some of the nudity, mm-hmm. which is like not that big of a deal. Yeah, yeah. But it was all supervised by Jan Harlan and Christiana mm-hmm. or Christiane. Mm-hmm. All people who had probably been in, involved for four hundred days, so they're like, yeah, yeah right. They're <laughs> like, please just get this fucking thing done. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then Eyes Wide Shut is released and receives generally positive reviews from critics. 
Does okay at the box office, but gets a terrible D minus rating on Cinema Score. Yeah, if you don't due to misleading marketing. Yeah, do you know? Do you know? Uh, Cinema Score. No. If you get an F on Cinema Score, that's like your movie getting a zero on Rotten Tomatoes. Oh, okay. Except it's like the audience, so it's pulling the audience. So if your movie gets an F, it's like only a few movies have done that. D minus is bad. Yeah. D if you look at the marketing for that movie, they were they were pitching it as like this erotic thriller. And like the two sexiest people ever, Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman, they were going to be f- having sex the whole yeah, time or whatever. Yeah. It's not that at all. It's this weird, dreamy, eerie, cons- secret society conspiracy movie. It's so strange. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's in, and so the audience goes into it like thinking it's going to be that, and then they get that. It's like, all right. And then and all the trailers are like, I did a bad, bad thing. Mm-hmm. It's all Tom Cruise and, and Nicole Kidman being sexy in the mirror yeah. and stuff. But, you know, Critics thought it was like they it was generally positive reviews. Sixty five million dollar budget, I mean like one sixty seven worldwide. It's like okay. Um, I, the first time I watched it, I'm like okay, it's fine. I guess I don't know. Third time, I'm like that's good. Third time, I'm like that's great. Mm-hmm. You mean yeah? Uh, you yeah. said third time. So if you, the one of the things that I think, and this is another thing by that Rob, uh, that guy Rob Ager, Agir, whatever his name is, he talks about like one of the subtle things I was telling you about this, like the subtle effects that Kubrick uses in the movie is like with Christmas lights because it takes place during Christmas. So in the bu- in the book, the the book is in Vienna in, ni- in the 1920s, let's say. And uh, the guy is Jewish. He's like secretly Jewish or whatever. And uh, it takes place during like a carnival, not Christmas. There's an epidemic going around, right? Mm-hmm. Kubrick swaps the epidemic for the AIDS epidemic. He swaps the Jewish stuff for like some gay stuff. And he ch- he switches Vienna to New York City. Yeah, just the way <laughs> gay stuff. I'll explain that. So in the book, after Bill is frustrated, he's Fridolin in the book. But in th- after Bill's frustrated in the book, he goes out after because his, his wife's like, I want to have sex with somebody else. And he goes out and he feels like emasculated. And then all these guys in the street, uh, in the movie, they go, they call him like, hey, they call him a bunch of gay slurs and stuff like that. And he's like, God damn it, yeah, I'm not gay. And then. Um, and in the book, they call him like a Jew boy and stuff like that. Like they they call him like Jewish slurs and he shit goes, like I'm that. I'm not Jewish. He's like, I am Jewish, but damn it. <laughs> um, I was gonna say, like, yeah. he, like, what does he say? I'm not Jewish. Right. <laughs> like, and there was a there was an aspect in the book like where he's Jewish, so he can't get up into the higher classes. But um, so th- those those were some changes, some interesting changes. And the AIDS epidemic comes up because like he only, he has a near miss with AIDS in the movie. Mm. And um, but the, one of the things that I'll ex- I'll try to explain is with Christmas lights, the Christmas lights always suggest a sexual arousal. I'm sorry, I'm just thinking about near miss with AIDS, like him, like, dodging. Dodging like Like AIDS. Like, oh. The bullets just say AIDS on him. Um, So, but with Christmas lights, the first instance of Christmas lights, this is, this could be incidental, because it's just setting up Christmas, Mm. is Bill, the first words in the movie are, have you, honey, have you seen my wallet? And then they go out to the living room, Bill and Alice, and their their daughter is like chilling with the, the babysitter, and the babysitter is like a young girl. And the first time we see Christmas lights is when Bill walks into the room and sees the the girl. And it's not like you know, it's it, it's it's framed so that you could just see it. It's not it's not emphasizing Bill's looking at her, but that's the first time we see Christmas lights. And then we go to a party by Z- Victor Ziegler, all these rich people who Bill's like trying to get into. It mm. seems like. And the, the, the whole thing's decorated in Christmas lights, and everybody's all dressed up in suits. And everybody in the in the in the party wants to have sex with each other. Victor Zeger's like, she's the most beautiful woman ever. It's like, oh well, your wife's beautiful too. There's a guy, there's a Swiss guy, 
who who's trying to have sex with Alice the whole time. He's like flirting with her and they're dancing. Bill goes off on his own thing and s- walks arm in arm with these two models. And again, there's Christmas lights everywhere. Everybody wants to have sex with each other. Mm-hmm. Then Ziegler calls up Bill because he's a do- Bill's a doctor. He calls him up to the bathroom where uh, Ziegler's getting changed after just having sex with a girl, and the girl is like passed out. She OD'd. There's no Christmas lights in the in the mm-hmm. bathroom because he got his fit. He he got, he just got off. He's not aroused anymore. Mm-hmm. This girl may be dead. Might be dead, and he's into some. Tr- he got he's into some trouble. Bill wakes her up, and he's like, "All right, whatever." Then we go back to the party. Then later, in the, there's another, the, the movie is coated with so many instances of Christmas lights. Like there's this one woman after Bill and uh, uh, Alice have their argument about, uh, you know, I just wanted to have sex with him. He's like, God damn it, I don't want you to have sex with him. I want you to have sex with me. Mm-hmm. He gets a call and it's like, all oh, this, th- some this lady's dad just died, like a patient. He gets there as soon as he walks into the room, he's framed with Christmas lights behind him, and then this lady like, I was like, oh Bill, thank you for coming, like this hot daughter. And they start talking, and the Christmas lights are there. And then the husband, she she confesses to him, like, I love you, Bill. And he's like, we barely know each other. Yeah, yeah. And but we, I don't think we have a com- we have had a conversation ever. And she's yeah. like, but I love you or whatever. And then the husband walks into the room, her husband, and he's fil- he's framed so that there's no Christmas lights behind him. Mm. And he looks, he's like, he's like a comically like a lookalike of Tom Cruise's character. Basically, like, maybe she is in love with him, and like, that's why her husband looks like him. Yeah, yeah. And like this guy has no sexual energy at all or whatever. And then Bill he's leaves. Like, Hiya, Bill. She's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, Bill. <laughs> oh, hey, Bill. <laughs> um, and then later, in between some of the scenes where the Christmas lights occur, obviously he's just walking in the city, so some of the Christmas lights might be incidental just to have the effect that it's Christmas. you yeah. know. But then he gets to, he, he needs to rent a costume. I'm not, I can't explain every single one. I'll be going through the whole movie. Oh, yeah, yeah. But he goes to get, rent a costume, and uh, he wakes up the, this guy in the middle of the night, and he goes in and goes, I need a costume. So he lets him in. They go down the hall, and you see Christmas lights are reflected in the glass displays of all like the, the, the costumes. And you're like, hmm, this is weird. It's just him talking to this guy. I guess the theory is out of here. There's no sexual arouser here. This is some old Russian guy or whatever. And then you see, you hear a noise. And the, the, the guy goes, "What is going on?" He goes into like this office where the Christmas lights are coming from, mm. and he sees, uh, he he pulls down like a door, like a curtain, and there's like a, this old Chinese guy, in, like who's like a cross dresser, and he's like, ah! and there's another Chinese guy, and then there's his underage daughter with the cross dressing Chinese guys, oh, wow. and that's like holy shit, and that's a big thing. He goes, "Get the hell out of here!" He locks in the room. He goes, "I'm calling the police." So that's where the, the Christmas lights were coming from. When he gets to the party, he finally gets to the, the, the Secret Society party. Mm-hmm. Everybody's wearing masks, right? It's a, it's, a complete, it's a complete mirror image of the party we saw in the beginning of the movie with all the rich people. There's no Christmas decorations in the mansion. Everybody's naked and wearing a mask, and they're all having sex with each other, right? Mm-hmm. As opposed to they all want to have sex with each other, and there's Christmas lights everywhere. Now we don't need the Christmas lights because they are having sex they're with each other. Yeah. Right? This is like the who they, th- like the masks were who they were at the party. Now that they're wearing their masks, they are just. They now that they're wearing masks, they can be their true selves. Yeah, th- yeah. essentially, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like a reverse image. And then later in the movie, Bill wants to have sex again, and the the, the, the Christmas lights disappear for a while. And then the first time we see them again after that is outside of Bill's office, right outside his door. There's a Christmas light on. There's a Christmas tree that's lit up, mm-hmm. and then. He he makes a call, and you're like, oh, who's he making a call to? He makes a call to the house of 
the lady who was like, I love you. And her husband answers. And he goes, hello? Hello? And he just hangs up. You're like, oh, he's mm. trying to get some. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So he, d- and that's another. And then at finally, after the whole thing, he Victor Zuko explains the whole thing to him. He's like, this is what, this is what you saw, blah, blah, blah. Bill goes, goes home, finally. And he shuts the Christmas lights off. He's like, I'm done trying to get laid. This is crazy. Yeah, it yeah. is a com- it is a comedic premise. Mm-hmm. I understand why Kubrick thought of it as a se- as a sex comedy. Um, and that's like that's not and that's such that's a thing that's so subtle. It's not like in The Shining where like this big you don't even notice it happening. It never calls attention to itself. Mm-hmm. And I think with Eyes Wide Shut, there's that there's this this weird feeling he was able to to get from the movie. The only weird th- dreamy feeling you're saying. Yes. Mm-hmm. At the end. The last, the last word, <laughs> the last words of the movie are the word "fuck," right? You go in the Christmas store. There's like no Christmas lights in the store. The only time the Christmas lights pop up again, Bill, the Bill tells Alice what happened. They go to the store to buy their daughter Christmas presents, and the lights, the Christmas lights only show up when Bill goes. So what do we do now? And then they have a talk about like, you know. But we're awake now. It was all just a dream or whatever. Like, wh- and you're like, wait, did anything what we just saw was that all a dream or was that like a weird dream dream story? And she goes, you know, there's one thing that we have to do. And he goes, what's that? And she goes, fuck. And then the movie ends. And when he says, so what do we do now? That moment, the Christmas lights pop up. Mm. The answer to that question that we learn is fuck. Damn. I feel like. I know the whole movie now. Like, I don't <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a good movie. You should watch it. It's li- no, I, w- I, under- I, will, I understand yeah. why like a general audience is like, this is weird. I'm giving it a D plus, especially when they they think that they're seeing another movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but Bill, it, it's so oh, the, 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 and Bill like Tom Cruise in it is just so he. When you watch like American Psycho, you're like, oh, he's doing this. He's doing Tom Cruise in this movie. You know, Tom yeah. Cruise in the firm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Just the people, but people wanted to go see like Fifty Shades of Grey with. Yes, Tom that's Cruise what they thought they were Nicole getting. Kidman. They thought they were getting Fifty Shades of Grey. Mm-hmm. Instead, they got Fifty Shades of Kubrick, which is yeah. not as sexy. <laughs> hey, he's a sexy man. <laughs> is that how we end the podcast? Yeah, yeah. Kubrick is a sexy man. That's how we end. <laughs> so if we <laughs> if if we've not learned one thing that. Stanley Kubrick if is a that's a that's a good note to end on. If there's anything we learned about Stanley Kubrick, it's that his movies are timeless. They've they're cultural. They're art. The artifacts of movie history, and they will only get more relevant. His ideas were so big in each movie that that that's what that's what makes them timeless. Is that every idea he was doing the idea of war? It's like that's a crazy big idea. Clockwork Orange, the idea of totalitarianism don't take away the people's ability to choose like every, these were such giant big ideas mm-hmm. and he was always looking for an intersection of subject matter in order to get the most interesting that's why his search for subject matter was so difficult because he was looking for the perfect intersection of I can do so many things here mm-hmm. and also he was a very sexy man <laughs> <laughs> and also he's very controversial I mean, every th- everything pushing the boundaries. Yeah, everything he did was controversial and pushed a boundary, and um, he never quite went to bat like until later on to really push back against some of the things that were said about him. But at the end, he didn't. It didn't seem like he really cared either way. There yeah, were, there wasn't, certain wasn't things. His, I, I doubt that his image was very important to him. He was it seemed an like art. it seems like his his family and his friends mm-hmm. were very in his movies. family, friends, and his art. Yeah, exactly. Came down to that, and also. 
you know, like you said, he pushed the boundaries. A lot of a lot of directors will they get kind of snooty and tooty, and they try to like make I'm making a movie for other directors and you know I'm making art here and they get very pretentious. But he was able to do those things operating within the appeal of the general audience, which is very very difficult to do. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think that concludes our discussion on Stanley Kubrick. We're gonna take a very long nap, and by nap I mean a night's sleep. And how did you think about this? Did you like this? It was fun. Yeah? Yeah. I'm excited <laughs> to do more. Yeah? Very satisfying to just, like, cover everything. Yeah, I feel like you I know. got it all out. Yeah, yeah. It's it's fun. Like, obviously, you're the expert on... Or I don't I'm the expert compared to normal people. Compared yes. to historians, I'm a normal person. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. Yes. Felt, I felt very satisfied. Excellent. Let's do it for real this time. <laughs> if you like this, let us know. Let us know what we can change. What can we, what, what you want us to discuss? If you have any ideas of a premise for a podcast, doesn't have, it doesn't always have to be a director's filmography. It could be a certain sect of their filmography. Mm-hmm. It can be like that one idea is the westerns of Clint Eastwood. Yeah. Or it can be a movie we just do. You know, four films of this person because not somebody has forty movies. Jesus Christ. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we can trim it down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you for very much for watching. We hope you enjoyed. We'll see you in the next one. Bye. Um, yeah. Do you want to try to do that intro one more time, maybe? That feel feel weird. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> as soon as you turned around, I went like this and you turned around. I was just waiting. Yeah, let's do the intro if you want.